The Dhaka tartans slipped through the waves, their red triangular sails billowing out sideways as they struggled on a tight tack to make the best use of the headwind. Dark figures scurried like ants across the decks and rigging of the smaller ships. Ready, arrows! Lieutenant Bishop shouted. Hadrian fitted his first shaft in the string. As the dacker closed in on the storm, they began to turn. Their yards swept round and their tillers cranked, pivoting much as Wyatt had, the action all the more impressive as both ships moved in perfect unison, like dancers performing simultaneous pirouettes. Light arrows! Hadrian touched the oil-soaked wad at the tip of the shaft to the pot of coals, and it burst into flame. A row of men on the port side stood ready, a trail of soot-black smoke wafting aft. Take aim, Bishop ordered as the Dacker ships came into range. On the deck of the Tartans, a line of flaming arrows mirrored their own. Fire! Into the blue sky flew a staggered arc of fire trailing black smoke. At the same time, the Dacker launched their volley, and the arrows passed each other in midair. All around him, Hadrian heard pattering as they struck. The bucket brigade was running to douse the flames, and above them Royce dropped along a line to kick free one lodged in the masthead before it could ignite the mainsail. Poe had another arrow ready. Hadrian fitted it, lit it with the pot, took aim, and sent it into the lower yard of their mainsail. To his right, he heard the loud thwack of the massive ballista, which sent forth a huge flaming missile. It struck the side of the tartan, splintering the hull and lodging there. Hadrian heard a hissing fly past his ear. Behind him, the oil bucket splashed and the liquid ignited. Poe jumped back as his trousers flamed. Grabbing a nearby bucket, Hadrian smothered the fire with sand. Another volley rained, peppering the deck. Boatswain Bristol, in the process of cranking the ballista for a second shot, fell dead with an arrow in his throat, his hair catching fire. Basil, the officer's cook, took one in the chest, and Seaman Blyden screamed as two arrows hit him, one in the thigh and the other through his hand. Looking up, Hadrian saw this second volley came from the other ship. Shaken but not seriously harmed, Poe found another oil bucket and brought it to Hadrian. As the two ships came closer, Hadrian found what he was looking for, a bucket at the feet of the archers. Leading his target, he held his breath, took aim, and released. The tartan's bucket exploded. Hadrian spotted a young Dhaka attempting to douse the flames with water. Instantly, the fire washed the deck. At that moment, the storm's ballista crew, having loaded the weapon with multiple bolts this time, released a cruel hail on the passing Dhaka. Screams bridged the gap between the ships as the storm sailed on, leaving the burning ships in its wake. Once more the crew cheered their victory, but it was hollow. Amid the blackened scorch marks left by scores of arrows, a dozen men lay dead on the deck. They hadn't slipped through the trap unscathed, and the red sails behind them were closer now. When night fell, the captain ordered the off-crew, including Hadrian and Royce, below deck to rest. 
On the way, they grabbed their old gear from the galley, and the two took the opportunity to change into their cloaks and tunics. Hadrian strapped on his swords. It brought a few curious looks, but no one said a word. Not a single man slept, and few even sat. Most paced with their heads bowed to avoid the short ceiling, but perhaps this time they were also praying. Many of the crew had appeared superstitious, but none religious, until now. Why don't we put in land? Seaman Davis asked his fellow soldiers. The coast's only a few miles off. We could put in and escape into the jungle. Coral shoals ring the shores of Calais, Banner said, scraping up the surface of the table with a knife. We'd rip the bottom of the storm a mile out, and the Daka would have it. Besides, the captain ain't gonna abandon his ship and run. Captain Seward is an arse. Watch your mouth, lad. Why? What's he gonna do that can be worse than the Daka? To that, Banner had no answer. No one did. Fear spread through the crew, fear of certain death and the poison that comes from waiting idly for it. Hadrian knew from countless battles the folly of leaving men to stagnate with nothing else to occupy their thoughts. The hatch opened and everyone looked up to see Wyatt and Poe. "'What's the word?' Davis asked. "'It won't be long now, men. Make ready what you need to. The captain will call general quarters soon, I expect.' Wyatt paused at the bottom of the ladder and spoke quietly with Grady and Durning. They nodded, then went aft. Wyatt motioned with his eyes for Hadrian and Royce to follow him forward. Only empty hammocks filled the cramped space, leaving them enough privacy to speak. So, what's the plan? Royce whispered. We can't win a fight, Wyatt told them. All we can hope to do is run. You said the storm can't outrun them, Hadrian reminded him. I wasn't planning on outrunning them in the storm. Hadrian and Royce exchanged glances. The Daka will want her and the cargo. That's why we made it through the blockade so easily. They were trying to slow us, not stop us. If I had followed Seward's orders, we'd all be dead now. As it is, I only bought us a few hours, but they were needed. Needed for what, exactly? Royce asked. For darkness. The Daka can't see any better at night than we can, and while they take the storm, we'll escape. They'll bring as many of their ships alongside as they can to overwhelm our decks by sheer numbers. When they board us, a party of men I've handpicked will take one of the Tartans. We'll cut the ship free and, with luck, get clear of the storm before they see us. In the darkness and confusion of battle it might work. They both nodded. Wyatt motioned to Hadrian. I want you to lead the boarding party. I'll signal you from the quarter deck. What are you going to be doing? Royce asked. You mean, what are we going to be doing? I didn't come all this way not to find Ali. You and I will use the distraction to break into the captain's quarters and steal any orders or parchments we can find. Just watch me. You'll know when. What about the elves below? Royce asked. Don't worry about them. The Daka want the ship intact. In all likelihood, they will treat them better than the new empire has. Who's in this team of yours? Hadrian asked. Poe, of course. Banner. Grady. All hands on deck!
Temple shouted from above as drums thundered. See you above, gentlemen, Wyatt said while heading for the hold. The sky was black. Invisible clouds covered the stars and shrouded the sliver of moon. Darkness wrapped the sea, a shadowy abyss where only the froth of the bow revealed the presence of water. Behind them, Hadrian saw nothing. Archers to the aft deck! Hadrian joined the others at the railing, where they lined up, shoulder to shoulder, looking out across the emerald storm's wake. Light arrows! came the order. From across the water they heard a sound, and a moment later men around Hadrian screamed as arrows pelted the stern. Fire! Bishop ordered. They raised their bows and fired as one, launching their burning shafts blindly into the darkness. A stream of flame flew in a long arch, some arrows dying with a hiss as they fell into the sea, others striking wood, the light outlining a ship about three hundred yards behind them. "'There!' Bishop shouted. "'There's your target, men!' They exchanged volley after volley. Men fell dead on both ships, thinning the ranks of archers. Small fires broke out on the tartan, illuminating it and its crew. The Daka were short, stocky and lean, with coarse long beards and wild hair. The firelight cast on them a demonic glow that glistened off their bare, sweat-soaked skin. When the tartan lay less than fifty yards astern, its mainmast caught fire and burned like a dead tree. The brilliant light exposed the sea in all directions and stifled the cheers of the storm's crew when it revealed the positions of the rest of the Dakar fleet. Four ships had already slipped alongside them. "'Stand by to repel borders!' shouted Seward. He drew his sword and waved it over his head as he ran to the safety of the forecastle walls. "'Raise the nets!' ordered Bishop. The rigging crew drew up netting on either side of the deck, creating an entangling barrier of rope webbing. Under command of their officers, men took position at the waist deck, cutlasses raised. "'Cut the tethers!' Mr. Wesley cried as hooks caught the rail. The deck shook as the tartan slammed against the Emerald Storm's hull. A flood of stocky men, wearing only leather armor and red paint, stormed over the side. They screamed in fury as swords met. "'Now!' Hadrian heard Wyatt shout at him. He turned and saw the helmsman pointing to the tartan tethered to the storm's port side near the stern, the first of the Dakar's ships to reach them. Most of its crew had already boarded the storm. Poe, Grady, and others in Wyatt's team held back, watching Hadrian. "'Go!' Hadrian shouted, and, grabbing hold of the mizzen's portside brace, cut it free and swung out across the gulf, landing on the stern of the tartan. The stunned Dakar helmsman reached for his short blade as Hadrian cut his throat. Two more Dakar rushed him. Hadrian dodged, using the move to hide the thrust— his broadsword drove deep into the first Dakar's stomach. The second man, seeing his chance, attacked, but Hadrian's bastard sword was in his left hand. With it he deflected a wild swing. Drawing the broadsword from the first Dakar's stomach, Hadrian brought it across, severing the remaining man's head. With three bodies on the aft deck, 
Hadrian looked up to see Poe and the rest already in possession of the ship, and in the process of cutting the tethers free. With the last one cut, Poe used a pole and pushed away from the storm. What about Royce and Wyatt? Hadrian asked, climbing down to the waist deck. They'll swim for it, and we'll pick them up on the far side, Poe explained as he ran past them heading aft. But we need to get into the shadows now. Poe climbed the short steps to the Tartan's tiny quarterdeck and took hold of the tiller. Swing the boom, he shouted in a whisper. Trim the sails. We know our job's a lot better than you, boy, Durning hissed at him. He and Grady were already hauling on the mainsail sheet, trying to tame the canvas that snapped above like a serpent, jangling the rigging rings against the mast. Banner, Davis! Adjust the headsail for a starboard tack! Hadrian had never learned the ropes, and he stood by uselessly while the others raced across the deck. Even if he had picked up anything about rigging, it wouldn't have helped. The Dakar Tartan was quite different in design. Besides being smaller, the hull was sloped like a fishing vessel, but with two decks. It had just two sails, a headsail supported on a forward-tilting mast, and the mainsail. Both were triangular and hung from long, curved yards that crossed the mast at angles, so that the vessel's profile appeared like the heads of two axes cleaving through the air. The deck was dark wood. Glancing around, Hadrian wondered if the Daka stained it with the same blood as the sails. After seeing the rigging ornamented with human skulls, it was an easy conclusion to make. On the storm, the battle was going badly. At least half the crew lay dead or dying. No canvas was visible, as the boarding party had made striking the sails a priority. The deck was awash in stocky, half-naked men who circled the forecastle with torches, dodging arrows as they struggled to breach the bulwark. Poe pushed the tartan's tiller over, pointing the bow away from the storm. The wind caught the canvas and the little ship glided gently away. With the sails on the emerald storm struck, the ship was dead in the water, and it was easy for them to circle it. Equally small crews remained to operate the other Dhaka boarding ships, but that hardly mattered, as all eyes were on the storm. As far as Hadrian could tell, no one noticed them. "'I'm bringing her around,' Poe said. "'Hadrian, stand by with that rope there, and everyone watch the water for Wyatt and Royce.' "'Royce?' Durning questioned with distaste. "'Why are we picking up the murderer?' I can handle the rigging just fine. Because Wyatt said so, Poe replied. What if we can't find them? What if they die before they can get off the ship? Davis asked. I'll decide that when it happens, Poe replied. You? You're a barmy boy. I'll be buggered if I'll take orders from a little sod like you. Bloody Davis here's got more years at sea than you. And he's a git if ever there was one. We don't find Demonthal after the first pass. You'll be taking orders from me. Like I said, Poe repeated, I'll decide that when it happens. Durning grinned menacingly, but Hadrian did not think Poe, being at the stern, could have seen it in the darkness. Royce wasted no time hitting the deck at the signal. 
"'We haven't got long,' Wyatt told him. "'The captain's quarters will be a priority.' He kicked the door open, shattering the frame. Fully carpeted, the whole rear of the ship was one luxurious suite. Silk patterns in hues of gold and brown covered the walls, with matching upholstered furniture and a silk bed cover. A painting hung on one wall, showing a man bathed in sunlight, his face filled with rapture as a single white feather floated into his upraised hands. Silver lanterns swayed above vast stern windows that banked the far wall. The bed stood to one side, with a large desk across from it. Wyatt scanned the room quickly, then moved to the desk. He rifled the drawers. He'll have put the orders in a safe place. Like a safe? Royce asked, pulling a window drape aside to reveal a porthole-sized compartment with a lock. They always put them behind the drapes. Can you open it? Royce smirked. He pulled a tool from his belt, and within seconds the little door swung open. Wyatt reached inside, grabbed the entire stack of parchments, and stuffed them into a bag. Let's get out of here, he said, making for the door. Jump off the starboard side. Poe will pick us up. They came out of the cabin into a world of chaos. Stocky men painted in red poured over the sides of the vessel. Each wielded short, broad blades or axes that cut down everything before them. Only a handful of men stood on the waist deck. The rest had fallen back to the perceived safety of the forecastle. Those who tried to hold their ground died. Roy stepped out onto the deck just in time to see Dime, his topsail captain, nearly cut in half by a cleaving blow from a Dhaka axe. Lieutenant Bishop and the other officers had been slow in reaching the castle, but now, as the Dhaka flooded the deck, they were running full out to reach its walls. Stabbed in the back, Lieutenant Green collapsed. As he fell, he reached out, grabbing at anything. His hands found midshipman Beryl running past and dragged him down as well. Beryl cursed and kicked Green off, but got to his feet too late. The Dhaka circled him. Help me! he cried. Royce watched as the crew ignored him and ran on, all but one. Midshipman Wesley ran back just in time to stab the nearest Dhaka, caught off guard by the sudden change in his fleeing prey. Wielding his sword with both hands, Wesley sliced horizontally across the chest of the next brute and kicked him aside. Beryl, this way, run! he shouted. Beryl lashed out at the Dhaka, then ran to Wesley. They were quickly surrounded, and the Dhaka drove them farther and farther away from the forecastle. An arrow from the walls saved Wesley from decapitation as the two struggled to defend themselves. Pushed by the overwhelming numbers, they retreated until their backs hit the rail. A darker blade slashed Beryl's arm and then across his hip. He screamed, dropping his sword. Wesley threw himself between Beryl and his attacker. The young midshipman slashed wildly, struggling to defend the older man. Then Wesley was hit. He stumbled backward and reached out for the netting chains, but missed them and fell overboard. Alone and unarmed, Beryl screamed as the Dhaka swarmed him until they sent his head from his body. 
No one noticed Wyatt or Royce creeping in the shadows around the stern, seeking a clear place to jump. They crouched just above the captain's cabin windows. Royce was about to leap when he spotted Thranic stepping out from the hold. The sentinel exited, a torch in hand, as if he merely wondered what all the noise was about. He led the serret to the main deck, where they quickly formed a wall around the sentinel. Seeing reinforcements, the Daka rallied to an attack. They charged, only to die upon the serret's swords. The knights of Nephron were neither sailors nor galley slaves. They knew the use of arms and how to hold formation. Gripping his bag to his chest, Wyatt leapt from the ship. Royce! Wyatt shouted from the sea below. Royce watched, impressed by the knight's courage and skill, as they battled the Daka. It looked as if they might just turn the tide. Then Thranic threw his flaming brand into the ship's hold. A rush of air sounded as if the ship were inhaling a great breath. A roar followed. A deep, resonating growl shook the timbers beneath Royce's feet. Tongues of flame licked out of every hatch and porthole, the air filling with screams and cries. And in the flickering glow of burning wood and flesh, Royce saw the sentinel smile. Hadrian and the tiny crew of the stolen Daka ship had only just reached the starboard side of the storm when the area grew bright. The emerald storm was ablaze. Within little more than a minute, the fire had enveloped the deck. Men in the rigging had no choice but to jump. From that height, their bodies hit the water with a cracking sound. The rigging ignited, ropes snapped, and yards broke free, falling like flaming tree trunks. The darkness of the starless sea fell away as the emerald storm became a floating bonfire. Those near the rail leapt into the sea. Screams, cries, and the crackle and hiss of fire filled the night. Looking over the black water, whose surface was alive with wild reflections, Hadrian spied a bit of sandy hair and a dark uniform. "'Mr. Wesley, grab on!' Hadrian called, throwing a rope. Hearing his name, Wesley turned, his face showing the same dazed expression as a man waking from a dream, until he spotted Hadrian reaching out. He took the rope thrown and was reeled in like a fish and hoisted on deck. "'Nice to have you aboard, sir,' Hadrian told him. Wesley gasped for air and rolled over, vomiting seawater. "'From that I assume you're happy to be here.' "'Wyatt!' Poe shouted. "'Royce!' Hadrian called. "'Over there!' Durning said, pointing. Poe turned the tiller, and they sailed toward the sound of splashing. "'It's Bernie and Stahl!' Grady announced from where he stood on the bow. The two wasted no time scrambling up the ship's ropes. "'More splashing over there!' Davis pointed. Poe didn't have to alter course, as the swimmers made good progress to them. Davis was the first to lend a hand. He reached out to help, and a blade stabbed him in the chest before he was pulled overboard. Hadrian saw them now swarthy, painted brutes with long daggers, their wet, 
glistening skin shimmering with the light of the flames. They grabbed at the netting and scrambled like rats up the side of the tartan. Hadrian drew his sword and lashed out at the nearest one, who dodged and stubbornly continued to climb. The Tenkin warrior, Stahl, stabbed another in the face, and the Daka dropped backward with a cry and a splash. Bernie and Wesley joined in, thrashing wildly until the Daka gave up and fell away into the darkness. "'Watch the other side!' Wesley shouted. Stahl and Bernie took positions on the starboard rail, but nothing moved. "'Any sign of Davis?' Hadrian asked. "'The man be dead now,' Stahl said. "'Be more careful who you sail to, eh?' "'Bullard!' Bernie said, pointing ahead to more swimmers. "'And three more over there,' Wesley announced, picking out faces in the tumultuous water. "'One is Grieg, the carpenter, and that's Dr. Levy. "'And there is—' "'Hadrian did not need Royce's eyes to identify the other man.' The infernal light coming off the burning ship suited the face. Sentinel Thranic swam toward them, his hood thrown back and his pale face gleaming. Durning, Burney, and Stahl were bad enough. Now they had Dovin Thranic of all people. Thranic needed no help as he climbed nimbly up the side of the little ship, his cloak soaked, his face angry. If you were a dog— Hadrian knew he would be growling, and for that he was pleased. Bullard, the man who had come aboard in the middle of the night, looked even paler than before. The reason became obvious the moment he hit the deck, and blood mingled with seawater. Levy went to him and applied pressure to the wound. Hadrian! Poe! Wyatt's voice carried from the sea below. Poe steered toward the sound as the rest stood on their guard. This time there was no need. Wyatt and Royce were alone, swimming for the boat. "'Where were you?' Wyatt asked, climbing aboard. "'Sorry, boss, but it's a big ocean.' "'Not big enough,' Durning said, looking over what remained of the storm, his face bright with the glow. "'The dark are finally taking notice of us.' The mainmast of the Emerald Storm, burning like a tree-sized torch, finally cracked and fell. The forecastle walls blazed. Seward, Bishop, and the rest had either been lost to blades or burned alive. The storm had blackened and cracked, allowing the ship to take on water. The hull listed to one side, sinking from the bow. As it did, the fire was still bright enough to see several of the Daka on the nearest vessel pointing in their direction, and shouting. "'Wheel hard over!' Wyatt shouted, running for the tiller. "'Durning! Royce, get aloft! Hadrian, Banner, the mainsail braces! Grady to the headsail braces! Who else do we have here? Barney, join Durning and Royce! Stall, help with the mainsail! Mr. Wesley, if it wouldn't be too much trouble, perhaps you could assist Grady on the forward braces. Bring her round east-northeast!' "'That'll put us into the wind again!' Grady said, even as Wyatt brought the ship round. Aye, starboard tack. The fewer crew and the same ship will be lighter and faster. They got the ship around and caught what wind they could. Here, Banner, take the tiller, Wyatt said as he scanned the deck. We can dump some gear and lighten the load further. Who's that next to you? Wyatt stopped abruptly when he saw Thranic look up. 
What's he doing on board? Wyatt asked. Is there a problem, helmsman? Thranic addressed him. You fired the ship, Wyatt accused. Royce told me he saw you throw a torch in the hold. How many oil kegs did you break to get it to go up like that? Five, I think. Maybe six. There were elves. They were locked in the hold, trapped down there. Precisely, Thranic replied. You bastard! Wyatt rushed at the sentinel, drawing his cutlass. Thranic moved with surprising speed and dodged Wyatt's attack, throwing his cloak around Wyatt's head and shoving the helmsman to the deck as he drew a long dagger. Hadrian pulled his swords, and Stahl immediately moved to intercept him. Poe drew his cutlass, as did Grady, followed quickly by Defoe and Durning. From the rigging above, Royce dropped abruptly into the midst of the conflict, landing squarely between Thranic and Wyatt. The sentinel's eyes locked in him and smouldered. "'Mr. Wesley!' Royce shouted, keeping his eyes fixed on Thranic. "'What are your orders, sir?' At this, everyone stopped. The ship continued to sail with the wind, but the crew paused. Several glanced at Wesley. The midshipman stood frozen on the deck, watching the events unfold around him. "'His orders?' Thranic mocked. Captain Seward, Lieutenants Bishop and Green, and the other midshipmen are dead, Royce explained. Mr. Wesley is a senior officer. He is, by rights, in command of this vessel. Thranic laughed. Wesley began to nod. He's right. Shut up, boy, Stahl snapped. It's time we took care of this business here. Stahl's words brought Wesley around. I am no boy. Turning to Thranic, he added, What I am, sir, is the acting captain of this ship, and as such, you and everyone else, he glanced at Stahl, will obey my orders. Stahl laughed. I assure you this is no joke, seaman. I also assure you that I will not hesitate to see you cut down where you stand and everyone else who fails to obey me. And how do you plan to do that? Stahl asked. This is not the Emerald Storm. You command no one here. I wouldn't say that. Hadrian flashed his familiar smile at Stahl. Neither would I, Royce added. Me neither, Durning joined in, his words quickly echoed by Grady. Wyatt got to his feet slowly. He glared at Thranic but said, I... Mr. Wesley is captain now. Poe, Banner, and Grieg acknowledged with a communal eye. What followed was a tense silence. Stahl and Bernie looked at Thranic, who never took his gaze off Royce. Very well, Captain, the sentinel said at length. What are your orders? I hereby promote Mr. Demonthal to acting lieutenant. Everyone will follow his instructions to the letter. Mr. Demonthal, you will confine your orders to saving this vessel from the Dhaka and maintaining order and discipline. There are to be no executions and no disciplinary actions of any kind without my authorization. Is that clear? Aye, sir. Petty Officer Blackwater, you are hereby appointed Master at Arms. Collect the weapons, but keep them at the ready. 
See to it, Mr. Demonthal's, and my orders are carried out. Understood? Aye, sir. Mr. Grady, you are now boatswain. Dr. Levy, please take Mr. Bullard below, so that he can be properly cared for. Let me know if there's anything you need. Mr. Durning will be top captain. Seaman Defoe and Melbourne report to him for duties. Mr. Demonthal, carry on. Your sword, Hadrian addressed Stahl. The Tenkin hesitated, but, after a nod from Thranic, handed the blade over. As he did, he laughed and cursed in the Tenkin language. You'd have found that a bit harder than you think, Hadrian replied to Stahl, and he was rewarded with the Tenkin's shocked expression. Wyatt had everything non-essential and not attached to the ship thrown overboard. Then he ordered silence and whispered the order to change tack. The boom swung over, catching the wind and angling the little ship out to sea. Well behind them, the last light of the emerald storm disappeared, swallowed by the waves. Not quite so far away, they could see lanterns bobbing on the following ships. From the shouts, it was clear they were displeased at losing their prize. All eyes faced astern, watching the progression of lanterns as the Dhaka continued following their previous tack. After a while, two ships altered course, but guessed incorrectly and turned westward. Eventually, all the lanterns disappeared. Are they gone? Hadrian heard Wesley whisper to Wyatt. He shook his head. They just put out the lanterns, but with luck they'll think we're running for ground. The nearest friendly port is West Baden, back west. For a helmsman you're an excellent commander, the young man observed. I was a captain once, Wyatt admitted. I lost my ship. Really? In whose service, the Empire or a royal fleet? No service. It was my ship. Wesley looked astonished. You were a pirate. Opportunist, sir. Opportunist. Hadrian awoke to a misty dawn. A steady breeze pushed the tartan through undulating waves. All around them lay a vast and empty sea. They're gone, Wesley said, answering the unasked question. We've lost them. Any idea where we are? About three days' sail from Dagestan, Wyatt answered. Dagestan, Grady muttered, looking up. We're not headed there, are we? That was my intention, Wyatt replied. But West Baden is closer. Unfortunately, I confess no knowledge of these coasts, Wesley said. Do you know them well, Mr. Demonthal? Intimately. Good. Then tell us, is Mr. Grady correct? Wyatt nodded. West Baden is closer, but the Darker know this and will be waiting in that direction. However, since it's impossible for them to be ahead of us, our present course is the safest. Despite our earlier differences, I agree with Mr. Demonthal, Thranek offered. As it turns out, Dagestan was the storm's original destination, so we must continue toward it. But Dagestan is much farther away from Avron, Wesley said. 
The Storm's mission was lost with her sinking. I have no way of knowing her original destination, even if I did. I have no cargo to deliver. Going farther east only increases our difficulties. I need to be mindful of provisions. But you do have cargo, Thranic announced. The Storm's orders were to deliver myself, Mr. Bullard, Dr. Levy, Bernie, and Stahl to Dagestan. The main cargo is gone, but as an officer of the realm, it's your duty to fulfill what portion you can of Captain Seward's mission. With all due respect, Your Excellency, I have no way to verify what you say. Actually, you do. Wyatt pulled a bent and battered scroll from his bag. These are Captain Seward's orders. Wesley took the damp scroll and asked, But how did you come by this? I knew we'd need charts to sail by. Before I left the storm, I entered the captain's cabin, and being in a bit of a hurry, I just grabbed everything on his desk. Last night I discovered I had more than just charts. Wesley nodded, accepting this, and, Hadrian thought, perhaps choosing not to inquire further. He paused a second before reading it. Most men were awake now, and, having heard of the conversation, watched Wesley with anticipation. When he finished, he looked over at Wyatt. Was there a letter? Aye, sir, he said, while handing over a sealed bit of parchment. Wesley slipped it carefully into his coat without opening it. We will maintain course to Dagestan. Being bound by imperial naval laws, I must do everything in my power to see that the storm's errand is fulfilled. Chapter 13 The Witch of Melangar Medina stared out of a window, as usual, watching the world with no real interest. It was late, and she feared sleep. It always brought the dreams, the nightmares of the past, of her father, and of the dark place. She sat up most nights, studying the shadows and the clouds as they passed over the stars. A line of moonlight crossed the courtyard below. She noted how it climbed the statues and the far gate wall, just like the creeping ivy. Once green, the plant was now a dreary red. It would go dormant, appearing to die, but would still hang on to the wall. It would continue its desperate grip on the stone even as it withered. For it, at least, there would be a spring. The hammering at her chamber door roused her. She turned, puzzled. No one ever knocked except for Gerald, who always used a light tap. Amelia came and went frequently, but never knocked. Whoever it was, they beat the door with a fury. The pounding landed harder, and with such violence that the door latch bounced with a distinct metallic clank as it threatened to break. It never occurred to her to ask who was there. It never crossed her mind to be fearful. She slid back the bolt, letting the door swing inward. Standing outside was a man she vaguely recognized. His face was flushed, his eyes glassy, and the collar to his shirt lay open. 
"'There you are!' he exclaimed. "'At long last I am rewarded with your presence. "'Permit me to introduce myself again, in case you've forgotten me. "'I am Archibald Ballantyne, Twelfth Earl of Chadwick.' "'He bowed low, taking an awkward step when he lost his balance. "'May I come in?' "'The Empress said nothing.' and the Earl took this as an invitation, pushing his way into the chamber. He held a finger to his lips. "'Shh! We need to be quiet, lest someone discover I'm here.' The Earl stood wavering, his glazed eyes canvassing the full length of Medina's small body. His mouth hung partially open, and his head moved up and down as if trying to save his eyes the effort. Modina was dressed only in her thin nightgown, but did not think to cover herself. You're beautiful. I thought so from the first. I wanted to tell you before this, but they wouldn't let me see you. The Earl pulled a bottle of liquor from his breast pocket and took a swallow. After all, I'm the hero of your army, and it isn't fair that Ethelred gets to have you. You should be mine. I earned you, the earl shouted, raising his fist. Pausing, he looked toward the open door. After a moment, he continued, What has Ethelred ever done? It was my army that saved Equesta and would have crushed Melangar if they had let me. But they didn't want me to. Do you know why? They knew if I took Melangar, then I would be too great to hold back. They're jealous of me, you know. And now Ethelred is planning to take you, but you're mine. Mine, I say. He shouted this last bit, then cringed. Once more he placed a finger to his lips. Shh. Modena watched the Earl with mild curiosity. How can you want him? He slammed his fist against his chest. Am I not handsome? Am I not young? He twirled around with his arms outstretched until he staggered. He steadied himself on the bedpost. Ethelred is old, fat, and has pimples. Do you really want that? He doesn't care about you. He's only after the crown. The earl took a moment to glance around the empty room. Don't get me wrong, he said in a harsh whisper. He leaned in so close he had to put a hand on her shoulder to steady himself. I want the crown, too. Anyone saying different is a liar. Who wouldn't want to be emperor of the world? But he held up a wavering finger. I would have loved you. He paused, breathing hotly into her face. He licked his lips and caressed her skin through the thin nightgown. His hand left her shoulder and inched up her neck, his open fingers slipping into her hair. Ethelred will never look at you like this. Archibald took her hand and placed it against his chest. His heart will never pound like mine just by being near you. I want power. I want the throne, but I also want you. He looked into her eyes. I love you, Modina. I love you. 
and I want you for my own. You should be my wife. He pulled her to him and kissed her on the mouth, pressing hard, pinching her lips to her teeth. She didn't struggle. She didn't care. He pulled back and searched her face. She didn't respond except to blink. Mazina, Amelia called, entering the room. What's going on? Nothing, Ballantyne said sadly. He looked at Modina. He searched her face again. Absolutely nothing at all. He turned and left the room. Are you all right? Amelia rushed to the Empress, brushing her hair back and looking her over. Did he hurt you? Am I to marry Regent Ethelred? Amelia held her breath and bit her lip. I see. When were you going to tell me? On my wedding night? I... I just learned about it recently. You had that incident in the kitchen and I didn't want to upset you. It doesn't upset me, Amelia. And thank you for stopping by. But I... Amelia hesitated. Is there something else? Ah... No, I just... You're different suddenly. We should talk about this. What is there to talk about? I'll marry Ethelred so he can be emperor. He'll still be empress. Yes, yes, there's no need to worry. I'm fine. You're never fine. No, it must be the good news that I'm to become a bride. Amelia looked terrified. Modina, what's going on? What's happening in that head of yours? Modina smiled. It's okay, Amelia. Everything will be fine. Stop using that word. You're really frightening me, Amelia said, reaching toward her. Modina pulled away, moving to the window. I'm sorry I didn't tell you myself. I'm sorry there was no guard at the door. I'm sorry you had to hear such a thing from the brandy-soaked breath of It's not your fault, Amelia. It's important to me that you know that. You're all that matters to me. It's amazing how worthless a life feels without someone to care for. My father understood that. At the time, I didn't. But now I do. Understand what? Amelia asked, shaking. That living has no value. It's what you do with life that gives it worth. And what are you planning to do with your life, Medina? Medina tried to force another smile. She took Amelia's head in her hands and kissed her gently. It's late. Goodbye, Amelia. Amelia's eyes went wide with fear. She began shaking her head faster and faster, no, 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 I'll stay here. I don't want you left alone tonight. As you wish. Amelia looked pleased for a moment. Then fear crept back in. Tomorrow I'll assign a guard to watch you. Of course you will, Modina replied. True to her word, Amelia remained in Modina's chamber all night, but slipped out before dawn while the Empress still slept. 
she went to the office of the master-at-arms and burst in on the soldier on duty, unannounced. Why wasn't there a guard outside the Empress's door last night? Where was Gerald? We couldn't spare him, milady. The Imperial Guard is stretched thin. We're searching for the witch, the Princess of Melangar. Regent Salder has commanded me to use every man I have to find her. I don't care. I want Gerald's back watching her door. Do you understand? But, my lady, last night the Earl of Chadwick forced his way into the Empress's room. In her room! Has it occurred to you, to anyone, that the witch might be coming to kill the Empress? A long pause. I didn't think so. Now get Gerald back on his post at once. Leaving the master at arms, Amelia roused Modina's chambermaid from her bunk in the dormitory. After the girl had dressed, she hurried her along to Modina's room. Anna, I want you to stay with the Empress and watch her. Watch her? What for? You mean, what should I be watching for, milady? Just make certain the Empress doesn't hurt herself. How do you mean? Just keep an eye on her. If she does anything odd or unusual, send for me at once. Medina heard Anna enter the room quietly. She continued pretending to sleep. Near dawn she stretched, yawned, and walked over to the wash basin to splash water on her face. Anna was quick to hand her a towel and grinned broadly to have been of assistance. Anna, is it? Modina asked. The girl's face flushed and her eyes lit up with joy. She nodded repeatedly. Anna, I'm starved. Would you please run to the kitchen and see if they can prepare me an early breakfast? Be a dear and bring it up when it's ready. I... I... Modina put on a pout and turned her eyes downward. I am sorry. I apologise for asking so much of you. Oh, no, your gloriousness. I'll get it at once. Thank you. You're most welcome, your worship. Modina wondered if she kept her longer, how many elaborate forms of address she might come up with. As soon as Anna left the room, Modina walked to the door closed it, and slid the deadbolt. She walked toward the tall mirror that hung on the wall, picking up the pitcher from the water basin as she passed. Without hesitation, she struck the mirror, shattering both. She picked up a long shard of glass and went to her window. "'Your Eminence?' Gerald called from the other side of the door. "'Are you all right?' Outside, the sun was just coming up. The autumn morning light angled in sharp, slanted shafts across the courtyard below. She loved the sun, and thought its light and warmth would be the only thing besides Amelia that she would miss. She wrapped her gown around the end of the long, jagged piece of glass. It felt cold. Everything felt cold to her. She looked down at the courtyard and breathed in a long breath of air scented with the dying autumn leaves. The guard continued to bang on the door. Your Eminence, he repeated. Are you all right? Yes, Gerald, she said. 
I'm fine. Arista entered the palace courtyard, walking past the gate guards, hoping they could not hear the pounding of her heart. This must be how Royce and Hadrian feel all the time. I'm surprised they don't drink more. She shook from both fear and the early morning chill. Ezra Hardin's robe had been lost the night of Hilfred's rescue, leaving her with only Lynette's kirtle. Hilfred, he'll be furious when he reads the note. It hurt her heart just to think of him. He had stood in her shadow for years, serving her whims, taking her abuse, trapped in a prison of feelings he could never reveal. Twice he had nearly died for her. He was a good man, a great man. She wanted to make him happy. He deserved to be happy. She wanted to give him what he never thought possible, to fix what she had broken. For three nights they had hid together, and every day Hilfred had tried to convince her to return to Melangar. At last she had agreed, telling him they would leave the next day. Arista had slipped out when Hilfred went to get supplies. If all went well, she would be back before he returned, and they could leave as planned. If not, if something happened, the note would explain. It had occurred to her, only the night before, that she had never cast the location spell in the courtyard. From there, the smoke would certainly locate the wing, and if lucky enough, she might even pinpoint Gaunt's window. The information would be invaluable to Royce and Hadrian and could mean the difference between a rescue and a suicide mission. And as much as she did not want to admit it, she owed Ezra Hardin as well. If doing this small thing could save Deacon Gaunt, a good man wrongly imprisoned, ease the wizard's passing, and vanquish her guilt, it would be worth the risk. The gate guards paid little attention when she had entered. She took this as a good sign that no one had connected Ella, the scrub girl, to the Witch of Melangar. All she needed to do now was cast the spell and walk out again. She crossed the inner ward to the vegetable garden. The harvest had come and gone, the plants were cleared, and the soil had been turned to await the spring. The soft earth would allow her to draw the circle and symbols required. She clutched a pouch of hair still in the pocket of her kirtle as she glanced around. Nothing looked amiss. The few guards on duty ignored her. As casually as she could, she began drawing a circle by dragging her foot in the dirt. When she had finished, she moved on to the more tedious task of the ruins, which was more time-consuming to do with her toe than with her hand and a bit of chalk. All the while she worried that her drawing would be obvious from any number of upper-story windows. She was just finishing the second-to-last rune when a guard exited the palace and walked toward her. Immediately she crouched, pretending to dig. If he questioned her, she could say that Iba sent her to look for potatoes, or that she thought she might have dropped the pantry key when she was in the courtyard. She hoped he would just walk by. She needed to be the invisible servant this one last time. It quickly became apparent that he was specifically coming for her. As he closed the distance, 
her only thought was of Hilfred, and how she wished she had kissed him goodbye. Amelia was in her office, quickly going over instructions with Nimbus. They had ticked off only a few items for the wedding preparations. If she could give him enough to keep busy, she could return to Medina. The urgency pulled at her every minute she was away. If you get done with that, then come see me and I'll give you more to do, she told him curtly. I have to get back to the Empress. I think she might do something stupid. Nimbus looked up. The Empress is a bit eccentric, certainly, but if I may, she has never struck me as stupid, my lady. Amelia narrowed her eyes at him suspiciously. Nimbus had been a good and faithful servant, but she did not like the sound of that. You notice too much, I think, Nimbus. That's not such a good trait when working in the Imperial Palace. Ignorance is perhaps a better choice for survival. I'm just trying to cheer you up, he replied, sounding a little hurt. Amelia frowned and collapsed in her chair. I'm sorry. I'm starting to sound a bit like Salder, aren't I? You still have to work on making your veiled threats sound more ominous. A deeper voice would help, or perhaps toying with a dagger, or swishing a glass of wine as you say it. I wasn't threatening you, I was... He cut her off. I am just joking, my lady. Amelia scowled, then pulled the parchment off her desk, crumpled it into a ball, and threw it at him. Honestly, I don't know why I hired you. Not for my comedy, I sense. Amelia gathered a pile of parchments, a quill, and a bottle of ink, and headed for the door. I'm going to be working from Medina's room today. Look there if you need me. Of course, he said as she left. Not far down the hall, Amelia saw Anna walking by with a tray of food. Anna, she called, rushing toward her. I told you to stay with the Empress. Yes, milady, but... But what? The Empress asked me to fetch her some breakfast. A cold chill shot up Amelia's spine. The Empress had asked her. Has the Empress ever spoken to you before? On the verge of tears, Anna shook her head. No, milady. I was very honoured. She even knew my name. Amelia raced for the stairs, her heart pounding. Reaching the top and nearing the bedchamber, she feared what she would find. Nimbus was right, perhaps more than he knew. Medina was not stupid, and Amelia's mind filled with the many terrible possibilities. Arriving at the door, she pushed Gerald aside and burst into the Empress's room. She steeled herself, but what she saw was beyond her wildest imaginings. Modena and Ella sat together on the Empress's bed, hand in hand, chatting. Amelia stood still, shocked. Both glanced up as she entered. Ella's face was fearful, but Modena's expression was calm, as usual, as if expecting her. Ella! Amelia exclaimed. What are you doing? Gerald! Modena interrupted. From now on, no one, and I mean no one, is to enter without my say-so, understood? Of course, your eminence. 
Gerald looked down guiltily. Medina waved her hand. It's not your fault. I didn't tell you. Now, please close the door. He bowed and drew the door shut. Amelia, meanwhile, stood silent. Her mouth was agape, but no words came out. Sit down before you fall down, Amelia. I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. This is Arista, the Princess of Malangar. Amelia tried to make sense out of the senselessness. No, Medina, this is Ella, a scrub girl. What's going on? Amelia asked desperately. I thought... I thought you might be... Her eyes went to the broken pitcher and shards of mirrored glass scattered across the corner of the room. I know what you thought, the Empress said, looking toward the window. That's another reason you should be welcoming Arista. If I hadn't seen her in the courtyard and realised... Well, anyway, I want you two to be friends. Amelia's mind was still whirling. Modina appeared more lucid than ever, yet she made no sense. Maybe she only sounded rational. Maybe the Empress had cracked altogether. At any moment, she might introduce Red, the elkhand from the kitchen, as the ambassador of Langsteer. Mazina, I know you think this girl is a princess, but just a week ago you also thought you were dead and buried, remember? Are you saying you think I'm crazy? No, no, I just... Lady Amelia, Ella spoke for the first time. My name is Arista Esendon, and I am the Princess of Melangar. Your Empress isn't crazy. She and I are old friends. Amelia stood staring at the two of them, confused. Were they both insane? How could... Oh, sweet Maribor, it's her! The long fingernails, the way she met Amelia's stare... The bold inquiries about the Empress. Ella was the Witch of Melangar. Get away from her, Amelia yelled. Amelia, calm down. She's been posing as a maid to get to you. Arista's not here to harm me. You're not, are you? She asked Ella, who shook her head. There, you see. Now come here and join us. We have much to do. Thrace, Ella spoke, looking nervously at Modina. The Empress raised a hand to stop her. The both of you need to trust me, Medina said. Amelia shook her head. But how can I? Why should I? This, this woman. Because, the Empress interrupted, we have to help Arista. Amelia would have laughed at the absurdity if Medina had not looked so serious. In all the time she had taken care of her, Amelia had never seen her so focused, so clear-eyed. She felt out of her element. The hazy Modena was gone, but she was still speaking nonsense. She had to make her understand for her own good. Modena, guards are looking for this woman. They've been combing the city for days. That's why she's going to stay here. It's the safest place. Not even the regents will look for her in my bedroom. And... It'll make helping her that much easier. Helping her? Helping her with what? Amelia was nearly at the end of her own sanity, just trying to follow this absurd conversation. 
we're going to help her find Deegan Gaunt, the true heir of Navran. Chapter 14 Calais The port of Dagestan surprised first-time visitors from Avron, who thought of everywhere else as less civilized or uncultured. Calais was generally held, by those who had never been there, to be a crude, ramshackle collection of tribal bands living in mud or wooden huts with a dense and mysterious jungle. It shocked most when they first laid eyes on the massive domes and elegant spires rising across the coast. The city was astonishingly large and well-developed. Stone and grey brick buildings sat densely packed on a graduated hillside rising from the elegant harbour that put Equesta's wooden docks to shame. Here, four long stone piers stretched into the bay, along which stately towers rose at regular intervals, facilitating the needs of the bustling trade centre. Masts of more than a hundred ships, nearly all of them exotic merchant vessels, lined the harbour. Hadrian remembered the city the moment it came into view. The heat of the ancient stones, the spice-scented streets, the exotic women, all memories of an impetuous youth that he preferred to forget. He had left the East behind without regret, and it was not without reservations that he found himself returning. No bells rang in the towers along the harbour as they entered. No alarm signalled as the blood-red sails of their Dhaka-built tartan entered the port. A pilot boat merely issued out and hailed them at their approach. Endildual Londuklim, the pilot called to them. I can't understand you, Wesley replied. What's name of your vessel? A name of captain, the pilot repeated. Oh, ah, uh, it doesn't have a name, I'm afraid, but my name is Wesley Belstrad. The pilot jotted something on a handheld tablet, frowning. Where are you outing from? We are the remaining crew of the Emerald Storm, her Imperial Eminence's vessel out from the capital city of Equesta. What your business, and how long staying will you be? We are making a delivery. I am not certain how long it will take. The pilot finished asking questions and indicated they should follow him to a berth. Another official was waiting on the dock and asked Wesley to sign several forms before he would allow anyone to set foot on land. According to Seward's orders, we are to contact a Mr. Dilladrum. I will go ashore and try to locate him, Wesley announced. Mr. Demonthal, you and Seaman Stahl will accompany me. Seaman Blackwater, you will be in charge here until my return. See to it that the stores are secured and the ship buttoned down. Aye, sir, Hadrian saluted. The three disembarked and disappeared into the maze of streets. Wonderful luck we've had in picking up survivors, eh? Hadrian mentioned to Royce as he met his partner on the raised aft deck of the ship. The others remained at the waist or the bow, staring in fascination at the port around them. There was a lot to take in. Unusual sounds drifted from the urban landscape, the jangle of bells, the ringing of a gong, shouts of merchants in a strange musical language, and above it all the haunting voice of a man singing in the distance. 
Dock workers moved cargo to and from ships. Most were dressed in robes with vertical stripes, their skin a tawny brown, their faces bearded. Bolts of shimmering silk and sheer cloth waited to be loaded, as did urns of incense and pots of fragrant oil, whose scents drifted on the harbor breeze. The stone masonry of the buildings was impressive. Intricate designs of flowers and geometric shapes adorned nearly all the constructions. Domes were the most common architectural style, some inlaid with gold, others in silver or in colorful tiles. The larger buildings displayed multiple domes, each featuring a central spire pointing skyward. For the first time in three days, they had found an opportunity to speak alone. I thought you showed great restraint, and I was impressed with your diplomatic solution to our little civil war, Hadrian told Royce. I'm just watching your back, like Gwen asked. Royce took a seat on a thick pile of netted ropes. It was a stroke of brilliance appointing Wesley, Hadrian remarked. Wish I had thought of it. I like that boy. Did you see the way he picked Stahl and Wyatt to go with him? Wyatt knows the docks, and Stahl knows the language and possibly the city. Perfectly sensible choices— but they're also the two who would make the most trouble out of his sight. He's a lot more like his brother than he thinks. It's a shame they were born in Chadwick. Ballantyne doesn't deserve them. It's not looking good. You know that, right? Royce asked. What with the weapons and Merrick's payment going down with the storm, and everyone in charge now dead? I don't see where we go from here. Adrian took a seat on the railing beside Royce. Water lapped against the wooden hull of the tartan, and seagulls cried overhead. But we still have Merrick's orders and that letter. What did it say? I didn't read it. Weren't you the one who called me stupid because I never had a chance? Wyatt grabbed them first. Then there was this little incident with a burning ship and lots of swimming. Now Wesley has them and he's hardly slept. I've not had an opportunity. Then we'll have to stick to that letter until either you get a chance to take a peek or we solve this riddle. I mean, what is the Empire doing sending weapons to Calais when they need them to fight the Nationalists? Maybe bribing Calais to join the fight on their side? Hadrian shook his head. Renyard could beat them in a war all by itself. There's no organization down here, no central authority, just a bunch of competing warlords. The whole place is corrupt, and they constantly fight each other. There's no way Merrick could convince enough leaders to go fight for the new empire. Most of these warlords have never even heard of Averon. And what's with the elves? What were they doing with them? I have to admit, I'd like to know that myself, Royce said. Hadrian's glance followed Thranic as he came topside, and lay among the excess canvas at the bow, his hood pulled down to block the light, his arms folded across his chest. He almost looked like a corpse in need of a coffin. Hadrian gestured toward the sentinel. So, what's going on between you and Thranic anyway? He appears to really hate you, even more than most people. Royce didn't look in his direction. He sat nonchalantly, pretending to ignore the world, as if they were the only two aboard. 
Funny thing, that. I never met him, never heard of him until this voyage, and yet I know him rather well, and he knows me. Thank you, Mr. Ezra Harden. Can you provide me with perhaps a more cryptic answer? Roy smiled. I see why he does it now. It's rather fun. I'm also surprised you haven't figured it out yet. Figured what out? Our boy Thranic has a nasty little secret. It's what makes him so unpleasant, and at the same time so dangerous. He would have killed Wyatt, might even have given you a surprise or two. With Stall added to the mix and Bernie slinking about, it wasn't a battle I felt confident in winning, even if I didn't have Gwen's voice echoing in my head. You aren't going to tell me, are you? What would be the fun in that? This will give you something to do. You can try to guess, and I can amuse myself by insulting your intelligence. I wouldn't take too long, though. Thranic is going to die soon. Wesley returned and trotted up the gangway to address them. I want volunteers to accompany me. Sentinel Thranic, Mr. Bullard, Dr. Levy and Seaman Stall and Defoe inland. We will be travelling deep into the Calais jungles. The journey will not be without significant risks, so I won't order anyone to follow me who doesn't want to go. Those who choose to stay behind will remain with the ship. Upon my return, we will sail for home, where you will receive your pay. Where in the jungle are you headed, Mr. Wesley? Banner asked. I must deliver a letter to Randabon Gill, who I am informed is a warlord of some note in these parts. I have met with Mr. Dilladrum, who has been awaiting our arrival, and has a caravan prepared and ready to escort us. Gill's fortress, however, is deep in the jungles, and contact with the Baran Gazelle is likely. Now, who is with me? Hadrian, who was one of the first to raise his hand, found it strange that he was among the majority. Wyatt and Poe did not surprise him, but even Jacob and Grady joined in after seeing the others. Only Grieg and Banner abstained. "'I see,' Wesley said with a note of surprise. "'All right, then. Banner, I'll leave you in charge of the ship.' "'What are we going to do while you're gone, sir?' Banner asked. Nothing, he told them. Just stay with the ship and out of the city. Don't cause any trouble. Banner smiled gleefully at Grieg. So we can just sleep all day if we want. I don't care what you do, as long as you protect the ship and don't embarrass the Empire. Both of them could hardly contain their delight. I'll bet the rest of you are wishing you hadn't raised your hands now. You realize there's only about a week's worth of rations below, right? Wyatt mentioned. You might want to eat sparingly. A worried look crossed Banner's face. You're gonna hurry back, right? Wesley led them off the ship and into the city, setting a brisk pace and keeping a sharp eye on the line of men. The old man, Anton Bullard, was the only straggler, but this had more to do with his age than his wounds, which had turned out to be only superficial cuts. Loud-coloured tents and awnings lined the roads of Dagestan from the harbour to the square. 
Throngs filled the paved pathways as merchants shouted to the crowds, waving banners with unrecognizable symbols. Old men smoked pipes beneath the shelter of striped canopies as scantily dressed women with veiled faces stood provocatively on raised platforms, gyrating slowly to the beat of a dozen drummers, bell-ringers, and cymbal-players. There was too much happening to focus on any single thing. Everywhere one looked there were dazzling colours, tantalising movements, intoxicating scents, and exciting music. Overwhelmed, the little parade of sailors marched in step with Mr. Wesley as he led them to their promised guide. He and his team were waiting along a paved avenue not far from the city's grand bazaar. Dillardrum looked like an overweight beggar. His coat and dark breeches were faded and poorly patched. Long, dirty hair burst out from under a formless felt hat as if in protest. His beard, equally mismanaged, showed bits of grass nestled in its snarls. His face was dusky and his teeth yellow, but his eyes sparkled in the afternoon sun. He stood on the roadside before a train of curious beasts. They appeared to be shrunken, shaggy horses. The animals were loaded with bundles and linked together by leads from one to the next. Six short, half-naked men helped Dillardrum keep the train under control. They wore only breechcloths of loose linen and clattering necklaces of coloured stones. Like Dillardrum, they grinned brightly at the sailor's approach. "'Welcome, welcome, gentlemen,' he warmly addressed them. "'I am Dillardrum, your guide. Before we leave our fair city, Perhaps you would like some time to peruse our fine shops. As per previous arrangements, I and my Vintu friends will be providing you with food, water, and shelter, but we'll be many days afield, and as such, some comforts as could be obtained in the bazaar might help make your trek more pleasant. Consider our fine wines, liquors— or perhaps an attractive slave girl to make the camps more enjoyable. A few eyes turned appraisingly toward the shops, where dozens of colorful signboards advertised in a foreign tongue. Music played, strange twanging strings and warbling pipes. Hadrian could smell lamb spiced with curry, a popular dish, as he recalled. We will leave immediately, Wesley replied, louder than was necessary for merely Dillardrum to hear him. "'Suit yourself, good sir,' the guide shrugged sadly. He made a gesture to his Vintu workers, and the little men used long switches and yelping cries to urge the animals of the caravan forward. As they did, one spotted Hadrian and paused in his work. His brows furrowed as he stared intently, until a shout from Dillardrum sent him back to herding. "'What was that all about?' Royce asked. Hadrian shrugged, but Royce looked unconvinced. "'You were here for, what, five years? Anything happen? Anything you want to share?' "'Sure,' he replied with a sarcastic grin. "'Right after you fill me in on how you escaped from Manzant prison and why you never killed Ambrose Moore.' Sorry I asked. I was young and stupid, 
Hadrian offered. "'But I can tell you that Wesley is right about the jungle being dangerous. "'We'll want to watch ourselves around Gill.' "'You met him?' Hadrian nodded. "'I've met most of the warlords of the Garum, "'but I'm sure everyone's forgotten me by now.' "'As if overhearing, "'the train worker glanced over his shoulder at Hadrian once more. "'Everywhere landward from Dagestan is uphill.' Dillardrum was saying, as the troop walked along the narrow dirt path through farmlands dotted by domed grass huts. That is the way of the world everywhere, is it not? From the sea we always need to go up. It makes the leaving that much harder, but the returning that much more welcome. They walked two abreast, with Wesley and Dillardrum, Wyatt and Poe, Royce and Hadrian in front, while Thranic's group followed behind the Vintu and the beasts. Having Thranic and his crew behind them was disconcerting, but it was better than walking with them. Dillardrum set a brisk pace for a portly little man, stepping lively and thrusting his bleached walking-stick out with practised skill. He bent the brim down on his otherwise shapeless hat to block the sun, making him look comical even while Hadrian wished he had a silly-looking hat of his own. "'Mr. Dillardrum, what exactly are your instructions concerning us?' Wesley inquired. "'I am contracted to safely deliver officers, cargo, and crew of the Emerald Storm to the Palace of the Four Winds in Durgaron. "'Is that the residence of Arandabon Gill?' "'Ah, yes, the fortress of the Panther of Durgaron.' "'Panther?' Wyatt asked. Dillardrum chuckled. "'It's what the Vintu call the warlord. "'They're a very simple folk, but very hard workers, as you can see. "'The Panther is a legend among them.' "'A hero?' Wesley offered. "'A Panther is not a hero to anyone. "'A Panther is a great cat that hides himself in the jungle.' He's a ghost to those who seek him, deadly to those he hunts, but to those he doesn't he's merely a creature deserving of respect. The panther does not concern himself with the Vintu, but stories of his valor, cruelty, and cunning reach them. You are not Vintu? No, I'm Erbonese. Erbon is a region to the northwest, not far from Mandolin. And the Tenkin? Wesley asked. Is the warlord one of them? Dillardrum's expression turned dark. Yes, yes. The Tenkin are everywhere in these jungles. He pointed to the horizon ahead of them. Some tribes are more welcoming than others. Not to worry, my Vintu and I know a good route. We'll pass through one Tenkin village, but they're friendly and familiar to us. Like the one you call Stall, yes? We'll make it safely. As they climbed higher, they entered a great plain of tall grass that swayed enchantingly in the breeze. Climbing a large rock, they could see for miles in all directions except ahead, where a tall forested ridge rose several hundred feet. 
They made camp just before sundown. Hardly a word passed between Dilladrum and the Vintu, but they immediately went to work setting up decorative tents with embroidered geometric designs and neatly bordered canopies. Cots and small stools were put out for each, along with sheets and pillows. Cooked in large pots over an open fire, the evening meal was strong and spicy enough to make Hadrian's eyes water. He found it tasty and satisfying after weeks of eating the same tired pork stew. The Vintu took turns entertaining. Some played string instruments similar to a lute. Others danced, and a few sang lilting ballads. The words Hadrian couldn't understand, but the melody was beautiful. Animal calls filled the night. Screeches, cries, and growls threatened in the darkness, always too loud and too close. On their third day out, the landscape began to change. The level plains tilted upward, and trees appeared more frequently. The forests that had lined the distance were upon them, and soon they were trudging under a canopy of tall trees whose massive roots spread out across the forest floor like the fingers of old men. At first it was good to be out of the sun, but then the path became rocky, steep, and hard to navigate. It didn't last long as they soon crested a ridge and began a sharp descent. On the far side of the ridge they could see a distinct change in the flora. The undergrowth thickened, turning a deeper green. Larger leaves, vines, thickets of creepers, and needle-shaped blades encroached on the track, causing the Vintu to occasionally move ahead and chop a path. The next day it began to rain— and while at times it poured and at others it only misted, it never ceased. They always seem content, don't they? Hadrian mentioned to Royce as they sat under the canopy of their tent, watching the Vintu preparing the evening meal. It could be blazingly hot or raining like now, and they don't seem to care one way or the other. Are you now saying we should become Vintu? Royce asked. I don't think you can just apply for membership into that tribe. I think you need to be born into it. What's that? Wyatt asked, coming out of the tent the three shared, wiping his freshly shaved face with a cloth. Just thinking about the Vintu, and living a simple existence of quiet pleasures, Hadrian explained. What makes you think they're content? Royce asked. I found that when people smile all the time, they're hiding something. These Vintu are probably miserable, economically forced into relative slavery, catering to wealthy foreigners. I'm sure they would smile just as much while slitting our throats to save themselves another day of hauling Dilladrum's packs. I think you've been away from Gwen too long. You're starting to sound like the old Royce again. Across the camp they spotted Stahl, Thranic, and Defoe. Stahl waved in their direction and grinned. See? Big grin, Royce mentioned. Fun group, eh? Adrian muttered. Yeah, they're a group, aren't they? Royce nodded thoughtfully. 
Why would a sentinel, a Tenkin warrior, a physician, a thief, and whatever the heck Bullard is, go into the jungles of Calais to visit a Tenkin warlord? And what's Bullard's deal? Wyatt and Hadrian shrugged in unison. Isn't that a bit odd? We were all on the same ship together for weeks, and we don't know anything about the man beyond the fact that he doesn't look like he's seen the sun in a decade. Perhaps if we found out, it would provide the common connection between the others and this Arandabon fellow. Barney and Bullard share a tent, Hadrian pointed out. Hadrian, why don't you go chat with Bullard? Roy said. I'll distract Bernie. What about me? Wyatt asked. Talk with Durning and Grady. They don't seem as connected to the others as I first thought. Find out why they volunteered. The Vintu handed out dinner, which the storm's crew ate sitting on stools the Vintu provided. Dinner consisted mostly of what appeared to be shredded pork, and an array of unusual vegetables in a thick, hot sauce that needled the tongue. After the meal, darkness descended on the camp, and most retired to their tents. Anton Bullard was already in his, just like he always stayed in his cabin aboard ship. The light in Bullard and Bernie's tent flickered, and the silhouettes of their heads bobbed about, magnified on the canvas walls. A few hours after dark, Bernie stepped out. An instant later, Royce swooped in. "'How you been, Bernie?' Royce greeted him. "'Going for a walk?' "'Actually, I was about to find a place to relieve myself.' "'Good. I'll go with you.' "'Go with me?' he asked nervously. I've been known to help people relieve themselves of a great many things. Royce put an arm around Bernie's shoulder, and he urged him away from the tents. Once more Bernie flinched. A little jumpy, aren't we? Royce asked. Don't you think I have good reason? Royce smiled and nodded. You have me there. I honestly still can't figure out what you were thinking. The two were outside of the circle of tents, well beyond the glow of the campfire, and still Royce urged him farther away. It wasn't my idea. I was just following orders. Don't you think I'd know better than to— Whose idea was it? Bernie hesitated only a moment. Thranic, he said, then hastily added, But he just wanted you bloodied. Not dead, just cut up. Why? Honestly, I don't know. They stopped in a dark circle of trees. Night frogs croaked hesitantly, concerned by their presence. The camp was only a distant glow. Care to tell me what all of you are doing here? Bernie frowned. You know I won't, even to save my life. It wouldn't be worth it. But you told me about Thranic. I don't like Thranic. So he's not the one you're afraid of. Is it Merrick? Merrick? Bernie looked genuinely puzzled. Listen, 
I never faulted you for Jade's death, or the war you waged on the diamond. Merrick should have never betrayed you like that, not without first hearing your side of it. Royce took a step forward. In the darkness of the canopy, he was certain Bernie could barely see him. Royce, on the other hand, could make out every line on Bernie's face. What's Merrick's plan? I haven't seen Merrick in years. Royce drew out his dagger and purposely allowed it to make a metal scraping sound as it came free of its scabbard. So, you haven't seen him. Fine. But you're working for him, or someone else who's working for him. I want to know where he is and what he's up to, and you're going to tell me. Bernie shook his head. I... I really don't know anything about Marius or what he's doing nowadays. Royce paused. Every line on Bernie's face revealed he was telling the truth. What have we here? Thranic asked. A private meeting? You've strayed a bit far from camp, dear boys. Royce turned to see Thranic and Stahl. Stahl held a torch, and Thranic carried a crossbow. It's not safe to venture too far away from your friends. Or didn't you think about that, Royce? Thranic said, then fired the crossbow at Royce's heart. Anton Bullard, isn't it? Hadrian asked, sticking his head in the tent. Hmm? Anton looked up. He was lying on his stomach, writing with a featherless quill worn to only a few inches in length. He had on a pair of spectacles, the top of which he peered over. Why, yes, I am. The old man was more than just pale. He was white. His hair was the colour of alabaster, while his skin was little more than wrinkled quartz. He reminded Hadrian of an egg, colourless and fragile. I wanted to introduce myself. Hadrian slipped fully inside. All this time at sea, and we've never had the opportunity to properly meet. I thought that was unfortunate. Don't you? Why, I... Who are you again? Hadrian. I was the cook on the Emerald Storm. Ah, uh, well, I hate to say it, Hadrian, but I wasn't impressed with your cooking. Perhaps a little less salt and some wine would have helped. Not that this is any great feast, he said, gesturing toward his half-eaten meal. I'm much too old for such rich foods. It upsets my stomach. What are you writing? Oh, this. Just notes, really. My mind isn't what it once was, you see. I'll forget everything soon, and then where will I be? A historian who can't remember his own name. It really could come to that, you know, assuming I live that long. Bernie keeps reassuring me I won't live out this trip. He's probably right. He's the expert on such things, after all. Really? What kind of things? Oh, spelunking, of course. I'm told Bernie is an old hand at it. 
We make a good team, he and I. He digs up the past, and I put it down, so to speak. Anton chuckled to himself until he coughed. Hadrian poured the man a glass of water, which he gratefully accepted. After he had recovered, Hadrian asked, Have you ever heard of a man called Merrick Marius? Bullard shook his head. Not unless I have, and then forgotten. Was he a king or a hero, perhaps? No, I actually thought he might have been the man who sent you here. Oh, no. Our mandate is from the Patriarch himself, though Sentinel Thranic doesn't tell me much. I'm not complaining, mind you. How often does a priest of Meribor have the opportunity to serve the Patriarch? I can tell you precisely. Twice. Once when I was so much younger, and now that I'm nearly dead. I thought you were a historian. You're also a priest. I know I don't look much like one, do I? My calling was the pen, not the flock. You've written books, then? Oh, yes. My best is still The History of a Peladorn, which I'm constantly having to append, of course. I know a monk at the Winds Abbey who'd love to meet you. Is that up north, in Melancar? I passed through there once, about twenty years ago. Anton nodded thoughtfully. They were very helpful. Saved my life, if I recall correctly. So, you're on this trip to record what you see? Oh, no, that's only what I've been doing so far. As you can imagine, I don't get out much. I do most of my work in libraries and stuffy cellars, reading old books. I was in Tor del Ford before setting off on this wonderful trip. This has been an excellent opportunity to record what I see firsthand— the Patriarch knows about my research on ancient imperial history, and that's why I'm here. Sort of a living, breathing version of my books, you see. I suppose they think that if they put in the right questions, out will pop the correct answers, like an oracle. Hadrian was about to ask another question when Grady and Poe poked their heads in. Hadrian! Poe caught his attention. Well... Isn't my tent the social centre tonight? Anton remarked. I'm kind of busy at the moment. Can this wait? Hadrian asked. I don't think so. Thranic and Stahl just followed Royce and Bernie into the jungle. Royce heard the click of the release and began to move even before the hiss of the string indicated the missile's launch. Still, his reflexes could not move faster than a flying bolt. The metal shaft pierced his side below the ribcage. The impact thrust him backward, where he collapsed in pain. Lucky we found you, Bernie, Thranic told the startled thief as he moved away from Royce's body. He would have killed you. Isn't that what you said bucket men do? Now, don't you feel foolish for saying I couldn't protect you. You could have hit me, Bernie snapped. Stop being so dramatic. You're alive, aren't you? Besides, I heard the conversation. 
It didn't take much for you to give me up. In my profession, lack of faith is a terrible sin. In mine, it's all too often justified, Bernie snarled back. Get back to the camp before you're missed. Bernie grumbled as he trotted back up the path. Thranic watched his retreat. We might have to do something about him, the sentinel told the Tenkin. Funny that you, my heathen friend, should be my stalwart ally in all this. Bernie, me thinks too much. Me, I am just greedy and therefore trustworthy. We going to just leave the body? No, it's too close to the path we'll be taking tomorrow, and I can't count on the animals eating him before we break camp. Drag him away. A few yards should be enough. Royce! Hadrian shouted from behind them on the trail. Quickly, you idiot, they're coming. Stahl rushed forward and, planting his torch in the ground, lifted Royce and ran with him into the jungle. He had travelled only a few dozen yards when he cursed. Royce was still breathing. Izuto! the Tenkin hissed, drawing his dagger. Too late, Royce whispered. Hadrian led them into the trees, the way Royce had gone earlier. Ahead he spotted the glow of a torch and ran toward it. Behind him, Wyatt, Poe, Grady, and Durning followed. There's blood here, Hadrian announced, when he got to the burning torch thrust in the ground. Royce! Spread out, Wyatt ordered. Sweep the grass and look for more blood. Over here! Durning shouted, moving into the ferns. There, up ahead. Two of them, Stahl and Royce. Hadrian cut his way through the thick undergrowth to where they lay. Royce was breathing hard, holding his blood-soaked side. His face was pale, but his eyes remained focused. How you doing, buddy? Hadrian asked, dropping to his knees and carefully slipping an arm under his friend. Royce didn't say anything. He kept his teeth clenched, blowing his cheeks out with each breath. Get his feet, Wyatt, Hadrian ordered. Now lift him gently. Poe, get out front with the torch. What about Stahl? Durning asked. What about him? Hadrian glanced down at the big tenkin, whose throat lay open, slipped from ear to ear. When they returned to camp, Wesley ordered Royce to be taken to his tent, which was the largest, originally reserved for Captain Seward. He started to send Poe for Dr. Levy, but Hadrian intervened. Wesley appeared confused, but as Hadrian was Royce's best friend, he didn't press the issue. The Vintu were surprisingly adept at first aid, and under Hadrian's watchful eye, they cleaned and dressed the wound. The bolt, aimed at Royce's heart, had entered and exited cleanly. He suffered significant blood loss, but no organ damage nor broken bones. The Vintu sealed the tiny entry hole without a problem. The larger tearing of his flesh at the exit was another matter. It took a dozen bandages and many basins of water before they got the bleeding under control, and Roy lay sleeping calmly. 
Why wasn't I notified about this? I'm a physician for Maribor's sake. Hadrian stepped outside the tent flap to find Levy arguing with Wyatt, Poe, Grady, and Durning, who, at Hadrian's request, guarded the entrance. Ah, Dr. Levy, just the man I wanted to see. Hadrian addressed him. Where's your boss? Where's Thranic? Levy did not need to answer, as across the camp Thranic walked toward them alongside Wesley and Bernie. Hadrian drew his sword at their approach. Put away your weapon, Wesley ordered. This man nearly killed Royce tonight, Hadrian declared, pointing at Thranic. That's not the way he tells it, Wesley replied. He said Seaman Melbourne attacked and murdered Seaman Stahl over accusations regarding Seaman Drew's death. Mr. Thranic and Seaman Defoe claim they were witnesses. We don't claim anything. We saw it, Thranic said coolly. And how do you claim this took place? Hadrian asked. Stahl confronted Royce, telling him he was going to Wesley with evidence. Royce warned him that he would never live to see the dawn. Then, when Stahl turned to walk back to camp, Royce grabbed him from behind and slit his throat. Bernie and I expected such treachery from him, but we couldn't convince Stahl not to confront the blackguard, so we followed. I brought a crossbow, borrowed from Dilladrum's supplies, for protection. I fired in self-defense. He's lying, Hadrian declared. Oh, were you there? Thranic asked. Did you see it happen as we did? Funny. I didn't notice your presence. Royce left the camp with Bernie, not Stahl, Hadrian said. Thranic laughed. Is that the best you can come up with? to save your friend from a noose. Why not say you saw Stahl attack him unprovoked, or me, for that matter? I saw Royce leave with Bernie too, and Thranic and Stahl followed after them, Wyatt put in. That's a lie, Bernie responded, convincingly offended. I watched Royce leave with Stahl. Thranic and I followed. I worked the topmast with Royce, I was there the night Edgar Drew died. Royce was the only one near him. They were having an argument. You saw how agile he is. Drew never had a chance. Why didn't you report it to the captain? Durning asked. I did, Bernie declared. But because I didn't actually see him push poor Drew off, he refused to do anything. How convenient that Captain Seward is too dead to ask about that, Wyatt pointed out. Thranic shook his head with a pitiful smile. Now, Wesley, will you actually take the word of a pirate and a cook over the word of a sentinel of the Nephron Church? Your Excellency, Wesley said, turning to face Thranic, you will address me as... Mr. Wesley, or Sir, is that understood? Thranic's expression soured. And I will decide whose word I will accept. As it happens, I am well aware of your personal vendetta against Seaman Melbourne. 
Midshipman Beryl tried to convince me to bring false charges. Well, sir, I did not buckle to Beryl's threats, and I'll be damned if I will be intimidated by your title. Damned is a very good choice of words, Mr. Wesley. Sentinel Thranic, Wesley barked at him. Be forewarned that if any further harm befalls Seaman Melbourne that is even remotely suspicious, I will hold you responsible and have you executed by whatever means are at hand. Do I make myself clear? You wouldn't dare touch an ordained officer of the Patriarch. Every king in Avron, why, the regents themselves would not oppose me. It's you who should be concerned about execution. Wyatt, Grady, and Durning drew their blades, and Hadrian took a step closer to Thranic. "'Stand down, gentlemen!' Wesley shouted. At this order, they paused. "'You're quite correct, Sentinel Thranic. Your office does influence how I treat you. Were you an ordinary seaman, I would order you flogged for your disrespect.' I am well aware that upon our return to Aquesta you could ruin my career, or perhaps have me imprisoned or hanged. But let me point out, sir, that Aquesta is a long way from here, and a dead man has difficulty requesting anything. It would be in my best interest, therefore, to see you executed here and now. It would be a simple matter to report you and Seaman Defoe lost to the dangers of the jungle. Bernie looked worried, and took a subtle step away from Thranic's side. "'I would have thought I could rely on your family's famous code of honor," Thranic said in a sarcastic tone. "'You can, sir, and you are, as indeed that is all that keeps you alive at this moment. It is also what you can count on to have you executed should you threaten Seaman Melbourne again. Do I make myself clear? Thranic fumed but said nothing. He simply turned and walked away, with Bernie following. Wesley exhaled loudly and straightened his vest. How's he doing? he asked Hadrian. Sleeping at the moment, sir. He's weak, but should recover. And thank you, sir. For what? Wesley replied. I have a mission to accomplish, Seaman Blackwater. I cannot have my crew killing one another. Seaman Durning and Grady, take a few others and bring Mr. Stoll's body back to camp. Let us not leave him to the beasts of this foul jungle. Chapter 15 The Surge I think I saw him. Arista woke at the sound. Disoriented, she didn't know where she was at first. Turning over, she found Thrace illuminated by a streak of moonlight. The Empress was dressed in her wispy, thin nightgown, which fluttered in the draught. She stood straight, hair loose, eyes lost to a vision beyond the window's frame. Nearly a week had passed since Gerald had invited Arista to the Empress's bedroom, and she wondered if being here was a sign that she was on the right path. If fate could speak, surely this would be how it would sound. Thrace saw to her safety, guarding her like the mother of a newborn. 
soldiers stood outside her door at all times, now in pairs, with strict orders to prevent the entry of anyone without permission. Only Amelia and Nimbus ever entered the chamber, and even they knocked. At Thrace's urging, Nimbus carried messages to Hilfred. In her nightgown, Thrace looked almost like the girl from Dahlgren, but there was something different about her, akin to sadness, yet lacking even the passion for that. Often she would sit and stare at nothing for hours, and when she spoke, her words were dull and emotionless. She never laughed, cried, or smiled. In this way she appeared to have successfully transformed from a lively peasant girl into a true empress, serene and unflappable. Yet at what cost? It was late like this, Thrace said, looking out the window. Her voice sounded disconnected, as if she was in a trance. I was having a dream, but a squeaking noise woke me. I came to the window, and I saw them. They were in the courtyard below. Men with torches, as many as a dozen, wheeled in a sealed wagon. They were knights, dressed in black and scarlet armor, like those we saw in Dahlgren. They spoke of the man inside the box as if he were a monster, and even though he was hooded and chained, they were afraid. After they took him away, the wagon rolled back out of the courtyard. Thrace turned to face her. I thought it was a dream until just now. I have a lot of unpleasant dreams. How long ago did this happen? Three months, perhaps more. Shivering, Arista sat up. The fire had long since died, and the stone walls did nothing to keep the chill out. The window was open again. Regardless of what time of day it was, or how cold the temperature, Thrace insisted. Not with words, she rarely spoke, but each time Arista closed the window, the girl opened it again. That would coincide with Gaunt's disappearance. You never heard anything else about this prisoner? No, and you would be surprised how much you hear when you're very quiet. Thrace, come. The sudden tilt of Modena's head and the curious look on her face stopped Arista. No one calls me that any more. Shame. I've always liked the name. Me too. Come back to bed. You'll catch a cold. Thrace walked toward her, looking at where the mirror had once hung. I'll need to get a new mirror before winter tide. Dawn brought breakfast and morning reports from Amelia and Thrace's tutor. Nimbus was bright-eyed and cheery, bowing to both, a courtesy Amelia refused to extend to Arista. The chief imperial secretary looked haggard. The dark circles under her eyes grew deeper each day. Holding her jaw stiff and her fists clenched, she glared at Arista eating breakfast in Thrace's bed. Despite Amelia's obvious contempt, Arista could not help liking her. She recognized the same fierce protectiveness that Hilfred exhibited. They've stopped the search for the Witch of Melangar, Amelia reported, looking coldly at Arista, 
They think she's headed to either Melangar or Ratabor. Patrols are still out, but no one really expects to find her. What about where Deegan Gaunt might be held? Arista asked. Amelia glanced at Nimbus, who stepped up. Well, my research at the Hall of Records is inconclusive. In ancient imperial times, Equesta was a city called Ryanillion, and a building of some significance stood on this site. Ironically, several parchments refer to it as a prison, but it was destroyed during the early part of the civil wars that followed the death of the last emperor. Later, in 2453, Glenmorgan I built a fortress here as a defence against rebellions. That fortress is the very palace in which we now stand. None of the histories mention anything about a dungeon. Odd, given the unrest. I've made a detailed search of nearly every section of the palace, interviewed chambermaids, studied old maps and plans, but I haven't uncovered a single mention of any kind. What does the quest to do with criminals? Arista asked. There are three jails in the city that deal with minor offences, and the Warwick prison in Whitehead for harsher cases that don't result in execution. And then there is the infamous Manzant prison and salt mine in Maranon for the most severe crimes. Perhaps it's not a dungeon or prison at all, Arista said. Maybe it's merely a secret room. I suppose I could make some inquiries along those lines. What is it, Amelia? Thrace asked, catching a thoughtful look on her secretary's face. What? Oh, nothing. Amelia's expression switched to one of annoyance. This is very dangerous. Asking all these questions and nosing about. It's risky enough ordering extra food with each meal. Someone will notice. Solder's not a fool. But what were you thinking just now, Amelia? Thrace repeated. Nothing. Amelia? The secretary frowned. I just... Well, a few weeks ago you talked about a dark hole. You think I was there? In this dungeon? Don't, Medina. Don't think about it, Amelia begged. You're too fragile. I have to try. If I can remember, you don't have to do anything. This woman, she comes here. She doesn't care about you or what might happen. All she cares about is herself. You've done more than enough. If you won't turn her in, at least let me get her out of here and away from you. Nimbus and I... No, Thrace said softly. She needs us, and I need her. Dirt, Thrace said, and shivered. Arista looked over. She was in the midst of trying to determine how to finish her latest letter to Hilfred when she heard the word. The Empress had knelt before the open window since Amelia and Nimbus had left, but this was the first she had spoken. Damp, cold, terrible cold, and voices, I remember them, cries and weeping, men and women, screams and prayers. Everything was dark. Thrace wrapped her arms around herself and began to rock. Splashing, I remember splashing. A hollow sound, creaking, a whirl and a splash. Sometimes 
There were distant, echoing voices coming from above, falling out of a tunnel. The walls were stone, the door wood. A bowl, yes, every day a bowl. Soup that smelled bad. There was so little to eat. Thrace rocked harder, her voice trembling, her breath hitching. I could hear the blows and cries, men and women, day and night, screaming for mercy. Then I heard a new voice added to the wailing, and realised it was my own. I killed my family. I killed my brother, his wife, and little Hickory. I destroyed my whole village. I killed my father. I was being punished. Thrace began to cry. Arista moved to her, but the girl jumped at her touch and cowered away. Crawling against the wall and sobbing, she rubbed the stone with her hands, wetting it with her tears. Fragile, Arista thought. Thrace had taken a blow that would have killed most people. No matter what Amelia believed, Thrace was not fragile. Yet even granite would crack if you hit it with a big enough hammer. Are you all right? Arista asked. No. I keep searching, but I can't find it. I can't understand the sounds. It's so familiar, and yet... She trailed off and shook her head. I'm sorry. I wanted to help. I wanted... It's okay, Thrace. It's okay. The Empress frowned. You have to stop calling me that. She looked up at her. Thrace is dead. Chapter 16 The Village It was perpetually twilight. The jungle's canopy blocked what little sunlight managed to penetrate the rain clouds. A hazy mist shrouded their surroundings and intensified the deeper they pressed into the jungle. Exotic plants with stalks the size of men's legs towered overhead. Huge leaves, adorned with intricate patterns and vibrant flowers of purple, yellow, and red, surrounded the party. It all left Hadrian feeling small, shrunken to the size of an insect, or crawling across the floor of a giant's forest. Rain constantly plagued them. Water danced on a million leaves, sounding like thunder. When actual thunder cracked, it was the voice of a god. Everything was wet. Clothes stuck to their skin and hung like weights. Boots squished audibly with every step. Their hands were wrinkled like those of old men. Royce rode on the back of a gongguan, what the Vintu called the pack ponies. He was awake, but weak. A day had passed since the attack, because Wesley had insisted on burying Stahl. The new captain had proclaimed he wouldn't allow the beasts to have a taste of any of his crew, and he insisted on a deep grave. No one had complained about the strenuous work of cutting through the thick mat of roots, Hadrian doubted Wesley really cared about the fate of Stahl's carcass, but the work granted Royce time to rest, kept the crew busy, and affirmed Wesley's commitment to them. 
Hadrian thought once again about the similarities between the midshipman and his famous brother. Royce travelled wrapped in his cloak, with the weight of the rain collapsing the hood around his head. Not a good sign for Thranic and Burney. Until then, Royce had played the part of the good little sailor, but with the re-emergence of the hood and the loss of his white kerchief, Hadrian knew that role had ended. They hadn't spoken much since the attack. Not surprisingly, Royce was in no mood for idle discussion. Hadrian guessed that by now his friend had imagined killing Thranic a dozen times, with a few burnies thrown in here and there for variety. Hadrian had seen Royce wounded before, and was familiar with the cocooning. Only what would emerge from that cloak and hood would not be a butterfly. Thranic, Defoe, and Levy travelled at the end of the train, and Hadrian often caught them whispering. They wisely kept their distance, avoiding attention. Wesley led the party along with Dilladrum, who made a point of not taking sides or venturing anything remotely resembling an opinion. Dilladrum remained jolly as always, and focused his attention on the Vintu. Hadrian was most surprised with Durning. When Royce had been most vulnerable, his shipboard nemesis had come to his aid rather than taking advantage. Hadrian would have bet money that on the subject of Royce's guilt, Durning would have sided with Thranic. Wyatt had never had the chance to find out his reason for volunteering, but now more than ever Hadrian was convinced Durning was not part of Thranic's band. There was no doubt that Anton Bullard was a member of Thranic's troop, but the old man lacked the ruthlessness of the others. He was merely a resource. After showing an interest, Hadrian became Bullard's new best friend. Look, look there! Bullard pointed to a brilliant flower blooming overhead. The old man took to walking beside Hadrian, sharing his sense of discovery along the way. Gorgeous! Simply gorgeous! Have you ever seen the like? I dare say I haven't. Still, that isn't saying much now, is it? Bullard reminded Hadrian of a long-haired cat with his usually billowing robe and fluffy white hair deflated in the rain, leaving a remarkably thin body. He held up a withered hand to protect his eyes as he searched the trees. Another one of those wonderful long-beaked birds, the historian said. I love the way they hover. Hadrian smiled at him. It's not that you don't mind the rain that amazes me. It's that you don't seem to notice it at all. Bullard frowned. My parchments are a disaster. They stick together. The ink runs. I haven't been able to write anything down. And, as I mentioned at our first meeting, my head is no place to store memories of such wonderful things. It makes me feel like I've wasted my life locked in dusty libraries and scriptoriums. Don't do what I did, Hadrian. You're still a young man. Take my advice. Live your life to the fullest. Breathe the air, taste the wine, kiss the girls, and always remember that the tales of another are never as wondrous as your own. I'll admit I was, well, concerned about this trip. No, 
I said truthfully. I was scared. What does a man my age have to be afraid of, you wonder? Everything. Life becomes more precious when you have less of it to spare. I'm not ready to die. Why, look at all that I've never seen. You've seen horses before, known women, right? Hadrian asked with a wry grin. Ballard looked at him curiously. I'm a historian, not a monk. Hadrian nearly tripped. I realize I don't look it now, but I was quite handsome once. I was married three times, in fact. Outlived all of them, poor darlings. I still miss them, you know. Each one. My silly little mind hasn't misplaced their faces, and I can't imagine it ever will. Have you ever been in love, Hadrian? I'm not sure. How do you tell? Love? Why, it's like coming home. Hadrian considered the comment. What are you thinking? Bullard asked. Hadrian shook his head. Nothing. Yes, you were. What? You can tell me. I'm an excellent repository for secrets. I likely forget, but if I don't, well, I'm an old man in a remote jungle. I'm sure to die before I can repeat anything. Hadrian smiled, then shrugged. I was just thinking about the rain. The trail widened, revealing a great cascading waterfall and a dozen grass-thatched buildings clustered at the centre of a small clearing. The dome roof huts rested on high wooden stilts and were accessed by short stairs or ladders, depending on the size and apparent prestige of the structure. Occupying the very centre of the clearing was a fire pit, surrounded by a ring of colourfully painted stones and wooden poles decorated in animal skins, skulls, and strings of bones, beads, and long, vibrant feathers. The inhabitants were dark-haired, dark-eyed, umber-skinned men and women dressed in beautifully painted cloths and silks. They paused as Dillardrum advanced respectfully. Elder men met him before the firing, where they exchanged bows. Who are these people, do you suppose? Bullard asked. Tenkins, Hadrian replied. Bullard raised his eyebrows. The village was familiar to Hadrian, though he had never been there. Hundreds of similar ones were scattered across the peninsula, mirror images of each other. The rubble of eastern Calais was the last standing residue of the old empire. After civil wars had torn apart the west, Calais still flew the old imperial banners and for centuries formed the bulwark against the advancing gazelle horde. Time, however, was on the gazelle's side. The last of the old world died when the ancient eastern capital, Erlinius, fell to the goblin horde sweeping through the jungles. They might have overrun all of Averon, if not for Glenmorgan III. Glenmorgan III had rallied the nobles and defeated the goblins at the Battle of Villan Hills. The gazelle fell back, but were never driven off the mainland. Betrayed shortly after his victory, Glenmorgan III never finished his work of re-establishing the kingdom's borders.
This task fell to lesser men, who squabbled over the spoils of war and were too distracted to stop the gazelle from digging in. Erlinius, the last great city of the old empire, remained in the hands of the gazelle, and Calais had never been the same. Fractured and isolated, the eastern half of the country struggled against the growing pressure of the gazelle nation in the maelstrom of chaos and confusion. Self-appointed warrior kings fought against each other. Out of desperation, some enlisted the aid of the gazelle to vanquish a rival. Ties formed, lines blurred, and out of this tenuous alliance were born the Tenkin, humans who had adopted the gazelle's ways, traditions, and beliefs. For this, Calaeans ostracized the Tenkin, forcing their kind deeper into the jungles, where they lived on the borderlands between the anvil and the hammer. Dilladrum returned. This is the village of Uduro. I've been here many times. Although Tenkin, they're a friendly and generous people. I've asked them to let us rest here for the night. Tomorrow morning we'll push on toward the Palace of the Four Winds. Beyond this point, travel will be much harder and unpleasant, so we'll need a good night's rest. I must caution you, however— Please do nothing to offend or provoke these people. They're courteous, but can be fierce if roused. The physical appearance of the Tenkin always impressed Hadrian. Stahl was a crude example of his kin, and these men were more what he remembered. Lean, bronzed muscles and strong facial features that looked hewn from blocks of stone were the hallmarks of the Tenkin warrior. Like the great cats of the jungle, they had bodies graceful in their strength and simplicity. The women were breathtaking. Long, dark hair wreathed sharp cheekbones and almond eyes. Their satin-smooth skin enveloped willowy curves. The civilized world never saw Tenkin women. A closely guarded treasure, they never left their villages. The inhabitants showed neither fear nor concern at the procession of the foreigners. Most observed their arrival with silent curiosity. The women showed more interest, pressing forward to peer and talking among themselves. "'I thought Tenkins were grotesque,' Bullard said with the casual manner and volume of a man commenting on animals. "'I had heard they were abominations of nature,' But these people are beautiful. A common misconception, Hadrian explained. People tell tales that Tenkin are the result of interbreeding between Calaeans and Gazelle. But if you ever saw a goblin, you'd understand why that's not possible. I guess you can't believe everything you read in books. But don't spread that around, or I'll be out of a job. When they reached the village centre, the Vintu went about their work and began unpacking. They moved with stoic familiarity. The party waited, listening to the hiss of rain on the fire and the murmur of the crowd gathering around them. With an expectant expression, Dilladrum struggled to see over their heads. He exchanged looks with Wesley, but said nothing. Soon, 
a small, elderly Tenkin dressed in a leopard wrap, entered the circle. His skin was like wrinkled leather, and his hair like grey steel. He walked with a slow dignity and upturned chin. Dillardrum smiled, and the two spoke rapidly. Then the elderly Tenkin clapped his hands and shouted. The crowd fell back, and he led the crew of the Emerald Storm into the largest of the buildings. It had four tree-sized pillars, holding up a latticework of intertwined branches overlaid with thatch. The interior lacked partitions and stood as an open hall lined with tanned skins and pillows made from animal hides. Waiting inside were four tenkins. Three men and a woman sat upon a raised mound covered in luxurious cushions. The leopard-clad guide bowed deeply to the four, then left. Outside, the rain increased and poured off the thatched roof. Dillardrum stepped forward, bowed with his hands clasped before him, and spoke in Tenkin, which was a mix of the old imperial tongue and gazelle. Hadrian had mastered a working knowledge of the language, but the isolation between villages had caused each to develop a slightly different dialect. While Hadrian missed a number of Dillardrum's words, he recognized that formal introductions were being made. This is Burandu, Dillardrum explained to the Emerald Storm's crew in a Pelanese. He is elder. Dillardrum paused to think, then added, Similar to the lord of a manor, but not quite. Beside him is Joktan, his warlord, chief knight, if you will. Zulron is Udoro's Oberdaza. He gestured at a stunted, misshapen Tenkin, the only deformed one Hadrian had ever seen. The closest thing to his office in Averon might be a chief priest as well as doctor, and next to him is Fan Erlanu. You have no equivalent position for her. She is a seer, a visionary. Welcome, peoples of Great Avron. Barandu spoke haltingly in Apollonese. Despite his age, betrayed only by a head of startling white hair, he looked as strong and handsome as any man in the village. He sat adorned in a silk waistcloth and kilt, a broad necklace of gold, and a headdress formed from long, brightly coloured feathers. We are pleased to have you in our home. Thank you, sir, for granting us an invitation, Wesley replied. We enjoy company of those Diladrom brings. Once brothers in ancient days, is good to sit, to listen, to find each other. Come, drink, and remember. Zulran cast a fine powder over a brazier of coals. Flames burst forth, illuminating the lodge. They all sat amid the pillows and hides. Royce found a place within the shadows against the rear wall. As always, Thranic and Bernie kept their distance from the rest of the party. They sat close to the four Tenkins, where the sentinel watched Zulron with great interest. Bullard invited Hadrian to sit beside him. This explains a great deal, said the old man, pointing to the decorations in the hut. 
These are people lost in time. Do you see those decorated shields hanging from the rafter with the oil lamps? They used to do that in the ancient imperial throne room, and the leaders mirror the imperial body, represented by a king and his two counsellors, always a wizard and a warrior. Although the seer is probably an addition of the gazelle influences, she's lovely. Hadrian had to agree. Fan Irlanu was stunning, even by Tenkin standards. Her thin silk gown embraced her body with the intimacy of liquid. Food and wine circulated as men carried in jugs and platters. After eating, Burandu said to Wesley, I ask you, Dilidrum and your second, to meet at my Durbo. I discuss recent news on the road ahead. I fear the beasts are loose, and you must be careful. You tell me of road just travelled. Wesley nodded with a mouthful of food, then, after swallowing, added, Of course, you're... Uh, he hesitated before simply adding, Sir. Ballard looked with suspicion at the sliced meat set before him. Hadrian chuckled, watching the old man push it around his plate. It's pork. Wild pigs thrive in these jungles, and the Tenkin hunt them. You'll find it a little tougher and gamier than what you're used to back home, but it's good. You'll like it. How do you know so much about them? The old man asked. I lived in Calais for several years. Doing what? You know, I still ask myself that. Hadrian stuffed a hunk of pork in his mouth and chewed, but Ballard's expression showed he did not understand. At last Hadrian gave in. I was a mercenary. I fought for the highest bidder. You seem ashamed. Ballard tried a bit of fruit and grimaced. The mercenary profession has a long and illustrious history. I should know. My father never approved of me using my training for profit. In a way, you might say he thought it was sacrilegious. I didn't understand then, but I do now. So, were you any good? A lot of men died. Battles are sometimes necessary, and men die in war. It happens. You have nothing to be ashamed of. To be a warrior and live is a reward Merabor bestows on the virtuous. You should be proud. Except there was no war, just battles. No cause, just money. No virtue, just killing. Ballard wrinkled his brows as if trying to decipher this, and Hadrian got up before he could think of anything else to ask. When the meal was over, three Tenkin boys held large palm branches over the heads of Burandu, Wesley, Dilidrum, and Wyatt, as they ventured out into the rain. With the elder gone, formalities relaxed. The Vintu headed out to resume camp preparations before all daylight was lost. Across the hall, Thranic and Levy spoke quietly with the Obedaza, Zulron, and all three left together. Poe, Durning, and Grady helped themselves to a jug of wine and reclined casually on the pillows. 
Hadrian went over to sit beside Royce. Want to try the wine? It's not time for drinking yet, the hood replied. How you feeling? Not good enough. You need to get the dressing on your wound changed. It can wait. Wait too long and it'll fester. Leave me alone. You should at least eat. The pork is good. Best meal you'll have for a while, I think. It'll help you heal. There was no reply. They sat listening to the wind and rain on the grassy roof and low conversations punctuated by the occasional laugh and clink of ceramic cups. Are you aware you're being watched? Royce asked. The Tenkin on the dais, the one Dilladrum called Jokdan, the warlord. He's been staring at you since we entered. Do you know him? Hadrian looked at the bald, muscular man wreathed in a dozen bone necklaces. Never seen him before. The woman next to him? She looks oddly familiar. She looks like Gwen. That's it. You're right. She does look like her. Is Gwen from... I don't know. I just assumed she was from West Bung. Everyone in Averon who's from Calais is from there. But she could be from a village like this, huh? Adrian chuckled. What an odd pairing you two make. Maybe Gwen's from this very village. That could be her sister up there, or cousin. You might be meeting the bride's family before the wedding, just like a proper suitor. You should brush your hair and take a bath. Make a good enough impression, and the two of you could settle down here. You'd look good bare-chested in one of those kilts. Hadrian expected a cutting retort. All he heard from his friend was a harsh series of breaths. Looking over, he noticed the hood was drooping. Hey, you're really not doing too good, are you? The hood shook. Hadrian placed a hand on Royce's back. His cloak was soaked and hot. Damn it. I'll convince Wesley to extend our stay. In the meantime, let's get you dry and in a bed. With a flaming brand, the Oberdaza led Thranic and Levy toward a cliff wall at the edge of the village where the great waterfall thundered. Somehow, even the plunging water felt foul as it splattered against rocks, casting a damp mist. Thranic continually wiped the tainted wet from his face. Everything about the village was evil. Everywhere stood signs that these humans had turned their backs on Novran and embraced his enemy. The hideous feathers they wore, the symbolic designs in the pillows, the tattoos on their bodies. They didn't whisper, but rather shouted their allegiance to Uberlin. Thranic couldn't imagine a greater blasphemy, and yet the others were blind to their transgressions. Given the opportunity, Thranic would burn the whole village to ash and scatter the remains. He had tried to prepare himself for what to expect even before the Emerald Storm set sail, but now, surrounded by their poison, he longed to strike a blow for Novron. While he could not safely put a torch to this nest of vipers, there was another profanity he could rectify. 
one that these worshippers of Ubalan might even assist him with. The power the Obadaza used to ignite the braziers had caught his attention. The Tenkin witch doctor was also an alchemist. Zulron was not like the rest of the heathens. He lacked their illusionary facade, their glimmer of false beauty. One leg was shorter than its partner, causing Zulron to shuffle with a noticeable limp. One shoulder rode up, hugging his chin, while the other slipped low, dangling a weak and withered arm. He was singular in his wretched appearance, and his honest display of his evil made him more trustworthy than the rest. As they reached the waterfall, Zulron led them along a narrow path around the frothing pool to a crack in the cliff face. Within the fissure was a cave. Its ceiling teemed with chattering bats, and its floor was laden with guano. This is my storeroom and workshop, Zulron explained as he pushed deeper into the cavern. It stays cooler here and is well protected from wind and rain. And what prying eyes can't see, Thranic added, guessing at the truth of the matter. Years of dealing with tainted souls had left him with an understanding of evil's true nature. Zulron paused only briefly to cast a glance over his low-slung shoulder at the sentinel. You see more clearly than the rest of your brethren. And you speak a Polonese better than yours. I'm not built for hunting. I rely on study and have learned much about your world. This is disgusting, Levy grimaced, carefully picking his path. Yes, the Obadaza agreed. He walked through the guano as if it were a field of spring grass. But these bats are my gatekeepers, and their soil my moat. Soon the cave grew wide and the floor cleared of filth. In the center of the cavern was a domed oven built of carefully piled stones. Surrounding it were dozens of huge clay pots, bundles of browned leaves, and a vast pile of poorly stacked wood. On shelves, carved from the stone walls, rested hundreds of smaller ceramic jars and a variety of stones, crystals, and bowls. Zulron reached into one of the pots and threw a handful of dust into the mouth of the oven. He thrust his torch at the base, and a fire roared to life, which he then fed with wood. When the oven was sated, and he had finished lighting a number of oil lamps, he continued to Levy. Let me see it. The doctor set his pack on the floor and withdrew the bundle of bloody rags. Zulron took the bandages and studied each, even holding them to his nose and sniffing. And you say these belong to the hooded one among you? It's his blood? Yes. How was he wounded? I shot him with a crossbow. 
Zulron showed no surprise. Did you not wish him dead, or are you a poor hunter? He moved. Zulron raised a dark brow. He is quick? Yes. Sees well in the dark? Yes. And you came by ship, yes. How did he fare on the water? Poorly. Very sick for the first four days, I hear. And his ears, are they pointed? No. He has no elven features. This is why we need you to test the blood. You know the method? The Obadaza nodded. Thranic felt a twinge of regret that this creature was so unworthy to Novron. He sensed a kinship of minds. How long? Zulron rubbed the crusted bandages between his fingers. Days with this. It is too old. If we had a fresh sample, it could be quick. Getting blood from him is nearly impossible, Levy grumbled. I will start the test with these, but I'll also see what I can do to get fresh blood. He will need treatment soon. Treatment? The jungle does not abide the weak or the wounded for long. He will summon me or die. How much gold will you want? Thranic asked. Zulron shook his head. I have no need for gold. What payment, then? My reward will not come from you. I will reap my own reward, and it is no concern of yours. The Tenkin granted them the use of three sizable huts, and Wesley divided his crew accordingly. The accommodations were surprisingly luxurious— subdivided by walls of wide-woven ribbons that gave the impression of being inside a basket. Carpets of tight-threaded fibres inlaid with beautiful designs covered the floor. Peanut-shaped gourds hung from the rafters, burning oil that provided more than enough light. Having convinced Wesley to linger in the village, Hadrian watched over Royce, who looked worse with each passing hour. Royce's skin burned, and sweat poured down his forehead, even as he shivered beneath two layers of blankets. "'You need to get better, pal,' Hadrian told him. "'Think of Gwen. Better yet, think what she'll do to me if I come back without you.' There was no reaction. Royce continued to shiver, his eyes closed. "'May enter?' a soft voice asked. Hadrian could see only the outline in the doorway, and for an instant he thought it was Gwen. He grows worse, but you refused Zulron to see him. Your Obadaza has been keeping close company with the man who nearly killed my friend. I don't feel comfortable letting Zulron treat him. Will allow me. Am not skilled like Zulron, but know some things. Hadrian nodded and waved her in. "'Am Fan Irlanu,' she said, dipping her head into the hut while, outside, two other women waited in the rain with covered baskets. 
I'm Hadrian Blackwater, and this is my friend, Royce. She nodded, then knelt beside Royce and placed a hand to his forehead. He has fever. She motioned for the oil lamp, and Hadrian pulled it down, then helped her open Royce's cloak and pull back his tunic to reveal the stained bandage, which she carefully removed. Erlanu grimaced as she peeled back the cloth and studied the wound. She shook her head. It is the Sherlam Kath, she said, pressing lightly on the skin around the wound, causing Royce to flinch in his sleep. See here. She scraped a long nail across the edge of the bloody wound and drew away a squirming parasite the size of a coarse hair. It twisted and curled on her fingertip. They are eating him. Fan Irlanu waved to the women outside, who entered and deposited their baskets beside her. She spoke briefly in Tenkin, ordering them to fetch other items which Hadrian was unfamiliar with, and the two dashed from the hut. Can you help him? The woman nodded as she took out a stone mortar and began crushing bits of what looked to be dirt, leaves, and nuts with a pestle. They common here with open wounds. Left alone, Sherlomkath will devour him. He dies soon without help. I make poison for the Sherlomkath. One of the women returned with a gourd and an earthen pot, in which Fan Irlanu mixed the contents of her mortar with oil, beating it until she had a thick, dark paste which she spread over Royce's wound, packing it into the puncture. They turned him over and did the same to the exit wound. Then she placed a single, large, foul-smelling leaf over each, and together they wrapped him in fresh cloth. Royce barely woke during the procedure. Groggy and confused, he soon passed out once more. Fan Erlanu covered Royce back up with the blankets and nodded approvingly. He will get better now, I think. I brew drinks. More poison for Sherlomkath, and the tea for strength. When he wakes, make him drink both, eh? Then he feel better much faster. Adrian thanked her. As she left, he wondered why Royce always attracted beautiful women when he was near death. When Royce woke the next morning, the fever was gone, and he was strong enough to curse. According to him, the draught Fan Irlanu had provided tasted worse than fermented cow dung, but he actually liked the tea. The following day, he was sitting up and eating. By the third, he was able to walk, unassisted, to the communal ostrium for his meals. No one complained about the delay, because the rain continued. Seeing Royce in the ostrium that morning, Grady winked and asked Hadrian if it might be possible for Royce to have a relapse. "'He is good?' Fan Irlanu asked, coming to them after the evening meal had concluded. Her movement was entrancingly graceful, her dress glistening like oil in the lamplight. All eyes followed her. "'No, but he's feeling a lot better,' Hadrian replied. His mischievous grin left a puzzled expression on her face. 
My language is perhaps not... I'm very good, thank you, Royce told her. Apparently, I owe you my life. She shook her head. Repay me by getting strong. Ah, uh, but I do have a favor to ask your friend Heydri on. Jokdan, warlord of the village, asks that he speak with you at the Sarap. Me? Hadrian asked, looking across to where the man in the bone necklaces sat. Is it all right if Royce joins us? I'd like to keep an eye on him. But of course, if he is up to it. Hadrian helped Royce to his feet, and as the rest watched with envious stares, the two followed Fan Irlanu out of the Austrium. The sun had not yet set, but for what little light the jungle permitted, it might just as well have. Oil lamps hung from branches, illuminating the path, decorating the village like a summer's rule festival. The rain still poured, so they left the lodge under the protection of palm branches. Hadrian knew Sarap translated to meeting place or talking place. In this case, it was a giant Uduro tree, from which, he had recently learned, the village took its name. The tree was not as tall as it was round. Great green leaves thrived on many of its branches, despite the centre of the trunks being completely hollow. The space within provided shelter from the rain, and was large enough for the four of them. A small, ornately decorated fire pit dominated the centre of the floor and glowed with red coals. Around this they took seats on luxurious pillows of silk and satin. The interior walls were painted with various ochre and umber dyes smeared into the wood, apparently by stained fingers. The images depicted men and animals, twisted shapes of strange visions. There were also mysterious symbols and swirling designs. Illuminated by the glowing coals, the interior of the tree was eerily talismanic, creating a sensation that left Hadrian on edge. Jokdan was already there. He had not waited for a boy with the palms, and his bare head and chest were slick with rain. They all exchanged bows respectfully. Pleased I am, Jokdan greeted them. Mine speech is, uh, not good as the learned. I, warrior, do not speak to outsiders. You are... He paused for a moment, thinking hard. Special. Am honored. Welcome you to Udoro, Galanti. I... He paused, thinking again, and quickly became frustrated and turned to Fan Irlanu. The warlord Jockton regrets that the language skills are not good enough to honor you, and he asks that I speak words. Fan Irlanu told them as she removed her wet wrap. He says that he saw you fight in the arena at Drogbon. He has never forgotten it. To have such a legend here is great honor. 
You do not wear the laurel, so he thinks you do not wish be recognized. He has asked you here to pay proper respect in private. Hadrian glanced briefly at Royce, who remained silent but attentive. Thank you, he told Jockton. And he's right. I would prefer not to be recognized. Jockton begs permission to ask a question of the great Galanti. He would like to know why you left. Adrian paused only a moment, then replied, It was time to seek new battles. The warlord of Udoro nodded as Fan Irlanu translated his words. At that moment, something about Fan Irlanu caught Royce's attention, and he rapidly approached her. She didn't move, although, given the ominous manner of his advance, Hadrian guessed that most anyone else would have taken a step back. "'Where did you get that mark on your shoulder?' Royce asked, indicating a small, swirling tattoo. "'That is mark of a seer,' Zulran declared, startling all of them as he entered. Unlike the other men of the village, Zulran wore a full robe, Made from a shimmering cloth, it was open enough for them to see his misshapen body, covered in strange tattoos. The one that spread across his face resembled the web of a spider. Fan Irlanu is a vision walker, he explained, staring admiringly at her. It is a talent and a gift bestowed by Uberlin upon those endowed with the hot blood of the gazelle. Few are born each age, and she is very powerful. She can see the depths of a heart and the future of a nation. He paused to run his fingers gingerly down the side of her cheek. She can see all things except her own destiny. You don't suffer from a language barrier, I see, Hadrian said. Zulran smiled. I am the Oberdaza. I know the movement of the stars in the Baran and the books of your world. All mysteries are revealed to me. Is it true that you are a visionary? Royce asked Fan Irlanu. She nodded. With the burning of Tulan leaves, I... Give him a demonstration, Zulron interrupted, causing her to look sharply at him. Read this one's future, he said, gesturing toward Royce. A puzzled look crossed her face, but she nodded. Jokdan put a firm hand to Zulron's shoulder and spun him around, but he spoke too quickly for Hadrian to understand. The two argued briefly, but all he caught was one word of Zulron's reply. Important. When Zulron turned back, his eyes fell on Hadrian, who he openly studied. So, you are the legendary Galanti. He raised an eyebrow. Looking at you, I would say Jokdan is mistaken. But I know Jokdan is never mistaken. Still, you don't look like the tiger of Mandalin. 
I'd thought you would be much bigger. He turned abruptly back to Fan Irlano. The leaves, burn them. As Fan Irlanu moved to a stone box, Zulron asked them to take seats around the glowing coals of the firing. Hadrian took Royce aside. Perhaps we should go. I can't say I like Mr. Witch Doctor's attitude much. Seems like he's up to something. The fact that he's spending time with Thranic doesn't help. Royce glanced at Fan Irlanu. No, I want to stay. What's all this about? The tattoo. Gwen has the same one. Reluctantly, Hadrian sat. Fan Irlanu returned with several large dry leaves. Even withered and brittle, they were a brilliant shade of red. She held them over the coals and muttered something while crushing the leaves and letting them fall onto the embers. Instantly, a thick, white smoke billowed. It didn't rise, but pooled and drifted. Fan Irlanu used her hands to contain the smoke, wafting it, scooping it, swirling it into a cloud before her. Then she bent and breathed in the ashen mist. Repeatedly she swept the smoke and inhaled deeply. The last of the leaves burned away, and the smoke faded. Fan Irlanu's eyes closed, and she began swaying on her knees, humming softly. After a few minutes, she reached out her hands. Touch her, Zulran instructed Royce. Royce hesitated briefly. He looked at her the way Hadrian had seen him eye an elaborate lock. The greater the potential treasure behind the door, the more tension showed in Royce's eyes, and at that moment he looked as if Fan Irlanu might hold the secret to a fortune. He reached out his fingers. At his touch, she took hold of him. There was a pause, and then Fan Irlanu began to moan and finally shake her head, slowly at first, but faster and faster the longer she held on. Her mouth opened and she groaned the way one might in a nightmare, struggling to speak but unable to form words. She jerked, her eyes shifting wildly under closed lids, her voice louder but saying nothing distinguishable. Jockdan's face was awash with concern, making Hadrian wonder if something was wrong. Fan Irlanu continued to struggle. Jockdan started to move, but a quick glare from Zulron held him back. At last the woman screamed and collapsed on the pillows. Leave her alone! Zulron shouted in Tenkin. Jockdan ignored him, rushing to her side. Fan Irlanu lay on the ground, thrashing. She cried out and then became still. Jockdan clutched her, whispering in her ear. He held her head and placed a hand near her mouth to feel for breath. You've killed her! he shouted at Zulron. Without another word, he lifted the seer in his arms and ran out into the rain. What's going on? What's happening? Hadrian asked. Your friend is not human, the Oberdaza declared. Zulron stepped up to face Royce. Why are you here? We're part of the crew of the Emerald Storm. 
on our way to deliver a message to the Palace of the Four Winds. Hadrian answered for him. Zulron did not take his eyes off Royce. For three thousand years the ancient legends have told of the Day of Reckoning, when the shadow from the north will descend to wash over our lands. Durning, Grady, Poe, and Bullard entered. What's going on? Durning asked. We heard a woman scream and saw the big guy carrying her away. There was an accident, Hadrian explained. Both Durning and Grady immediately looked at Royce. We don't know what happened to her, Hadrian continued. She was doing a kind of spiritual demonstration, reading Royce's fortune or something, and she collapsed. She collapsed, Durning said. She was breathing Tulan leaf smoke. Maybe it was a bad batch. Zulran ignored their conversation and continued to glare at Royce. The gazelle legend preserved by oral memory from the time of the first gazelle Dara tells of death and destruction, revenge unleashed, the old ones coming again. I have seen the signs myself. I watch the stars and know. To the north there have been rumblings. Estramnadon is active and Avimparta has been opened. Now, here is an elf in my village, where one has never walked before. An elf? Durning asked, puzzled. That is what killed Fan Irlanu, Zulran told them. Nor at the very least has driven her insane. What? Hadrian exclaimed. It's not possible to use the sight on an elf. The lack of a soul offers up only infinity. For her, it was like walking off a bottomless cliff. If she lives, she will never be the same. You're the village healer. Shouldn't you be trying to help her? He wants her dead. Royce finally spoke. Then, looking at Zulron, he added, You knew. What did he know? Bullard asked, tense but fascinated. Grady and Durning also leaned forward. You knew I was Elven, didn't you? But you told her, no, coerced her to do a reading, Royce said. Outside there were sounds of commotion, running feet and raised voices. Hadrian heard Wesley saying something over the heated shouts of Tenkins. Why did you want her dead? I did nothing. You are the one that killed her, and killing a member of the village, especially a seer, is an unpardonable crime. The punishment is death. Zulran gave a smile before stepping outside. The rest of them followed to find a gathering crowd. There he is, Thranic shouted the moment Royce stepped out of the tree. He pointed and said, There's your elf. I warned you about him. He has slain our seer, Fan Irlanu, Zulran announced, and repeated it in Tenkin. 
Barandu, Wesley, and Wyatt pushed their way through the mob. "'Is this true?' Wesley asked quickly, his voice nervous. "'Which?' Royce asked. "'Are you an elf, and did you just kill Fan Irlanu?' "'Yes, and I'm not sure.' The crowd grew, and Hadrian could pick out words such as justice, revenge, and kill among the many Tenkin shouts. "'By Mar, man!' Wesley said fiercely but quietly to Royce. "'What is it with you? I should let you hang just for the amount of trouble you've caused.' He took a breath. The crowd pressed in. Lightning flashed overhead while thunder boomed. "'What do you mean when you say you're not sure?' Wesley asked. He was speaking quickly, wiping the rain from his face. "'The murderer must pay for his crime, Borando,' Zulron declared in Tenkin. "'His stallessness has killed our beloved fan Irlanu. The law demands justice.' "'Where is Jokdan?' Borando asked. "'Paying his last respects to his dead would-be wife.' If he was here, he would agree. He lies. Zulron is to blame. Hadrian spoke in Tenkin, which drew surprised looks from everyone. What are they saying? Wesley asked Hadrian. The Obadaza is pushing for our deaths, and Borandu is buying it. Bring them all, Borandu shouted. The warriors of the village descended. Hadrian considered for a moment whether he should draw his swords, but decided against it. He shot a look at Royce to indicate he should not resist. They were driven to the village centre, where Dilladrum was shouting, "'Let go of me! What are you doing?' When he saw Wesley, he asked, "'What did you do? I told you not to offend them!' "'We didn't offend them,' Hadrian explained. "'We killed their beloved seer.' What? Dilladrum looked as if he was about to faint. Actually, it's a misunderstanding, but I'm not sure we'll get the chance to explain, Wesley put in. At least Thranic will die with us, Royce said loud enough for the sentinel to hear. A martyr's death is a fair price to rid the world of you and your kind. Lightning flashed again revealing the pallid faces of the crew in its stark light. Grady was shoved to the ground, and he moved his hand toward his sword. "'Grady, don't!' Hadrian said. "'That's right!' Wesley shouted. "'No one draw weapons. They'll slaughter us!' "'They will anyway!' Durning replied. Poe and Hadrian pulled Grady back to his feet. All around them the ring of warriors formed a wall— behind which churned a crowd of shouting faces and raised fists. The rain-drenched mob pushed and cried, its words lost in a roar of hatred. Lightning flashed once more, and a single voice rang out, "'You knew!' Instantly the crowd fell silent and parted. Only the sound of rain disturbed the stillness as Fan Irlanu entered the circle." Jokdan at her side carried a deadly-looking spear, his eyes grim and focused on Zulron. Borando, it is not the stranger's fault. It was Zulron who asked that I do the reading. He knew this one had elven blood. But I am still alive, 
But no, how could you? Zulron stammered. He is not an old one, Van Erlanu said. He is a Kaz. There is humanity in him. Footholds, Zulran. Footholds. What's going on? Wesley asked Hadrian. Isn't she the one Royce killed? What's she saying? She seems a mite upset, Grady said. But not at Royce, Poe remarked. Who then? Grady asked. Zulran has tried to kill me. I have known for some time his ambitions were great. I saw the treachery in his heart, but I never expected he would go so far. Jokdan, what say you? Is what Fan Irlanu says true? Burandu addressed his warlord. Jokdan thrust his spear into the chest of Zulron. The long blade passed fully through the Obadaza's body. Those nearby jostled backward, everyone moving away. Jokdan advanced the length of his spear's shaft and gripped Zulran by the throat. Holding him with strong arms, he spat in the witch doctor's face. The light faded from the Obadaza's eyes, and Jokdan withdrew his spear as Zulran fell dead. I think that answers your question. Poe remarked. Burandu looked down at the body, then up at Jokdan, and nodded. Jokdan is never wrong. I am pleased you are safe, Fan Irlanu, he said to her. Then the elder addressed Wesley and the others. Forgive the dishonor of evil Zulran. Judge us not by his actions. You, too, have such men in your world, eh? Wesley glanced at Thranic and Royce. Burandu shouted to his warriors and then dispersed the crowd. Many paused to kiss Fan Irlanu, who stood weakly, leaning against Jokdan. She offered a strained smile, but Hadrian could see the paleness of her face and the effort in her breathing. The elder spoke briefly with Jokdan and Fan Irlanu, and then Jokdan lifted the seer once more and carried her to one of the smaller dwellings. Zulron's body was dragged away, and with him went most of the Tenkin. That's it? Grady asked. Wait, Dilladrum said as the leopard-skinned man approached. They spoke for a moment, and then Dilladrum returned. The village of Udoro asks our forgiveness for the misunderstanding, and begs the honor to continue as our host. They looked at one another skeptically. They are sincere. Wesley sighed and nodded. Thank them for their kindness, but we will be leaving in the morning. Kindness, Durning muttered. They nearly skinned us alive. We should get out now while we can. I see no advantage in venturing into these jungles at night, Wesley affirmed. We will leave at first light. And what about Melbourne? Thranic said. You, Dr. Levy, and Seaman Blackwater in Melbourne will come with me. 
The rest I ordered to quarters to get as much sleep as possible. A young Tenkin trotted up to them and spoke to Dillardrum, his eyes watching Royce. What is it? Wesley asked. Fan Irlanu has requested Royce and Adrian. Wesley nodded at them, but added, Try not to start a war this time. You're to report to me directly after. By your honour, gentlemen. Before Thranic could object, they both nodded and offered an aye aye, sir. Fan Irlanu lay on a bed beneath the thin white sheet as a young girl patted her forehead with a damp cloth rinsed repeatedly in a shallow basin. Jokdan remained at her side. His great spear, still covered in Zulran's blood, stood by the door. Is she really all right? Hadrian asked. I be fine, Fan Irlanu replied. It was terrible shock. We'll take time. I'm sorry, Royce offered. I know, she told him. Her face was sympathetic to the point of sadness. I know you are. You saw something. Were I to touch Jokdan's hand with the Tulan smoke in me, I could tell what he ate for his midday meal yesterday and what he eat tomorrow. If I touched Galanti's hand, I could name the woman he will marry and who will outlive the other. I could also tell the precise events that will surround his death. So clear is my sight that I can see a life in detail. But not you. You are mystery, a cloud. Looking into you is seeing a mountain range in thick fog. I can only see the high points with no means of connecting them. You are Kaz in the gazelle tongue. In your language, a mir, yes? Mix of human and elven blood. This gives you long life. She paused to gather some strength, and Jockton's brow furrowed further. Imagine looking down the road. You see most things well. The trees, the rocks, the leaves... But with you, it is as if standing high in air, staring out at the horizon. Very few details. My sight can only span so far, and that not include the lifespan of a Kaz. There is too much. But you saw something. I saw many things. Too many, she told him. Her eyes were soft and comforting. Tell me, Roy said. Please, I know a woman. She's very much like you, but something troubles her. She won't speak of it, and I think she has seen things like you have, things that trouble her. She is Tenkin? I'm not sure, but she bears the same mark as you. Fan Erlanu nodded. I sent for you because of what I saw. I will tell you what I know, and then rest. I sleep for long time, 
and Jokdan will not let any disturb me, so I speak now. I am certain I will not see you again. I saw much, but understood little. Too much distance, too much time. Most are vague feelings that are hard to put in words, but what I sensed was powerful. Royce nodded. She paused a moment, thinking, then said, Darkness surrounds you. Death is everywhere. It stalks you, hunts you, and you feed upon it. Blood begets blood. The darkness consumes you. In this darkness I saw two lights beside you. One will blow out, the other flickers, but it must not go out. You must protect the flame against the storm. I saw a secret. It is... Uh, it is hidden. This great treasure is covered. A man hides it, but a woman knows. She alone knows... And so she prepares. She speaks in riddles that will be revealed, truth disguised for now. You will remember when the time comes. That path is laid out for you, in the dark. Jokten spoke something in Tenkin, but Fan Irlanu shook her head and pushed on. I saw great journey, ten upon the road. She who wears the light will lead the way. The road goes deep into the earth and into despair. The voice of the dead guide your steps. You walk back in time. The three thousand year battle begins again. Cold grips the world. Death comes to all, and a choice is before you. Alone stand you in the balance. Your weight will tilt the scales, but to which side is unclear. You must choose between darkness and light, and your choice will affect many. She paused, shaking her head slowly. Like trees in a forest, like blades of grass, too many to count. And I fear that in the end you will choose the darkness and turn your back to the light. You said she. Who did you mean? Is it Gwen? Royce questioned. I not know names. They mere feelings, glimpses of a dream. What is this secret? I not know. It is hidden. When you say there are two lights and one blows out, does that mean someone will die? She nodded. Think so. Yes, feels that way. I sensed a loss, so great I still feel it. She reached out and touched Royce's hand, 
and a tear slipped down her cheek. Your road is one of great anguish. Royce said nothing for a moment and then asked, What is this great journey? She shook her head. I wish knew more. Your life, whole life been pain, and so much more lies ahead. Am sorry, but cannot tell more than that. She rests now, Jockdan told them. From his firm tone, they knew it was time to go. They walked out of the hut and found Wyatt watching out for them. Waiting up? Adrian asked. Didn't want you to step into the wrong hut by accident. He gave a wink. The rest bunked down? He nodded. So, you're an elf, Wyatt said to Royce. That explains a lot. What did the lady want? To tell me my future. Good news. It nearly killed her. What do you think? Chapter 17 The Palace of the Four Winds Thranic was furious. Wesley refused to take any action against Royce, and the Sentinel railed that under Imperial law, all elves were subject to arrest. Wesley had little choice but to acknowledge this, but added that, given their circumstances, he had neither a prison nor chains. He also pointed out that they were not within the bounds of the new empire, and until they were, he was the sole judge of the law. It is my duty to see this mission to completion, Wesley told the Sentinel. A bound man will only be a hindrance to this effort, particularly when he is injured and exhibits no desire to flee. Royce watched all this with an expression of mild amusement. Thranic went on relentlessly until finally Wesley gave in and approached Royce. Will you give me your word you will not attempt to escape me or Sentinel Thranic before this mission is over? On my word, sir, Royce replied. There is nothing that could make me willingly leave Sentinel Thranic's side. There you have it, Wesley concluded, satisfied. He's an elf. What good is the word of an elf? As Thranic straightened and rose above Wesley, the look on the sentinel's face caused him to take a step back. As Secretary of Erevan Affairs, appointed by the Patriarch, it's my duty to purge the Empire of their foul influence. I demand you place the elf under my authority at once. Wesley hesitated. The challenge of a sentinel broke the nerve of many kings, and Thranic was more intimidating than any other Hadrian had encountered. His hunched vulture demeanour and piercing glare were more than daunting. Hadrian was tense. He knew the sentinel was already dead, and would prefer his partner got to pick his own time and place. If Wesley agreed to surrender Royce, there would be a battle that would see one of them dead. Hadrian let his fingers slip slowly to the pommels of his swords, and he marked the position of Bernie in anticipation.
Wesley locked his jaw and returned Thranic's glare. He might be an elf, sir, but he's also one of my crew. Your crew? You no longer have a ship. You're nothing but a boy playing pretend captain. The sentinel bellowed angrily. Wesley stiffened. And what were you playing at in the hold of the ship, sir? Was that what you call administering your authority? This took Thranic by surprise. Oh, yes. The officers knew of your nightly visits to the cargo. It's a small ship, sir, and the officers' bunks were just above. We heard you every night torturing them, and I fear a good deal more than that. I am no great fan of elves, but by Meribor there are limits to the abuses conscience permits. No, sir. I do not think I will be returning Seaman Melbourne over to your authority any time soon. Even should I trust you to treat him honourably, I need all the hands I can get. And as we both know, you are not an honourable man. It's a pity to see such a young, promising lad throw his life away, Thranic fumed. I'll see that you are executed for this. To do so, we must return to Avron. Let us hope we both live to see that day. At dawn, the crew of the Emerald Storm left the village and once more plunged into the jungle, travelling northeast of the Odoro Valley by a narrow, barely visible path. The rain had left the ground swamped, but it had stopped at last. On the third day, Cliffs and chasms barred their path. They followed ridge lines where a stumble could send a man falling hundreds of feet, walked perilous rope bridges that spanned raging rivers, and followed rocky clefts down into dark valleys. In the lower ravines, it was dark even at midday. Trees created phantom images. Rocks looked like crouching animals, and stunted, gnarled bushes appeared like monsters in the mist. Royce's health steadily improved, though his disposition remained unchanged. He was able to walk on his own most of the day, and, thanks to Fan Irlanu's balm, his wounds no longer required a bandage. They found the bodies on the fourth day out of Uduro. Corpses, dressed in clothes similar to those of Dilladrum and the Vintu, lay on the path. Flies hovered, and the stench of decay lingered in the air. They had been dead for some time, and many were missing limbs, or showed evidence of bites. Animals? Wesley asked. Maybe. Dilladrum looked off toward the east. But perhaps... The panther is not able to contain his beasts, just as Burandu told us. You're saying the gazelle did this? Deladrum paused to study the jungle around them. Impossible to say. Yet these bodies are weeks old, and it's not like the jungle to let them rot. Animals don't like gazelle and will avoid an area with their smell even if it means passing up a free meal. This man is Hingara. Dilladrum pointed to the body of a swarthy little man in a red cap. He's a guide. 
like me. Me set out for the Palace of the Four Winds with a party like ours weeks ago. He was a good man. He knew the jungle well, and, as you can see, his group was large, as many as thirty men in all. What kind of animal do you think would attack so large a company? A pack of wolves, perhaps? A pride of lions? No. They would never attack a party this large. And what animal would kill without leaving a single body of their own behind? Gazelle, on the other hand? What about them? Wesley asked. They are like ghosts. Ingara could not have seen them coming. Imagine beings as nimble and at ease in these jungles as monkeys, but possessing the strength and ferocity of tigers. They have the instinct of beasts, but the intelligence of men. On a rainy day, they can smell a human three leagues away. This was a safe path, but I fear things have changed. There are only about eighteen bodies here, Wesley observed. If he set out with thirty men, where are the rest? Dillardrum let his sight settle on the naval officer. Where, indeed? Wesley grimaced as he looked at the dead. Are you saying they took them to eat? That's what they do. Dillardrum pointed to the torn and mutilated bodies. They ate some on the spot in the fever following the battle, but I think they carried the rest back to their den, where I can only guess they feasted by barbecuing them on spits and drinking warmed blood from the men's skulls. You don't know that, Wesley challenged. Dillardrum shook his head. As I said, I'm guessing. No one truly knows what goes on in their camps any more than a deer knows what goes on in the dining halls of a king. You make it sound as if there are betters. In these jungles, they are. Here, they're the hunters, and we're the prey. I told you the trip would be harder from now on. We'll burn no fire, cook no food, and pitch no tent. Our only hope of survival lies in slipping through unnoticed. Should we bury them? Wesley asked. What the animals do not touch, neither should we. It would announce our presence to the whole jungle. It's also not wise to linger. We should press on with all haste. They travelled steadily downward now, following a rapidly flowing river through a cleft in the mountains. The lower they went, the higher the canopy rose, and the darker their world became. They camped along a bank where the river swirled around a break of boulders. With no fire or tent, it wasn't much of a camp. They huddled on a bare, sandy patch exposed by a shift in the river's bend, eating cold, salted meat. Royce sat at the edge of the camp and watched Thranic watching him. They had played this game each night since the village. 
Royce was certain Bernie had filled Thranick's head with numerous stories about his reign of terror against the diamond. Thranick appeared aloof, but Royce was certain Bernie's words had wormed in nonetheless. Without stall, and with Bernie no longer a trusted ally, Thranick was dramatically weakened. The Sentinel's confrontation with Wesley had revealed Thranick's growing desperation, his failure another setback. The balance had shifted. He slipped from the hunter to the hunted, and with each day, Royce grew stronger. Royce enjoyed the game. He liked watching the shadows growing under Thranick's eyes as he got less and less sleep. He savoured the way Thranick spun, his eyes searching rapidly for Royce, whenever an animal rustled branches behind him on the trail. Mental torture was never something Royce aimed for, but in Thranick's case, he was making an exception. Royce's quick turn had saved his life. Although he might have bled to death if Hadrian and the others had not found him, or died from fever if the Tenkin woman had not helped, the wound itself was relatively superficial. For several days, he had portrayed being weaker than he was. He had pain when pressing on his side, and was still experiencing some lack of movement, but for the most part he was his old self again. Royce might have continued the game longer, but it was becoming too dangerous. Wesley's defiance had changed the playing field. The Sentinel's options were diminishing. The ploy to force Wesley's hand had been his last civil gambit. As long as Wesley remained a legitimate leader, those like Wyatt, Grady, Durning, and Poe would side with him. Royce knew Thranick saw Wesley as a pawn blocking his forward movement, one that he would need removed. It was time to deal with the Sentinel. Royce curled up to sleep with the rest of them, but selected a place hidden by a small thicket of plants. In the darkness, he lay there only briefly before leaving his blanket filled with brush and melted into the jungle. Thranick had chosen to bed down near the river, which Royce thought considerate, since he intended to dispose of the sentinel's body in the strong current. Royce slipped around the outside of the camp until he came to where Bernie and Levy slept. But Thranick was missing. Thwack! A narrow tree trunk splintered. At the last moment, Royce had moved. A crossbow bolt lodged itself in the wood where a second before he had been crouching. Thranick struggled desperately to crank back the string on his weapon. Did you think to find me in my bed? he said. Did you really think killing me would be that easy? Elf! He cranked back on the gear. You shouldn't fear me so much. I'm here to help you. It's my responsibility to help all of you. I'll cleanse the darkness in your hearts. I'll free you from the burden of your disgusting, offensive life. You no longer need to be an affront to Meribor. I'll save you. And who will save you? Royce replied. He was just a few feet from where he had been. Thranick glanced down to set the bolt in the track. 
He lifted the bow, but when he looked up, Royce was gone. What do you mean? Thranic asked, hoping Royce would reveal his position. You see awfully well in the dark, Thranic, Royce said from his right. Thranic turned and fired, but the bolt merely ripped through an empty thicket. Well, but not perfectly, Royce observed, appearing once more, but much closer. Thranic immediately began ratcheting back his bow. He had two more bolts. You also managed to slip into the trees without me seeing you. And you crept up behind me. That's indeed remarkable. How old are you, Thranic? I'll bet you're older than you look. The sentinel loaded the bolt and looked up, but once more Royce was gone. What are you driving at, elf? Thranic asked, holding his crossbow at his hip. Backing against a tree, he peered around the jungle. We're alike, you and I, Royce said from behind him. Thranic spun around. He saw movement slipping through the brush and fired. The shot went wide and he cursed. Thranic began cranking back the string once more. Is that why you do it? Royce asked. Is that why you torture elves? Tell me, are you purging them or yourself? Shut up! Thranic's hand slipped on the gear and the string snapped back, slashing his fingers. He was shaking now. You can't kill the elf inside, so you torture and murder all those you find. He was closer. I said, shut up! How much elven blood does it take to wash away the sin of being one yourself? Closer still. Damn you! He screamed, fighting with the bow, which refused to cooperate with his shaking fingers. He drew the string back again, only to have it jump the track and snap free. He put a foot through the loop at the bow's nose and pulled. Now it was stuck. He pressed desperately on the ratchet handle. It refused to move. Crack! The winch snapped. In horror, Thranic stopped breathing as he looked down. He struggled to pull the bowstring back with just the strength of his arms. He pulled with all his might, but he couldn't get it to catch. He was giving Melbourne too much time. He let the bow fall to the grass and drew his dagger. He waited. He listened. He spun. He looked. He was alone. Get up. Hadrian woke to Royce's voice as his friend moved through the camp. He knew the tone and instantly got to his feet. What is it? Company, Royce told him. Wake everyone. What's happening? Wesley asked groggily as the camp slowly came alive. Quiet, Royce whispered. He crouched with his dagger drawn, staring out into the darkness. Gazelle, Grady asked. Something, Royce replied. A lot of somethings. The rest of them heard it now, twigs snapping and leaves rustling. They were all on their feet with weapons drawn. Backs to the river, Wesley shouted. Ahead of them a light appeared, then disappeared, and then another blinked. Two more flickered off to the right and left, and sounds of movement grew louder and closer. Dovan Thranic stumbled back into camp, 
causing a brief alarm. Several people looked at him oddly, but said nothing. Everyone's attention remained on sounds from the trees. Shadowy figures carried torches within the thick weave of the jungle. Slowly they climbed out of the brush and into the clearing around the river bank. Twenty approached from all sides at once. At first they appeared to be strange, monstrous beasts. When they fully entered the clearing, Hadrian saw that they were men, stocky, bull-necked brutes, with white-painted faces, bone armor, and headdresses of long feathers. They moved with ease through the dense brush. In their hands were crude clubs, axes, and spears. The men circled in silence, creeping forward. "'We come in peace!' Adrian heard Dilidrum shout in Tenken, his voice sounding weak. "'We have come to see Warlord Randobon. We bear a message for him.' As they drew nearer, the men began hooting and howling, shaking their weapons. Some brandished teeth, while others beat their chests or stomped naked feet. Dilidrum repeated his statement. One of the larger men, who carried a decorated war-axe, stepped forward and approached Dilidrum. "'What message?' the Tenkin asked in a harsh, shallow voice. "'It is a sealed letter,' Dilidrum replied, "'to be given only to the warlord.' The man eyed each of them carefully. He grinned and then nodded. Follow. Although it was the best they could expect, Dilidrum mopped his forehead with his sleeve as he explained the conversation to the party. The Tenkin howled orders. Torches went out and the rest melted back into the jungle. The leader remained as they quickly broke camp. Then, with a motion for them to follow, he ran back into the trees, his torch lighting the way. He led them at a brisk pace that had everyone panting for breath, and Ballard near collapse. Dilidrum shouted forward for a rest, or at least a slower pace. The only response was laughter. Our new friends aren't terribly considerate of an old man, Ballard panted in between wheezing inhales. That's enough! Wesley shouted, and raised a hand for them to stop. The crew of the Emerald Storm needed little persuasion to take a break. The Tenkin and his torch continued forward, disappearing into the trees. If he wants to keep jogging on without us, let him. He's not, Royce commented. He's hiding in the trees up ahead with his torch out. There are also several on either side of us, and more than a few to our rear. Wesley looked around, then said, I don't see anything at all. Royce smiled. What good is having an elf in your crew if you can't make use of him? Wesley raised an eyebrow, looked back out into the trees, and gave up altogether. He pulled the cork from his water bag, took a swig, and passed it around. Turning his attention to the historian, who sat in the dirt doubled over, he asked, How are you doing, Mr. Bullard? Ballard's red face came up. He was sweating badly, his thin hair matted to his head. He said nothing, his mouth preoccupied with the effort of sucking in air, but he managed to offer a smile, 
and a reassuring nod. Good, Wesley said. Let's proceed, but we will set the pace. Let's not have them exhausting us. Aye, Durning agreed, wiping his mouth after his turn at the water. It would be just the thing for them to run us in circles until we collapse, then fall on us and slit our throats before we can catch our breaths. Maybe that's what happened to the others we spotted. Perhaps it was these blokes, Grady speculated. We're going somewhere, Royce replied. I can smell the sea. Hadrian hadn't noticed it until that moment, but he could taste the salt in the air. What he had assumed was wind in the trees, he now realized was the voice of the ocean. Let's continue, shall we, gentlemen? Wesley said, moving them out. As they started, the Tenkin's torch appeared once more and moved on ahead. Wesley refused to chase it, keeping them at a comfortable pace. The torch returned, and after a few more attempts to coax them, gave up. Instead, the man carrying it matched their stride. Travel progressed sharply downward. The route soon became a rocky trail that plummeted to the face of a cliff. Below they could hear the crashing of waves. As dawn approached, they could see their destination. A stone fortress rose high on a rocky promontory that jutted into the ocean and guarded a natural harbour hundreds of feet below. The Palace of the Four Winds looked ancient, weathered by wind and rain until it matched the stained and pitted face of the dark granite upon which it sat. The palace was built of massive blocks, and it was inconceivable that men could have placed such large stones. Displaying the same austerity as the Tenkin, it lacked ornamentation. Ships filled the large sheltered bay on the lee side of the port. There were hundreds, all with reefed black sails. When they approached the great gate, their guide stopped. Weapons are not allowed past this point. Wesley scowled as Dilladrum translated, but he did not protest. This was the custom even in Avron. One didn't expect to walk armed into a lord's castle. They presented their weapons, and Hadrian noted that neither Thranic nor Royce surrendered any. Thranic had been acting oddly ever since stumbling into camp. He had not said a word, and his eyes never left Royce. They entered the fortress, where a dozen well-equipped guards looked down from ramparts, and many more lined their route. The exterior looked nearly ruined. Stone blocks had fallen and were left broken on the ground. Inside, the castle decor was no more cheerful. Here, too, the withering decay of centuries of neglect had left the once great edifice little more than a primordial cave. Roots and fungi grew along the corridor crevices, and dead leaves clustered in corners where the swirl of draughts deposited them. Dust, dirt, and cobwebs obscured the ancient decorative carvings, sculptures, and chiseled writings. Over the walls, the Tenkin had strung crude banners, long pennants that depicted a white Tenkin-style axe on a black field. Just as in Uduro, 
row upon row of shields hung from the ceiling like bats in a cavern. A huge fireplace occupied one whole side of the great chamber, a massive gaping maw of a hearth in which an entire tree trunk smouldered. Upon the floor lay the skin of a tiger, whose head stared with gleaming emerald eyes and yellowing fangs. A stone throne stood at the far end of the hall. The base of the chair had cracked where a vine intertwined the legs, making it list. Its seat was draped in a thick piling of animal skins, and on it sat a wild-eyed man. His head sported a tempest of hair, long and black with streaks of white, jutting in all directions. Deep cuts and burns scarred his face. Thick brows overshadowed bright, explosive eyes, which darted about rapidly, rolling in his skull like marble struggling to free themselves from the confines of his head. He was bare-chested, except for an elaborate vest of small laced bones. His long fingers absently toyed with a large, blood-stained axe lying across his lap. "'Who is these?' The warlord asked in Tenkin, his loud, disturbing voice echoed from the walls. Who is this that enters the hall of Arandobon, unannounced and unheralded? Who treads Arandobon's forest like sheep to be gathered? Who dares seek Arandobon in his den, his holy place? A strange assortment of people surrounded him and all eyes were on the party as they entered. Toothless, tattooed men spilled drinks, while women with matted hair and painted eyes swayed back and forth to unheard rhythms. One lounged naked upon a silk cushion with a massive snake coiled about her body as she whispered to it. Beside her, an old hairless man with yellow nails as long as his fingers painted curious designs on the floor, and everywhere the hall was choked with the smoke of burning tulan leaves, which smouldered in a central brazier. In the darkest shadows were others. Hadrian could barely make them out through the fog of smoke and the flickering firelight. They clustered in the dark, making faint staccato chattering sounds like the whine of cicadas. Hadrian knew that sound well. He couldn't see them, merely the suggestion of movement cast in shadows upon stone. They shifted nervously, anxiously, like a pack of hungry dogs, their motions jittery and too fast to be human. Dilladrum shooed Wesley forward. Wesley took a breath and said, I am midshipman Wesley Belstrad, acting captain of what remains of the crew of Her Imperial Eminence's ship, the Emerald Storm, out of Equesta. I have a message for you, your lordship. He bowed deeply. Hadrian found it comical that a lad of such noble bearing bowed before the likes of Arandabon Gill, who was just shy of a madman. Long around the bond has waited for word, the man upon the throne spoke in a Pelanese. Long around the bond has counted the moons and the stars. The waves crash, the ships approach and gather, the darkness grows, 
And still, Erandabon waits. Sits and waits. Waits and sits. The great shadow is glowing in the north. The gods come once more, bringing death and horror to all. The undying will crush the world beneath their step, and Erandabon is made to wait. Where is this message? Speak! Speak! Wesley took a step forward as he pulled the letter from his coat, but paused after noticing the broken seal. As he hesitated, an overly thin man dressed in feathers and paint snatched the letter away. He growled at Wesley like a dog showing his teeth. Not approach great Randabon with unclean hands! The feathered man handed the message to the warlord, who studied it for a moment, his eyes racing madly back and forth. A terrible grin grew across his face, and he tore the note into pieces and began eating them. It didn't take long, and while he ate, no one said a word. With his final swallow, the warlord raised his hand and said, "'Lock them away!' Wesley looked stunned as Tenkin guards approached and grabbed him. "'What's happening?' he protested. "'We are officials of the Empire of Averon. You cannot—' Erandabon laughed as the guard dragged them down the hall. "'Wait!' another voice bellowed. "'It was arranged!' Thranic deftly dodged the guards, advancing angrily on the warlord. "'My team and I are to be given safe passage!' I'm here to pick up a gazelle guide to take us safely through Grandan's Og. Arandabon rose to his feet and raised his axe, halting Thranic mid-step. Weapons did you bring? Food for the many did you deliver to Arandabon? The warlord shouted at him. It sank, Thranic yelled back, and the deal wasn't based on the weapons or the elves. The chattering sounds from the darkness grew louder. The noise appeared to disturb even the Tenkin. The hairless man stopped drawing his designs and shuddered. The woman with the snake gasped. Erandabon remained oblivious to the rise in their tenor as he gibbered in glee. No! Based on the open gates of Delgos! What proof of this? What proof does Erandabon have? You, wait here. You stay sealed, and if Drumandor does not fall, you will be food for the many. Erandabon decrees it. Who are you to defy Erandabon? Who are you to defy Erandabon? chanted the crowd. The warlord waved his hand in the air, and the chattering grew loud again. The guards moved in with spears. Now we know what the Empire has been doing with the elves they've been rounding up, Royce muttered as he ran his fingers lightly across the length of the door jam. The Tenkin had locked them in cells buried in the foundation of the fortress. There were no windows. The only light came from the small barred opening of the door, beyond which Torches mounted in iron sconces flickered intermittently. 
Hadrian and Royce were fortunate enough to share a cell with Wyatt and Wesley, while the others were in similar cells within the same block. The sounds of their independent conversations echoed as indiscernible whispers. It's ghastly, Wesley said, collapsing on the stone floor and dropping his head in his hands. Admittedly, I've never held any love for those of elven blood. He gave Royce an apologetic glance. But this, this is loathsome beyond human imagining. That the Empire could sanction such a vile and dishonourable act is... is... And now we also know what that fleet of ships in the bay is for, Hadrian said. They're planning to invade Delgos, and it would appear we delivered the orders for them to attack. But Trumandor is impregnable from the sea, Wesley said. Do you think this Arandabon fellow knows that? All those ships will be burned to cinders the moment they enter the bay. No, they won't, Royce said. Drumandor has been sabotaged. When they vent at the next full moon, there will be an explosion, destroying it. And, I suspect, Tour del Four as well. After that, the Armada can sail in unopposed. What? Wesley asked. You can't possibly know that. Royce said nothing. Yes, he does, Hadrian said. Realization crossed Wesley's face. The seal was broken. You read the letter. Royce continued exploring the door. How is it going to explode? Hadrian asked. The vents have been blocked. No, Hadrian shook his head. Only Gravis knew how to do that, and he's dead. Merrick found out somehow. He's doing the same thing Gravis tried. He's blocked the portals. When they try to vent during the harvest moon, the gas and molten rock will have nowhere to go. The whole mountain will blow. And that's what Merrick meant about turning the tide of the war for the Empire. Delgo supports the Nationalists, funded largely by Cornelius de Lure. When they eliminated Gaunt, they cut off the rebellion's head. Now they'll cut off its legs. Destroying Delgos will mean the new empire will only need to deal with Melangar. But those ships we saw in the harbour were not just Tenkin. The vast majority were Gazelle, Hadrian pointed out. Gil thinks he can use them as muscle, as his attack dogs. But goblins can't be tamed. He can't control them. The empire is handing Delgos over to the Bauron Gazelle. Once they entrench themselves... The goblins will become a greater threat to the new empire than the nationalists ever were. I doubt Merrick cares, Royce said. You stole the letter from me and read it, Wesley asked Royce. And you had us deliver it to the warlord knowing it would launch an invasion? Are you saying you wouldn't have? Those were your orders, sanctioned by the regents themselves. But... Giving Delgos to that... that... insane man and the gazelle, it's... it's... It's your sworn duty as an officer of the new empire. Wesley stared, aghast. 
My father used to say, a knight draws his sword for three reasons. To defend himself, to defend the weak, and to defend his lord. But he always added, never defend yourself against the truth, never defend the weakness in others, and never defend a lord without honour. I don't see how anyone can find honour in feeding a child to goblins or handing over a nation of men to the gazelle horde. Why did you let him deliver the letter? Hadrian asked. I just read it tonight during the water break. It was my last chance to get a look. I figured if we showed up completely empty-handed, we'd be killed. I won't be party to this... this... atrocity. We must prevent Drummondor's destruction, Wesley announced. You realize interfering with this would be treason, Royce told Wesley. By ordering the delivery of every man, woman, and child in Tour del Four into the bloodthirsty hands of the Baran Gazelle, the Empress has committed treason to her people. It is I who remain loyal, loyal to the cause of honor. It might comfort you to know that it's highly unlikely the Empress Modena gave this order. Hadrian told him. We know her. Met her before she became empress. She would never sanction anything like this. I was in the palace the day before we sailed from Aquesta, and she's not in charge. The regents are the ones behind this. One thing's for sure. If we foil Merrick's plan, we won't have to look for him any more. He'll find us, Royce added. This is all my fault, Wesley sighed. My first command, and look where it has led. Don't beat yourself up. You did fine. Hadrian patted him on the shoulder. But your duty is done now. You completed the task your lord set for you. Everything after this is of your own choosing. Not much of a choice, I'm afraid, Wesley said, looking around their cell. How long before the harvest moon? Hadrian asked. About two weeks, I would guess, Royce replied. It would take us too long to travel back by land. How long would it take us to get there by sea, Wyatt? Hadrian asked. With the wind at our backs, we'd make the trip in a fraction of the time it took us to come out. Week and a half, maybe two. Then we still have time, Hadrian said. Time for what? Wesley asked. We are locked in the dungeon of a madman at the edge of the world. Merely surviving will be a feat. You're far too pessimistic for one so young, Royce told him. Wesley let out a small laugh. All right, Seaman Melbourne. How do you propose we sneak down to the harbour, capture a ship loaded with gazelle warriors, and sail it out of a bay, past an armada, when we can't even get out of this locked cell? Royce gave the door a gentle push, and it swung open. I unlocked it while you were ranting, he said. Wesley's face showed his astonishment. You're not just a seaman, are you? Wait here, Royce said, slipping out. He was gone for several minutes. They heard no sound. When he returned, Poe, Durning, Grady, Dilladrum, and the Vintu followed. Royce had blood on his dagger and a ring of keys in his hand. "'What about the others?' Wesley asked. 
Don't worry. I won't forget about them, Roy said with a devilish grin. When he left, the others followed. A guard lay dead in a pool of blood, and Royce was already at the door of the last cell. We don't need to be released, Defoe said from behind the door. I could open it myself if I wanted to get out. I'm not here to get you out, Royce said, opening the door. Bernie backed up and drew his dagger. Stay out of this, Bernie, Royce told him. So far you've just been doing a job. I get that. But stand between me and Thranic and it gets personal. Seaman Melbourne! Wesley snapped. I can't let you kill Mr. Thranic. Royce ignored him, and Wesley appealed to Hadrian, who shrugged in response. It's a policy of mine not to get in his way, especially when the other guy deserves it. Wesley turned to Wyatt, whose expression showed no compassion. He burned a shipload of elves, and, for all I know, was responsible for taking my daughter. Let him die. Dr. Levy stepped aside, leaving Thranic alone at the back of the cell with only his dagger for protection. By his grip and stance, Hadrian knew the Sentinel was not a knife-fighter. Thranic was sweating, his eyes tense as Royce moved in. "'Might I ask why you're killing Mr. Thranic?' Bollard asked suddenly, stepping between them. "'Those of you intent on fleeing could make better use of your time than butchering a man in his cell, don't you think?' "'Won't take but a second, Royce assured him. "'Perhaps, perhaps. But I'm asking you not to. "'I'm not saying he doesn't deserve death, but who are you to grant it? "'Thranic will die, and quite soon, I suspect, given where we're headed. "'Regardless, our mission is vital not just to the Empire, but to all of mankind.' and we'll need him if we're to have any hope to complete it. Shut up, you old fool, the sentinel growled. This caught Royce's attention, though he kept his eyes on Thranic. What mission? To find a very old and very important relic called the Horn of Glindora. That will be needed very soon, I'm afraid. The Horn? Hadrian repeated. Yes. Given our precarious situation, I don't think it wise to give you a history lesson just now, but suffice to say, it's in all our best interests to leave Thranic alive. For now. Sorry, Royce replied, but you'll just have to make do without— The door to the cell block opened and a pair of soldiers with meal plates stepped in. A quick glance at the dead guard, and they ran. Royce sprinted after them. Bernie quickly closed his cell door again. Go, all of you, Bollard urged. The party ran out of the cell block and up the stairs. By the time they reached the top, the hallway was filled with loud voices. They got away, Royce grumbled. We gathered that from the shouting, Hadrian said. They faced a four-way intersection of identical narrow stone corridors. 
Wall-mounted flames burned from iron cradles, staggered at long intervals, leaving large sections of shifting shadows. Royce glanced back toward the cell block and cursed under his breath. That's what I get for hesitating. Any idea which way now? Wyatt asked. This way, Royce said. He led them at a rapid pace, then stopped abruptly and motioned everyone into a doorway. Moments later, a troop of guards rushed by. Wesley started forward, and Royce hauled him back. Two more guards passed. Now we go, he told them, but stay behind me. Royce continued along the multitude of corridors and turns, pausing from time to time. They climbed two more sets of stairs and dodged another group of soldiers. Hadrian saw the wonderment reflected in the party's faces at Royce's skill. It was as if he could see through walls and knew the location of every guard. For Hadrian it was nothing new, but even he was impressed at their progress, given that Royce was towing a parade. A door unexpectedly opened, and several Tenkins literally bumped into Dilladrum and one of the Vintu. Terrified, Dilladrum fled down a corridor, the Vintu following. The stunned Tenkins were not warriors, and were just as scared as Dilladrum. They retreated inside. Royce shouted for Dilladrum to stop, but it was no use. Damn it! Royce cursed, chasing after them. The rest of the crew raced to keep up as they ran blindly through corridor after corridor. Rounding a corner, Hadrian nearly ran into Royce, whose way was blocked by Tenkin warriors. The dead bodies of Dilladrum and the Vintu lay on the floor, blood pooling across the stone. Behind them, a small army cut off their retreat. "'Who are you to defy a randabon?' chanted the crowd of Tenkin warriors. "'Get back!' Hadrian ordered, pushing Wesley and the others into a niche that afforded a small amount of defence. He pulled a torch from the wall, and together with Royce formed a forward defence. The Tenkin soldiers charged, screaming as they attacked. Royce appeared to dodge the advance, but the foremost warrior fell dead. Hadrian drove the flame of his torch into the second Tenkin's face. Using his feet, Royce flipped up the dead man's sword to Hadrian, who caught it in time to decapitate the next challenger. Two Tenkins charged Royce, who simply was not where they expected him to be when they arrived. His movements were a blur, and two more collapsed. Hadrian advanced as Royce kicked the dead man's weapons behind them to Wyatt, Durning, and Wesley. Hadrian stood at the centre now. Three attacked. Three fell dead. The rest retreated bewildered, and Hadrian picked up a second blade. Clap, clap, clap. The warlord walked toward them, applauding and grinning. Galanti, it is you! So good to have you back! Back. Chapter 18 The Pot of Soup Amelia sulked in the kitchen, head in her hands, elbows resting on the baker's table. This was where it had all started, 
when Medina's former secretary had brought her to the kitchen for a lesson in table manners. Remembering the terror of those early days, she was staggered to realize those had been better times. Now a witch hid in Modena's room, filling the Empress's head with nonsense. She was a foreigner, the princess of an enemy kingdom, and yet she spent more time with Modena than Amelia did. She could be manipulating the Empress in any number of ways. Amelia had tried to reason with Modena, but no matter what Amelia said, the girl remained adamant about helping the witch find Deegan Gaunt. Amelia preferred the old days, when Medina had left everything to her. Sitting there, she wondered what she should do. She wanted to go to Soldor and report the witch, but knew that would hurt Medina. The Empress might never recover from such a betrayal, especially by Amelia, whom she trusted implicitly. The loss would surely crush her fragile spirit, and Amelia saw disaster at the end of every path. She felt as if she were in a runaway carriage, racing toward a cliff, with no way to reach the reins. How about I make you some soup? Ibis thinly asked her. The big man stood in his stained apron, stirring a large steaming pot, into which he threw bits of celery. I'm too miserable to eat, she replied. It can't be as bad as all that, can it? You have no idea. She's become a handful and then some. I'm actually afraid to leave her alone. Every time I walk out of her room, I'm frightened something terrible will happen. It was late, and they were the only two in the scullery. Long shadows cast by the flames of the cook's hearth traced up the far wall. The kitchen was warm and pleasant, except for a foul smell coming from the bubbling broth Ibis cooked on the stove. Oh, it can't be as bad as all that. Come on, can't I interest you in some soup? I'll make a pretty mean vegetable barley if I do say so myself. You know I love your food. It's just that my stomach is not. I noticed a grey hair in the mirror the other day. Oh, please, you're still just a girl. Ibis laughed, then caught himself. I guess I shouldn't speak to you that way, you being noble and all. I should be saying, yes, your ladyship, or in this case, no, no, your ladyship, if you'll allow me to be so bold as to speak plainly in your presence, I beg to differ, for I think you're purdy as a pot. That would be a more proper response. Amelia smiled. You know, I never have understood that saying of yours. Ibis drew himself up in feigned offence. I'm a cook. I like pots. He chuckled. Have some soup. Something warm in your belly will untie some of those knots, eh? She glanced at the pot he was stirring and grimaced. I don't think so. Oh, no, not this. Great Maribor, no. I'll make you something good. Amelia looked relieved. What's that you're making? It smells like rotten eggs. Soup, but it's barely fit for animals, made with all the worst parts of old leftovers. The smell comes from this horrid yellow powder I have to use. 
I try to dress it up as best I can. I throw some celery and spices in just to ease my conscience. Who's it for? I've no idea. But in a little while, a couple of guards will come by and take it. To be honest, I'm afraid to ask where it goes. He paused. Amelia, what's wrong? Amelia stared at the big pot, her mouth partially open. Noise on the stairs caught her attention. Two men entered the kitchen. She knew them by sight. They were guards normally assigned to the East Wing's fourth-floor hall, the administration corridor, where she and Soldo worked. They recognized her as well and took a moment to bow. Amelia graciously inclined her head in response. Their looks revealed they found this courtesy odd, but appreciated it. Then they turned to Ibis. All done? Just a sec, just a sec, he muttered. You're early. We've been on duty since dawn, one of the guards complained. This is the last job of the night. Honestly, I don't know why you put such effort into it thinly. It's what I do, and I want it done right. Trust me, no one's going to complain. Nobody cares. I care, Ibis remarked, his voice sharp enough to end the subject. The guard shrugged his shoulders and waited. Who's the soup for? Amelia asked. The guard hesitated. Not really supposed to talk about that, milady. The other guard gave him a rough nudge. She's the bloody secretary to the Empress. The first one blushed. Forgive me, milady, it's just that Regent Soldo can be a little scary sometimes. Amelia agreed in her head, but externally remained aloof. His friend slapped himself in the forehead, rolling his eyes. Blimey, James, you're a fool. Forgive him, lady. What? James looked puzzled. What did I say? The guard shook his head sadly. You just insulted the regent and admitted you don't respect her ladyship all in one breath. James's face drained of colour. What's your name? she asked the other guard. Higgles, lady. He swallowed hard and bowed again. Why don't you answer my question, then? We takes the soup to the North Tower. You know, the one between the well and the stables. How many prisoners are there? The two guards looked at each other. None that we know of, lady. Who's the soup for? He shrugged. We just leave it with the Soret Knight. Soup's done, Ibis declared. Is that all, milady? Higgles asked. She nodded, and the two disappeared out the door to the courtyard, each holding one of the pot's handles. Now, let me make you something, Ibis said, wiping his big hands on his apron. Huh? Amelia asked, still thinking about the two guards. No thanks, Ibis, she said, getting up. There's something I need to do, I think. The lack of a cloak became painfully uncomfortable when Amelia was halfway across the inner ward. 
The weather had jumped from a friendly autumn of brightly colored leaves, clear blue skies, and crisp nights to the gray, icy cold of pre-winter. A half-moon glimmered through hazy clouds as she stepped through the vegetable garden, now no more than a graveyard of brown dirt. She approached the chicken coop carefully, trying to avoid disturbing the hens. There was nothing wrong with being out, no rules against wandering the ward at night, but at that moment she felt sinister. She ducked into the woodshed just as James and Higgles passed by on their return journey. After several minutes, Amelia crept forward, slipped around the well, and entered the North Tower. The Prison Tower, as she now dubbed it. Just as described, a serret knight, dressed in black armor with the red symbol of a broken crown on his chest, stood at attention. Decorated with a red feather plume, the helm he wore covered his face. He appeared not to notice her, which was odd, as all guards bow to Amelia now. The serret said nothing as she stepped around him toward the stairs. She was shocked when he made no move to stop her. Up she went, periodically passing cells. None of the doors were locked, and she pushed some open and stepped inside. Each room was small. Old, rotted straw lay scattered across the ground. Tiny windows allowed only a fraction of moonlight to enter. There were heavy chains mounted to the walls and the floor. Some rooms had a stool or a bucket, but most were bare of any furniture. Amelia felt uncomfortable while in the rooms, not just because of the cold, but because she feared she might end up in just such a place. James and Higgles had been correct. The tower was empty. She returned down the steps to the serret. Excuse me, but what are you guarding? There's no one here. He did not respond. Where did the soup go? Again, the serret stood mute. Unable to see his eyes through the helm, and thinking perhaps he was asleep while standing up, she took a step closer. The serret moved, and as fast as a snake, his hand grabbed hold of his sword and drew it partway from its scabbard, allowing the metal to hiss, a sound that echoed ominously in the stone tower. Amelia fled. Are you going to tell her? Nimbus asked. The two were in Amelia's office, finishing the last of the invitation lists for the scribes to begin working on. Parchments were everywhere. On the wall hung a layout of the great hall, perforated with countless pinholes from the shifting of guest positions. No, I'll not add to that witch's arsenal of insanity with tales of mysterious disappearing pots of soup. I've worked for months to put Medina back together. I won't allow her to be broken again. But what if... Drop it, Nimbus. Amelia shuffled through her scrolls. I should never have told you. I went, I looked... I saw nothing. I can't believe I even did that much. Merabor, help me. The witch even had me out in the dark chasing her phantoms. What are you grinning at? Nothing, Nimbus said. I just have this impression of you slinking around the courtyard. Oh, stop it. Stop what? 
Isoldor asked as he entered unannounced. The regent swept into her office and looked at each of them with a disarming smile. Nothing, your grace. Nimbus was merely having a little joke. Nimbus? Nimbus? Soldor repeated while eyeing the man, trying to recall something. He's my assistant, and Medina's tutor. A refugee from Vernus, Amelia explained. Soldor looked annoyed. I'm not an idiot, Amelia. I know who Nimbus is. I was thinking about the name. The word is from the old imperial tongue. Nimbus, unless I'm mistaken, means mist or cloud. Isn't that right? He looked at Nimbus for acknowledgement, but Nimbus merely shrugged apologetically. Well, anyway, Soldo said, addressing Amelia, I wanted to know how things are proceeding for the wedding. It's only a few months away. I was just sending these invitations to the scribes. I've ordered them by distance, so those living the farthest away should have couriers leaving as early as next week. Excellent. And the dress? I finally got the design decided. We're just waiting for a material to be delivered from Colnora. And how is Modina coming along? Fine. Fine. She lied, smiling as best she could. She took the news of her wedded bliss well, then? Medina receives all news pretty much the same way. Soldor nodded at her pleasantly. Yes, true, true. He appeared so grandfatherly, so kind and gentle. It would be easy to trust him if she had not seen firsthand the volcano that lurked beneath that warm surface. He brought her back to reality when he asked, What were you doing in the North Tower last night, my dear? She bit her tongue, just in time to stop herself from replying with total honesty. I bumped into some guards delivering soup there in the middle of the night, which I thought odd, because... Because what? Soldor pressed. Because there's no one in the tower. Well, besides a serret, who appears to be standing guard over nothing. Do you know what that's all about? She asked, pleased with how she had managed to reinforce her innocence by casually turning the tables on the old man. She even considered batting her eyes, but didn't want to push it. Memories of Soldor ordering the guard to take her out of his sight still rang in her head. She didn't know what that order had really meant, but she remembered the regret in the guard's eyes as he had approached her. Of course I do. I'm regent. I know everything that goes on. The thing is, that was quite a lot of soup for one night, and it vanished, pot and all, in just a few minutes. But since you already know, I suppose it doesn't matter. Salder studied her silently for a moment. His expression was no longer the familiar one of condescension. She detected a faint hint of respect forming beneath his wrinkled brows. I see, he replied at length. He glanced over his shoulder at Nimbus, who was smiling back as innocent as a puppy. To her chagrin, Amelia noticed that he did bat his eyes. Salda took no apparent notice of his antics. 
then reminded her not to seat the Duke and Lady of Rochelle next to the Prince of Alburn before withdrawing from her office. That was creepy, Nimbus mentioned after Soldo left. You poke your head in the tower, and the next morning Soldo knows about it. Amelia paced the length of her office, which allowed her only a few steps each way before she had to turn, but it felt better than standing still. Nimbus was right. Something strange was going on with the tower, something that Salder himself kept careful watch over. She struggled to think of alternatives, but her mind kept coming back to one name. Deegan Gaunt. Chapter 19 Galanti The corridor outside the great hall of the Palace of the Four Winds was deathly silent as the small band remained huddled in the niche. All of the Emerald Storm's party now held swords salvaged from slain Tenkins, each one made from Averon steel. Warriors took strategic positions armed with imperial-crafted crossbows, while the bulk of the Tenkin fighters moved back to allow them clear lines of sight. Clustered in a tight group, Hadrian's party made an easy target. Arandabon stepped forward, but not so far as to block the path of the archers. Arandabon did not recognize you, Galanti. Many years it has been, but you have not lost your skill, he said, looking down at the bodies of his fallen warriors. Why travel with such creatures as these, Galanti? Why suffer the humiliation? It would be the same for a randabon to slither on the forest floor with the snakes, or wallow with the pigs. Why do you do this? Why? I came to see you, Gil, Hadrian replied. Instantly there was a gasp in the hall. Ha-ha! <laughs> the warlord laughed. You use my Calean name, a crime for which the punishment is death. But I pardon you, Galanti, for you are not like these. He waved his hand, gesturing vaguely. You are in the cosmos with Arandabon. You are a star in the heavens, shining nearly as bright as Arandabon. You are a brother, and I will not kill you. You must come and feast with me. And my friends? Arandabon's face soured. They have no place at the table of Arandabon. They are dogs. I'll not eat with you if they are ill-treated. Arandabon's eyes moved about wildly in random circles, then stopped. Arandabon will have them locked up again. Safely this time. For their own good. Then you will eat with Arandabon? I will. He clapped his hands, and warriors tentatively moved forward. Hadrian nodded and Royce and the others laid down their weapons. 
The balcony looked out over the bay from a dizzying height. Moonlight revealed the vast fleet of the gazelle and Tenkin ships anchored in the harbour. Dotted with lights, the vessels bobbed on soft swells. Distant shouts rose with the cool breeze and arrived as faint whispers. Like the rest of the castle, the balcony was a relic of a forgotten time. While perhaps beautiful long ago, the stone railing had weathered over centuries to a dull, vague reminder of its previous glory. A lush covering of vines blanketed it, with blooming white flowers the way a cloth might disguise a marred table. Beneath their feet, once stunning mosaic tiles lay dirty, chipped, and broken. Several oil lanterns circled the balcony, but appeared to be more for decoration than illumination. On a stone table lay a massive feast of wild animals, fruits, and drink. Sit! Sit and eat! Arandabon told Hadrian as several Tenkin women and young boys hurried about, seeing to their every need. Aside from the servants, the two were alone. Arandabon tore a leg from a large roasted bird and gestured with it toward the bay. A beautiful sight, eh, Galanti? Five hundred ships, fifty thousand soldiers, and all of them under Arandabon's command. There are not fifty thousand Tenkin in all of Calais, Hadrian replied. He looked at the food on the table dubiously, wondering if Elf was somewhere on the menu. He selected a bit of sliced fruit. No, the warlord said regretfully, Erandabon must make do with the gazelle. They are like ants spilling out of their island holes. Erandabon cannot trust them any more than Erandabon can trust a tiger, even if Erandabon raised it from a cub. They are wild beasts, but Erandabon needs them to reach the goal. And what is that? Drumendor, he said simply, and followed the word with a swallow of wine, much of which spilled unnoticed down the front of his chin. Erandabon needs a shelter from the storm, Galanti, a strong place, a safe place. For many moons the ants fight for Drumendor. They know it can stand against the coming wind. Time is running out. The sand spills from the glass, and they are desperate to flee the islands. Erandabon promises he can help them get it. He could have fifty thousand, perhaps a hundred thousand ants, Galanti. They are everywhere in the islands. But Erandabon will make do with these. Too many ants spoil a picnic, eh, Galanti? He laughed. A servant refilled the wine glass Hadrian had barely touched. What do you know about Merrick Marius? Hadrian asked. Arandabon spat. He is dirt. He is pig. He is pig in dirt. He promised weapons. There is none. He promised food for the many. And there is none. 
He makes it hard for Arandabon to control the ants. Arandabon wish he was dead. I might be able to help you with that if you tell me where he is. The warlord laughed. Oh, Galanti, you do not fool Arandabon. You would do this for you, not for Arandabon. But it matters not. Erandabon does not know where he is. Do you expect him to visit again? Hadrian pressed. No, there is no need. Erandabon will not be here long. This place is old. This is not good place for storm. He rolled a fallen block of granite from the balcony. Erandabon and his ants will go to the great fortress where even the old ones cannot reach us. Erandabon will watch the return of the gods and the burning of the world. You could have a seat beside Erandabon. You could lead the ants. Hadrian shook his head. Drumador will be destroyed. There will be no fortress for you and your ants. If you release me and my friends, we can stop this from happening. Erandabon roared a great laugh. Galanti, you make big joke. You think Erandabon is dumb like the ants? Why do you try to tell Erandabon such lies? You will say anything to leave here with your dog friends. He finished off the leg by ripping the meat from the bone and chewed it with an open mouth, spitting out bits of gristle. Galanti, you offer Arandabon so much help. You must see how great Arandabon is, and wish to please. Arandabon likes this. Arandabon knows of something you can do. What is that? There is a gazelle chieftain. Uzlabar! He spat on the ground. He defies Arandabon. He challenged Arandabon for control of the ants. Now, with no food for the many, he be big problem. Uzlabar attacks caravans from Avrin, stealing the weapons and the many's food. He do this to weaken Arandabon in the eyes of the ants. Uzlabar challenge Arandabon to fight. But Arandabon is no fool. Arandabon knows none of his warriors can win against the speed and strength of the Baran Gazelle. But then the stars shine on Arandabon and bring you here. You want me to fight him? The challenge is by gazelle tradition. Erandabon has seen you fight this way. Erandabon think you can win. Who will I be fighting with? You? He shook his head and laughed. Erandabon does not dirty his hands so. Your warriors? Why should Erandabon risk his warriors? Erandabon need them to control the ants. 
Herandabon saw those dogs with you. They fight good. When choice is death, all dogs fight. If you lead the dogs, they will fight well. Herandabon has seen you win in the arena with worse dogs. And if you lose, Herandabon is same as before. And why would I do this? Did you not offer to help Erandabon twice already? He paused. Erandabon can see you like your dogs, but you and them kill many of Erandabon's men. For that you must die. But if you do this, Erandabon will let you live. Do this, Galanti. The heavens would be less bright without all its stars. Hadrian pretended to consider the proposal in silence. He waited so long that Arandabon became agitated. It was obvious the warlord had nearly as much riding on this fight as Hadrian did. You answer Arandabon now! Hadrian remained quiet for a few moments longer and then said, if we win, I want our immediate release. You won't hold us until the full moon. I want a ship, a small and fast ship, fully provisioned and waiting the moment the battle is won. Herandabon agrees. I also want you to look into finding an elven girl who is called Ali. She may have been brought with the last shipment from Averon. If she's alive, I want her brought here. Herandabon looked doubtful but nodded. I want my companions freed, treated well, and all of our weapons and gear returned to us immediately. Arandabon will have the dogs you fought with brought here, so you can eat with them when Arandabon is done. Arandabon also give other weapons you might need. What about the others? The men that did not fight with me in the hall? They no kill Arandabon's men, so they no die. Herandabon have deal with them. They stay until deal is done. Deal goes good, they be let go. Deal no good, they be food for the many. Is good? Yes, I agree. Excellent! Herandabon is very happy. Herandabon get to see Galanti fight in arena once more. Randabon clapped twice, and warriors appeared on the balcony, each reverently carrying one of Hadrian's three swords. More approached with the rest of their gear. Randabon took Hadrian's spadon and lifted it. Randabon has heard of Galanti's famous sword. It is weapon of the ancient style. It's a family heirloom. He gave it to Hadrian. These, the warlord said, picking up Royce's dagger, Herandabon has never seen such a weapon. Does it belong to the small one, the one who fought next to you? Yes. Hadrian saw the greed in Herandabon's eyes. That's Alverstone. You don't want to think of keeping that weapon. You no fight if Herandabon keeps... That too, Hadrian told him. That one is a Kaz? Yes, 
And, as you saw, he's a good fighter. I need him, and his weapon. Hadrian strapped his swords back on, feeling more like himself again. So, the Tiger of Mandolin will fight for Erandabon. It looks that way, Hadrian said, then sighed. So, how does this work? Royce asked, checking over his dagger. The sun had risen on a grey day. The seven of them ate together on the balcony. The food, leftovers from the warlord, was now suitable for the dogs. Hadrian said, The battle will be five against five. I was thinking Wesley and Poe ought to be the ones to sit out. They're the youngest. We will draw lots, Wesley declared firmly. Wesley, you've never fought the Baron Gazelle before. They're extremely dangerous. They're stronger than men. Faster, too. To disarm them, you literally have to... Well, disarm them. We will draw lots, Wesley repeated, and finding a dead branch he snapped seven twigs, two shorter than the others. I have to fight. It's part of the deal, Hadrian said. Wesley nodded and tossed one of the long twigs away. I'm fighting too, Royce told him. We need to do this fairly, Wesley protested. If Hadrian fights, so do I, Royce declared. Hadrian nodded. So it'll be between you five. Wesley hesitated, then threw aside another twig and held his fist out. Wyatt pulled the first stick, a long one. Poe drew next and got the first short twig. He showed no emotion and simply stepped back. Grady drew a long one, Durning drew last, receiving the other short stick, leaving the last long twig in Wesley's fist. When do we fight? At sunset, Hadrian replied. Gazelle preferred to fight in the dark. That gives us the day to plan, practice a few things, and take a quick nap before facing them. I don't think I can sleep, Wesley told them. Best give it a try, anyway. I've never even seen a gazelle, Gracie admitted. What are we talking about here? Well, Hadrian began, they have deadly fangs, and if given the chance, they'll hold you down and rip with their teeth and claws. The gazelle have no qualms about eating you alive. In fact, they relish it. So, they're animals, Wyatt asked, like bears or something. No, not really. They're also intelligent and proficient with weapons. He let this sink in a moment before continuing. They're usually short-looking, but that's misleading. They walk hunched over and can stand up to our height or taller. They are strong and fast and can see well in the dark. The biggest problem... There's a bigger problem, Royce asked. Yeah, Funny, that. But you see, the gazelle are clan fighters, so they're organised. A clan is a group of five made up of a chief, a warrior, an obadaza, a finisher, and a range. The chief is usually not as good of a fighter as the warrior. And don't confuse a gazelle obadaza with a tenkin. 
The gazelle version wields real magic, dark magic, and should be the first one we target to kill. They won't know we're aware of his importance, so that might give us an edge. Leave him to me, Royce announced. The finisher is the fastest of the group, and it'll be his job to kill us while the warriors and the Obadaza keep us busy. The range will be armed with a trilon, the gazelle version of a bow, and maybe throwing knives as well. He'll likely stay near the Obadaza. The trilon isn't terribly accurate, but it's fast. His job won't be so much to kill us as to distract. You'll want to keep your shield arm facing him. Will we have shields? Grady asked. Good point. Hadrian looked over the weapons provided. No, I don't see any. Well, look at it this way. That's one less thing to worry about, right? The clan is well organised and experienced. They'll communicate through clicks and chattering that will be gibberish to us, but they can understand everything we say. We'll use that to our advantage. How do we win? Wyatt asked. By killing all of them before they kill all of us. They spent the morning hours sparring and practising. Luckily, they were all adept with basic combat. Wesley had trained with his brother, and as a result was a far better swordsman than Hadrian had expected. Grady was tough and surprisingly fast. Wyatt was the most impressive. His ability with a cutlass showed real skill, and the kind Hadrian recognised instantly as something he called killing experience. Hadrian demonstrated some basic moves to counter likely scenarios. Most dealt with parrying multiple attacks, like those from both mouths and claws, something none of them had any training in. He also showed them how to use the trilon Narandabon had provided, and each took his turn, with Grady showing the most promise. Hungry after the morning's practice, they sat to eat once more. So, what's our battle plan? Wyatt asked. Wesley and Grady will stay to the rear. Grady, you're on the trilon. He looked nervous. I'll do the best I can. That's fine. Just don't aim anywhere near the rest of us. Ignore the battle in the centre of the arena and concentrate your arrows on the Obadaza and the range. Keep them off balance as much as possible. You don't have to hit them, just keep them ducking. Wesley, you protect Grady. Wyatt, you and I will form the front and engage the warrior and the chief. Just remember to say what I told you and stay away from him. Questions? What about Royce? Wyatt asked. He knows what to do, Hadrian said, and Royce nodded. Anything else? If there was anything, no one spoke up, so they all bedded down for a nap. After the workout, even Wesley managed to fall asleep. The arena was a large, oval, open-air pit surrounded by a stone wall, behind which tiers of spectators rose. Two gates at opposite ends provided entrance to opposing teams. Giant braziers mounted on poles illuminated the area. The dirt-killing field, like everything else at the Palace of the Four Winds, 
had suffered from neglect. Large blocks of stone had fallen, and small trees grew around them. Near the centre, a shallow, muddy pool formed. A partially hidden ribcage glimmered eerily in the firelight, and a skull hung from a pike that protruded from the earth. As Hadrian walked out, his mind reeled with memories. The scent of blood and the cheering crowd opened a door he had thought locked forever. He had been only seventeen the first time he had entered an arena, yet his training had made victory a certainty. He had been the more knowledgeable, the more skilled, and the crowds loved him. He had defeated opponent after opponent with ease. Larger, stronger men had challenged him and died. When he had fought teams of two and three, the results were always the same. The crowds had begun to chant his new name, Galanti, Killer. He had travelled throughout Calais, meeting with royalty, eating at banquets held in his honour, and sleeping with women who had been given in tribute. He had entertained his hosts with displays of skill and prowess. Eventually the battles had become macabre. Multiple strong men had not been enough to defeat him. They had tested him against gazelle and wild animals. He had fought boars, a pair of leopards, and finally the tiger. He had killed scores of men in the arena without a thought, but the tiger in Mandolin had been his last arena fight. Perhaps the blood he had spilled had finally soaked in, or he had grown older and had matured beyond his desire for fame. Even now he was unsure what was the truth and what he merely wanted to believe. Regardless, everything changed when the tiger died. Each man he had battled had chosen to fight, but not the cat. As he had watched the regal beast die, for the first time he had felt like a murderer. In the stands above, the crowd had shouted, Galanti! The meaning had never sunk in until that moment. His father's words had reached him at last, but Danbury would die before Hadrian could apologize. Like the tiger, his father had deserved better. Now, as he entered the arena, the crowd once again shouted his name, Galanti. They cheered and stomped their feet like thunder. Remember, Mr. Wesley, stay back and guard Grady, Hadrian said, as they gathered not far from where the skull hung. The far gate opened, and into the arena came the Baran Gazelle. Hadrian could tell from his friends' shocked expressions that even after his description, they had never expected what now came toward them. Everyone had heard tall tales of hideous goblins, but no one really expected to see one, much less five, scurrying in full battle regalia, illuminated by the flickering red glow of giant torch fires. They were not human, not animal, not anything at all familiar. They did not appear to be of the same world. Movements defied eyesight, and muscles flexed unnaturally. They drifted across the ground on all fours. Rather than walk, they skittered, 
their claws clicking on the stones in the dirt. Their eyes flashed in the darkness, lit from within, a sickly yellow glow rising behind an oval pupil. Muscles rippled along hunched backs, and arms as thick as a man's thigh. Their mouths were filled with row upon row of needle-sharp teeth that spilled out each side, as if there was not enough room to contain them. The warrior and the chief advanced to the center. They were large, and even hunched over, they still towered above Hadrian and Wyatt. Behind them, the smaller Obadaza, decorated in dozens of multicolored feathers, danced and hummed. I thought they were supposed to be smaller, Wyatt whispered to Hadrian. Ignore it. They're puffing themselves up like frogs, trying to intimidate you, make you think you can't win. They're doing a good job. The warrior is on the left, and the chief is on the right, Hadrian told him. Let me take the warrior. You have the chief. Try to stay on his left side, swing low, and don't get too close. He'll likely kill you if you do. And watch for arrows from the range. From the walls, a flaming arrow struck the center of the field, and the moment it did, drums began to beat. That's our cue, Adrian said, and walked forward along with Royce and Wyatt. The gazelle chief and warrior waited for them in the center. Each held a short, curved blade and a small, round shield. They hissed at Hadrian and Wyatt as they approached. Wyatt had his cutlass drawn, but Hadrian purposely walked to meet them with his weapons sheathed. This brought a look from Wyatt. It's my way of puffing up. Before they reached the center of the arena, Hadrian had lost track of Royce, who veered away into a shadow beyond the glow of bonfires. When do we start? Wyatt asked. Listen for the sound of the horn. This comment was overheard by the chief, causing him to smile. He chattered to the warrior who chattered back. They can't understand us, right? Wyatt recited his line. Of course not, Hadrian lied. They're just dumb animals. Remember, we want to draw them forward so Royce can slip up behind the chief and kill him. He's the one we need to kill first. He's their leader. Without him, they will all fall apart. Just step back as you fight, and he will follow you right into the trap. More chattering. Two more flaming arrows whistled and struck the ground. Get ready, Hadrian whispered. Then, very slowly, he drew both swords. A horn sounded from the stands. Wesley watched as Hadrian and the warrior slammed into each other, metal clanging. Wyatt, however, shuffled back like a dancer, his cutlass held up and ready. The chief stood still, sniffing the air. Grady let loose the first of his arrows. He aimed at the distant pile of dancing feathers, but greatly overshot. Damn, he cursed, working to fit another in the string. Lower your aim, Wesley snapped. I never said I was a marksman, did I? Something hissed, unseen, by Wesley's ear. Grady fired a second shot, 
It landed too short, coming close to where Wyatt fainted, trying to persuade the chief to follow him. Hissing whistled by again. I think they're shooting their arrows at us, Wesley said, turning just in time to see Grady collapse with a black shaft buried in his chest. He hit the ground, coughing and kicking. His hands struggled to reach the arrow, his fingers went limp, and his hands flapped on the ends of his wrists. He flailed on the dirt, spitting blood, struggling to breathe. A third arrow hissed by and struck Grady in his boot. His legs struggled to recoil, but his foot was pinned to the ground. Wesley stared in horror as Grady shuddered, then fell still. Royce was already close to the Obadaza when the horn sounded. The clash of steel let him know the fight was on. He had slipped around one of the shattered stone blocks, trying to find a position behind the witch doctor, when the air felt wrong. It was no longer blowing, but bouncing, hitting something unseen. A quick glance at the field revealed only four gazelle, the chief, the warrior, the obadaza, and the range. Royce ducked just in time to avoid a slit throat. He spun, cutting air with Alverstone. Turning, he found himself alone. On instinct, he dodged right. Something cut through his cloak. He thrust back his elbow and was rewarded with a solid, meaty thump. Then it was gone again. Royce spun completely around, but he could see nothing. In the centre of the arena, Hadrian battled with the warrior while Wyatt taunted the chief, who was still reluctant to engage. The range fired arrow after arrow. Beside him, the Obadaza danced and sang. Intuition told Royce to move again, only he was too late. Thick, heavy arms gripped him as the weight of a body drove him forward. His feet slipped and he fell, pulled down to the blood-stained earth. He turned his blade and stabbed, but it passed through thin air. He could feel clawed hands trying to pin him. Royce twisted like a snake, depriving his attacker of a firm grip. He repeatedly cut at the shadowy thing, but nothing connected. Then he felt the hot breath of the gazelle finisher. Hadrian's stroke glanced off the gazelle's shield. He thrust with his other sword, but found it blocked by an excellent parry. The warrior was good. Hadrian had not anticipated his skill. He was strong and fast, but more importantly, more frighteningly, the gazelle anticipated Hadrian's moves perfectly. The warrior stabbed, and Hadrian dodged back and to the left. The gazelle bashed his face with his shield, having started his swing even before Hadrian turned. It was as if his opponent were reading his mind. Hadrian staggered backward, putting distance between them to catch his breath. Above, the crowd booed their displeasure with Galanti. Beside him, Wyatt was still playing with the chief. His ruse had bought the helmsman time. The chief was too afraid of Royce to engage, but it wouldn't last long. Hadrian needed to finish his opponent quickly, only now he wasn't even certain he could win. 
The warrior advanced and swung. Hadrian spun to the left. Once more, the gazelle anticipated his move and cut Hadrian across the arm. He staggered back and dodged behind a large, fallen block, keeping it between him and his opponent. The crowd booed and stomped their feet. Something was very wrong. The warrior should not be this good. His form was bad, his strokes lacking expertise, yet he was beating him. The warrior attacked again. Hadrian took a step back, and his foot caught on a rock, and he stumbled. Once more the gazelle appeared to foresee this, and was ready with a kick that sent Hadrian into the dirt. He lay flat on his back. The warrior screamed a cry of victory and raised his sword for a downward, penetrating kill. Hadrian started to twist left and dodged the thrust, but at the last minute, while still concentrating his thoughts on turning left, he pulled back to center. The stroke of the warrior pierced the turf exactly where Hadrian would have been. Grady was dead, and the arrows were still coming. Wesley was shaken. He had already failed in his duty. Not knowing what else to do, he picked up the trilon, fitted an arrow, and let it loose. Wesley was no archer. The arrow did not even fly straight, but spun wildly, falling flat on the ground not more than five yards ahead of him. In the center of the field, Hadrian was avoiding his opponent, and the chief had finally decided to engage Wyatt. Royce was in the distance, on the ground, wrestling with something invisible, not far from where the Obadaza danced and chanted. This was not going as planned. Grady was dead, and Hadrian... Wesley saw the warrior raise his sword for the killing blow. No! Wesley shouted. Just then, the sharp, exploding pain from an arrow pierced his right shoulder, and he fell to his knees. The world spun. His eyes blurred. He gasped for air and gritted his teeth as darkness threatened at the edges of his eyesight. In his ears, a deafening silence grew, swallowing the sounds of the crowd. The Obadaza. The memory of Hadrian's instructions surfaced. The gazelle version wields real magic, dark magic, and he should be the first one we target to kill. Wesley clutched the hilt of his sword, fighting back, willing himself not to pass out. He ordered his legs to lift him. Shaking, wobbling, they slowly obeyed. His heart calmed, and his breathing grew deeper. The world came into focus once more, and the roar of the crowd returned. Wesley looked across the field at the witch-doctor. He glanced at the trilon and knew he could never use it. He tried to raise the sword, but his right arm did not move. He shifted the pommel to his left. It felt awkward and clumsy, but it had strength. Listening to the sound of his heart pounding, he walked forward, slowly at first, but faster with each step. Another arrow hissed. He ignored it and began to jog. His feet pounded the moist, muddy ground. Wesley held his sword high like a banner. 
His hat flew off, his hair flowing in the breeze. Another arrow landed just a step ahead of him, and he snapped it as he ran. He felt a strange, painful pulling, and realized the wind was blowing against the feathers of the arrow that still protruded from his shoulder. He focused on the dancing witch-doctor. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw the reins put down his bow and run at him, drawing a blade. He was too late. Only a few more strides. The Obadaza danced and sang with his eyes closed. He couldn't see Wesley's charge. Wesley never checked his pace. He never bothered to slow down. He merely lowered the point of his blade as if it were a lance, and put on a last burst of speed, jousting like his famous brother, jousting on foot. Already the darkness was creeping in, tunnelling his vision once more. His strength was running out, flowing away with his blood. Wesley ploughed into the Obadaza. The two collided with a loud thrump. They skidded together, then rolled apart. Wesley's sword was gone from his hands. The arrow in his shoulder had snapped. The taste of blood was in his mouth as he lay face down, struggling to push himself up. A hot pain burst across his back, but it faded quickly as darkness swallowed him. Royce twisted, but couldn't break free of the claws that cut into his flesh, struggling to break his grip on Alverstone. He could not grab the shadow. Its body felt loose and slippery, as if it existed only where it wanted. Royce would get a partial grip, and then it would dissolve. Teeth grazed him as the gazelle snapped, trying to rip his throat out. Each time, Royce knew to move. On the third attempt, he gambled and butted forward with his own head. There was a thunk and pain, but he was able to break free. He looked around, and once more the finisher was invisible. Royce caught a glimpse of Wesley running across the field with his sword out in front of him, then dodged another attack. He avoided the blow but fell to the ground. Weight hit him once more. This time the claws got a better grip. Rear claws scraped along Royce's legs, pinning him, stretching him out, holding him helpless. He felt the hot breath again. There was a noise of impact not far away and a burst of feathers. Suddenly, Royce saw yellow eyes, bright glowing orbs, inches away from his own. Fangs drenched with spit drooled on him. Dad has orba, the creature said, gibbering. Alverstone was still in Royce's hand. He just needed a little movement from his wrist. He spat in the gazelle's eye and twisted. Like cutting through ripe fruit, the blade severed the hand of the gazelle at the wrist. With a howl, the finisher lost support and fell forward. Royce rolled him over, using two hands to restrain his remaining claw, pinning the gazelle with his knees. The finisher continued to snap, snarl, and rake. Royce severed the goblin's other hand, and the beast shrieked in pain until Royce removed its head. 
The gazelle warrior staggered suddenly, though Hadrian had not touched him. Trying to keep his distance, Hadrian was a good two sword lengths away, but the warrior clearly rocked as if struck. The gazelle paused, confidence faded from his eyes, and he hesitated. Hadrian looked over his shoulder to the hill and spotted Grady's body, but Wesley was gone. He looked over his opponent's shoulder and found Wesley on the ground. At his side, the Obadaza lay with the midshipman's cutlass buried in his chest. As Hadrian watched, the range stabbed Wesley in the back. Wesley! No! he shouted. Then Hadrian's eyes locked sharply on the warrior before him. I only wish you could read my thoughts now, he said, sheathing both swords. Confusion crossed the warrior's face until he saw Hadrian draw forth the large spadone from his back. Seizing the chance, the warrior swung. Hadrian blocked the stroke, which made the spadone sing. He followed this with a false swing, which the gazelle nevertheless moved to dodge, setting him off balance. Hadrian continued to spin, carrying the stroke round in a full circle. He levelled the blade at waist height. There was nowhere for the gazelle to go, and the great sword cut the warrior in half. Wyatt was fighting the chief now, their swords ringing like an alarm bell as they repeatedly clashed. Blow after blow drove Wyatt farther and farther backward, until Hadrian thrust the spadone through the chief's shoulder blades. With a roar like a violent wind, the crowd jumped to its feet, cheering and applauding. Turning, Hadrian saw Royce kneeling beside Wesley's prone body. The range lay beside him. Hadrian ran to them as Wyatt checked on Grady. Royce shook his head in silent reply to Hadrian's look. Grady is dead too, Wyatt reported when he reached them. Neither said a word. The gates opened, and Arandabon entered with a bright smile. Poe and Durning followed him. Durning stared at Grady's body. Arandabon lifted his arms to the stands like a conquering hero as the crowd cheered even louder. He approached them, exuberant and delighted. Excellent! Excellent! Arandabon is very pleased! Hadrian strode forward. Get us to that ship now. Give me time to think, and I swear I'll introduce you to Uberlin myself. Chapter 20 The Tower Modena watched as Arista sat within the chalk circle on the floor of her bedroom, burning the hair. Together, they watched the smoke drift. What's that awful smell? Amelia said, entering and waving a hand in front of her face, while Nimbus trailed behind her. Arista was performing a spell to locate Gaunt, Modina explained. She's doing magic? In here? Amelia looked aghast, then added, Did it work? Sort of, Arista said, with a decidedly disappointed tone. He's somewhere directly northeast of here, but I can't pinpoint the exact location. That's always been the problem.
Amelia stiffened, her eyes glancing at Nimbus accusingly. I didn't say a word, he told her. Amelia asked Arista, If you find Deegan Gaunt, what are you planning to do? Help him escape. He's the general of an army poised to attack us. She turned to Medina. I don't see why you're helping her. I'm not trying to return him to his army, Arista cut in. I need him to help me find something, something only the heir of Novron can locate. So you... and Gaunt... will leave? Yes, Arista told her. And what if you're caught? Will you betray the Empress by revealing the aid she has provided you? No, of course not. I would never do anything to harm her. Why are you asking this, Amelia? Modena looked from her to Nimbus and back again. What do you know? Amelia hesitated for only a moment, then spoke. There is a Theret knight standing guard in the North Tower. I'm not familiar with your palace. Is that unusual? Arista asked. There's nothing to guard there, Amelia explained. It's a prison tower, but none of the cells hold prisoners. Yet, last night I watched two fourth-floor guards deliver a pot of soup there. To the guard? No, Amelia said. They delivered the soup to the tower. Less than five minutes later I arrived. The soup was gone, pot and all. Arista stood. They were feeding a prisoner, but you say there are no occupied cells in the tower. Are you sure? Positive. Every door was open, and every cell vacant. It looked to have been that way for some time. I need to get in that tower, Arista declared. I could burn a hair in one of the empty cells. If he's nearby, that could really tell us something. There's no way you're getting in that tower, Emilia told her. You'd have to walk right past the night. While the chief imperial secretary to the empress might get away with such a thing, I highly doubt the fugitive witch of Melangar will. I bet Soldo could walk in and out of there without question, couldn't he? Of course, but you aren't him. Arista smiled. She turned to the tutor. Nimbus, I have a letter for Hilfred and another for my brother. I wrote them in the event something happened to me. I want to give them to you now, just in case. Don't deliver them until you know I'm not coming back. Of course, he bowed. Amelia rolled her eyes. Arista handed the letters to Nimbus and, for no particular reason, gave him a kiss on the cheek. Just make certain, when you are caught, that you don't drag Modena into it, Amelia said, leaving with Nimbus. What are you planning to do? Medina asked. Something I've never tried before. Something I'm not even certain I can do. Modina, I don't know what will happen. I might do some strange things. Please ignore them and don't interfere, okay? Medina nodded. Arista knelt and spread her gown out around her. She took a breath, closed her eyes, and tilted her head back. 
She took another deep breath, then sat still. She didn't move for a long time. She sat breathing very slowly, very rhythmically. Her hands opened, her arms lifted as if floating on their own, pulled by invisible strings or rising on currents of air. She began to sway gently from side to side, her hair flowing back and forth. Soon she began to hum. The humming took on a melody, and the melody produced words Modina did not understand. Then Arista began to glow. The light grew brighter with each word, her dress turned pure white, her skin luminous. It soon hurt Modina's eyes to look at her, so she turned away. The light went out. Did it work? Modina asked. She turned back to face Arista and gasped. When Arista opened the door, the guards stared at her, stunned. Your Grace, I didn't see you come in. You should be more watchful then. Arista said, frightened by the sound of her own voice, so familiar and yet so different. The guard bowed. Yes, Your Grace, I will. Thank you, Your Grace. Arista hurried down the stairs, self-conscious and fearful, as she clutched three strands of hair in her left hand and a chunk of chalk in her right. She felt exposed, walking openly in the hallways, after hiding for so long. She didn't feel any different. Only by looking at her hands and clothing could she see evidence that the spell had worked. She was wearing imperial robes, and her hands were those of an old man with thick, gaudy rings. Each servant or guard she passed nodded respectfully, saying softly, Good afternoon, Your Grace. Growing up with Solda, Practically as her uncle, at one advantage, she knew every line of his face, his mannerisms, and his voice. She was certain she could not perform a similar illusion with Modena, Amelia, or Nimbus, even if she had them in front of her for reference. This took more. She knew Saldor. By the time she reached the first floor of the palace, she was gaining confidence. Only two concerns remained. What if she ran into the real Soldor, and how long would the spell last? Stumbling through what had to be an advanced magical technique, she had worked solely by intuition. She had known what she wanted, and had a general idea how to go about it, but the result had been more serendipity than skill. So much of magic was guesswork and nuance. She was starting to understand that now, and couldn't help being pleased with herself. Unlike what she had managed in the past, this was completely new, something she had not even known was possible. Casting an enchantment on herself was a frightening prospect. What if there were rules against such things? What if the source of the art forbade it and imposed harm on those who tried? She never would have attempted it under different circumstances, but she was desperate. Still, having done so, and succeeded, she felt thrilled. She had invented it. 
Perhaps no wizard had ever managed such a thing. Your Grace! Edith Mon was caught by surprise, coming around a corner where they nearly collided. She carried a stack of sheets in her arms and nearly lost them. Forgive me, Your Grace, I... I... Think nothing of it, my dear. The my dear at the end of the sentence came out unconsciously. It just felt right. Hearing it sent a chill through her, which proved it was pitch perfect. This might be fun, if not for the mortal fear. A thought popped into her head. I've heard reports that you've been treating your staff poorly. Your Grace? Edith asked, looking nervous. I... I don't know what you mean. Arista leaned toward her with a smile that she knew from experience would appear all the more frightening for its friendly, disarming quality. You aren't going to lie to my face, are you, Edith? Ah, uh, no, sir. I don't like it, Edith. I don't like it at all. It breeds discontent. If you don't stop, I'll need to find a means of correcting your behavior. Do you understand me? Edith's eyes were wide. She nodded as if her head were hinged too tight. I'll be watching you. I'll be watching very closely. With that, Arista left Edith standing frozen in the middle of the corridor, clutching her bundle of sheets. The guards at the front entrance bowed and opened the doors for her. Stepping outside, her senses were alert for any sign of trouble. She could smell the bread in the ovens of the bakehouse. To her left, a boy chopped wood, and ahead of her, two lads shoveled out the stable, placing manure in a cart, no doubt for use in the garden. The afternoon air was cold and the manure steamed. She could see her breath puffing in steamy clouds as she marched between the brick chicken coop and the remnants of the garden. She reached the north tower, opened the door, and entered. A serrette knight, with a deadly-looking sword strapped to his belt, stood at attention. He said nothing, and she did the same while looking about. The tower was cylindrical, with arched windows that allowed light to stream in and gleam off the polished stone floor. A tall, arched frame formed the entrance to the spiral stair. Across from it, a small fireplace provided heat for the guard. Covered in cobwebs, a wooden bench stood beside a small, empty, four-legged table. The only unusual thing was the stone of the walls. The rough-hewn rock of the upper portion of the tower was lighter in color than the more neatly laid, darker stone beneath. The knight appeared uncomfortable at her silence. Is everything all right here? Arista asked, going for the most neutral thing she could think of. Yes, Your Grace, he replied enthusiastically. Very good, she said, and casually shuffled to the stairs and began to climb. 
She glanced behind her to see if the guard would follow, but he remained where he was without even looking in her direction. She went up one flight and stopped at the first open cell. Just as Amelia had reported, it appeared to have been long abandoned. She checked to make certain the cell door would not lock, and then carefully closed it. She got on her knees, quickly drawing the circle and the runes. She placed the blonde hairs on the floor, lining them up in rows. Picking up several pieces of straw, she twisted them tightly into a rope stalk. She repeated the phrase she had used for weeks, and instantly the top of the straw caught fire, becoming a tiny torch. She recited the location spell and touched the flame to one of the hairs. It heated up like a red coil and turned to ash. Arista looked for the smoke, but there was none. She glanced around the room, confused. She looked at the smoke coming off the straw. It drifted straight up. There was no wind, no draft of any kind in the cell. She tried again with the second hair, this time putting out the straw thinking its smoke might be interfering. Instead, she cast the burn directly on the hair, followed by the location incantation. The hair turned to ash without a trace of the familiar light grey smoke. Was something about the tower blocking her spell? Could it be like the prison where they had kept Ezra Hardin? The old empire had placed complicated runes on the walls, blocking the use of magic. She looked around. The walls were bare. No, she thought. I wouldn't be able to cast the burn spell if that were the case. For that matter, my Soldor guys would have failed the moment I entered. Looking down, she saw that there was only one hair left. She considered moving to a different room, and then the answer dawned on her. Reciting the spell once more, she picked up the last hair, held it between her fingers, and lit it. There it is. The smoke was pure white now, and spilled straight down between her fingers like a trickle of water. It continued to fall until it met the floor, where it immediately disappeared. She stood in the cell, trying to figure out what it meant. According to the smoke, Gaunt was very close, and directly below her. But there was nothing down there. She considered that perhaps there might be a door in the fireplace, but concluded the opening was too small. There simply was nothing else below her except... The God! Arista gasped. She checked her hands, reassured to see the wrinkled skin and ugly rings, and went back down the stairs to the base of the tower. The guard remained standing statue-like, with his helm covering every trace of his features. Remove your helm, she ordered. The knight hesitated only briefly, then complied. She knew exactly what Deegan Gaunt looked like from his image in Avampartha. The moment he removed his helm, her hopes disappeared. This was not the man she had seen in the Elven Tower. She forgot herself for a moment and sighed in a most un like way. 
Is something wrong, Your Grace? Ah,、uh, no, no," she replied quickly, and started to leave. I assure you, sir, I told her nothing of the prisoner. I refused to speak a single word. Arista halted. She pivoted abruptly, causing her robes to sweep around her majestically. The dramatic motion had a visible impact on the guard, and she finally understood why Solder always did that. Are you certain? Yes, he declared, but doubt crossed his face. Did she say differently? If she did, she's lying. Arista said nothing, but merely continued to stare at him. This was not an intentional act. She was simply trying to determine what to say next. She wasn't sure how to form her statement to get the knight to talk without being obvious. As she stood there formulating her next words, the knight broke under her stare. Okay, I did threaten to unsheath my sword, but I didn't. I was very careful about that. I only pulled it part way out. The tip never cleared the sheath. I swear. I just wanted to scare her off. She didn't see anything. Watch. The knight pulled his sword and gestured toward the floor. See, nothing. Arista's eye immediately focused on the large emerald in the pommel, and she bit her tongue to restrain herself. It all made sense. There was only one thing still to learn. To inquire was a gamble, but a good one. She thought. Arista asked, "Did Gaunt like his soup?" She held her breath as she waited for his answer. He ate it, but none of them ever like it. Very good," she said, and left. When Arista returned, Modena did not speak a word. After admitting her, the Empress stood watching cautiously. Arista started to laugh. Then rushed forward and gave her an unexpected hug. We've found him. Chapter Twenty One. Drumendor. Led by a fast-walking Tenkin warrior, the few remaining members of the Emerald Storm's crew made their way down from the Palace of the Four Winds. Through a series of damp caves to the base of the blackened cliffs, where the surf attacked the rock. In a tiny cove, a little sloop waited for them. Smaller and narrower than the darker vessel, the ship sported two decks, but only a single mast. Wyatt rapidly looked the ship over, declaring it sound, and Poe checked for provisions, finding it fully stocked for a month-long trip. They quickly climbed aboard. Poe and Hadrian cast off while Wyatt grabbed the wheel. Durning and Royce ran up the mast and loosed the headsail, which billowed out handsomely. The power of the wind just off the point was so strong that the little sloop lurched forward, knocking Poe off his feet. He got up and wandered to the bow. Look at them! They're everywhere," he said. Motioning at the hundreds of black sails filling the harbor like a hive of bees, let's just hope they let us through," Durning said. "We'll get through," Hadrian told them. 
He was seated on a barrel, holding Wesley's hat, turning it over and over. Hadrian had refused to leave Wesley and Grady in Arandabon's hands. Their bodies had been brought aboard for a proper burial at sea. He kept Wesley's hat. He wasn't sure why. He was a good man, Royce said. Yes, he was. They both were, Durning added. The tiny sloop was a bit hard to manage with just the five of them, but it would be ideal once they picked up Banner and Grieg in Dagestan. It was a fast ship, and they were confident they could reach Todel Four in time. The armada of Tenkin and Gazelle ships looked to be still gathering. Jacob, trim the foresail. I'm bringing her over two points, Wyatt snapped as he gripped the slick ship's wheel. And everyone, jump lively. We're in the Baran Archipelago, and this is no place for slow-witted sailors. The moment they cleared the cove, they understood Wyatt's warning. Here the sea was a torrent of wave-crashed cliffs and splintered islands of jagged rock. Towering crags rose from dense fog, and blind reefs of murderous coral lay in ambush. Currents coursed without reason, rogue waves crashed without warning, and everywhere the dark water teemed with sweeping triangles of black canvas, each emblazoned with white slashes that looked vaguely like a skull. The gazelle ships spotted them the moment they cleared the point. Five abruptly changed course and swooped in. The black ships of the Baran gazelle made the Dhaka look like incompetent ferrymen as they channeled through the surf and flew across the waves. "'Run up the damn colours!' Wyatt shouted, but Royce was already hauling the black banner with white markings that stretched out long and thin." There was a brief moment of tension as Hadrian watched the approaching sails. He started to curse himself for trusting Arandabon Gill. But after the colours were hoisted, the sails peeled away like a shiver of sharks, swinging around to resume their earlier paths. Wyatt cranked the wheel until they were headed for Dagestan, and ordered Royce to the top of the masthead to watch for reefs. No one spoke after that except for Royce, who shouted out obstacles, and Wyatt, who barked orders. It took only a few hours for them to clear the last of the jagged little islands, leaving both the archipelago and the black sails behind. The little sloop rolled easily as it entered the open waters of the Gazelle Sea. The crew relaxed. Wyatt set a steady course. He leaned back against the rail, caught the sea spray in his hand and wiped his face as he looked out at the ocean. Hadrian sat beside him, head bowed, while he turned Wesley's hat over in his hands. Arandabon had sent a messenger to Hadrian as they had left the arena. The search for Ali had produced no results. All previous shipments had been delivered to the gazelle weeks earlier. He knew females— especially young ones, were considered a rare delicacy. She was dead, likely eaten alive by a high-ranking goblin who would have savoured the feast by keeping the girl conscious as long as possible. For Gazelle, screams were a garnish.
Hadrian sighed. Wyatt, I've something to tell you. Ali, Wyatt waited. As part of the deal, I made Gil investigate the whereabouts of your daughter. The results weren't good. Ali is dead. Wyatt turned to gaze once more at the ocean. You? You made that part of the deal? Asking about my daughter? Yeah. Gil was a little put out, but... What if he said no? I wasn't going to accept that answer. But he could have killed all of us. Adrian nodded. She's your daughter. If I thought she was alive, trust me, Royce and I would be on it, even if that meant heading back into the Baran Islands. But, well, I'm really sorry. I wish I could have done more. He looked down at the hat in his hands. I wish I could have done a lot more. Wyatt nodded. We can still save Tour de Four, Hadrian told him. And we wouldn't have that chance without you. If we succeed, she won't have died in vain. Wyatt turned to look at Hadrian. He opened his mouth, then stopped and looked away again. I know, Hadrian said, once more fidgeting with Wesley's hat. I know. Grieg and Banner were pleased to see them. Knights living on the little Dakar ship were getting cold, and provisions were dangerously low. They had already resorted to selling nets and sails to buy food in town. They made a hasty sail of the Dakar ship, since the Tenkin vessel was far faster and already loaded. Wyatt aimed the bow homeward, catching the strong autumn trade winds. The closer they came to home, the colder it got. The southern currents that helped warm Calais did not reach Delgos, and soon the wind turned biting. A brief rainstorm left a thin coat of ice on the sheets and deck rails. Wyatt continued at the helm, refusing to sleep until he was near collapse. Hadrian concluded that, failing to find Ali, Wyatt placed his absolution in saving Delgos instead. In a way, he was certain that they all did. Many good people had died along the trip, and they each felt the need to make those sacrifices mean something. Even Royce, suffering once more from seasickness, managed to climb to the top of the mainsail, where he replaced the gazelle banner with Mr. Wesley's hat. They explained to Grieg and Banner the events of the previous weeks, as well as Merrick's plan and the need to reach Drumondor before the full moon. Each night they watched the moon rise larger on the face of the sea, indifferent to their race against time. Fortune and the wind were with them. Wyatt captured every breath, granting them excellent speed. Roy spotted red sails off the port aft twice, but they remained on the horizon, and each time vanished quietly in their wake. Short-handed, and with Roy seasick, Hadrian volunteered for mast work. Durning spent the days teaching him the ropes. He would never be very good at it. He was too big yet he managed to grasp the basics. 
After a few days, he was able to handle most of the manoeuvres without instruction. At night, Poe cooked while Hadrian sat practising knots and watching the stars. Instead of hugging the coast up to West Baden, they took a risk and sailed due west off the tip of Calais directly across Dagestan Bay. The gamble almost proved to be a disaster as they ran into a terrible storm producing mountainous waves. Wyatt expertly guided the little sloop, riding the raging swells with half-canvas set, never leaving the wheel. Seeing the helmsman's rain-lashed face exposed in a flash of lightning, Hadrian seriously began to wonder if Wyatt had gone mad. By morning, the sky had cleared, and they could all see Wesley's hat still blowing in the wind. The gamble paid off. Two days ahead of the harvest moon, they rounded the Horn of Delgos and entered Tolando Bay. As they approached the harbour, the port authorities stopped them. They didn't care for the style of the ship or the black sails, Wesley's hat notwithstanding. As the ship was held directly under the terrifying smoking spouts of Drumendor, dock officers boarded and searched the vessel thoroughly before allowing them to pass below the bridge between the twin stone towers. Even then, they were given an escort to berth 58, slip 22 of the West Harbour. Being familiar with the city and the port authority, Wyatt volunteered to notify the officials of the impending invasion and warned them to search for signs of sabotage. "'I'm off, mates,' Durning announced, as soon as they had the ship berthed. The topman had a small bundle over his shoulder. "'What about the ship and the stores?' Grieg asked. "'We're going to sell it. You'll get a share.' "'Keep it. I've business to attend to.' "'But what if we can't get—' Grieg gave up as Durning trotted away into the narrow streets. "'That seemed a bit abrupt.' Man's in a hurry to go somewhere. Or just glad to be back in civilization, Banner mentioned. Tour de welcomed sailors like no other port. Brightly painted buildings with exuberant decorations welcomed them to a city filled with music and mirth. Most of the shops and taverns butted up against the docks, where loud signs fought for attention. The drunken sailor, join the crew! Fresh beef and poultry, pipes, breeches, and hats. Ladies of the bay, we wring the salt out. For recently paid sailors who might have been at sea for two or more years, they screamed paradise. The only oddity remained the size and shapes of the buildings. Whimsical western decorations couldn't completely hide the underlying history of this once dwarven city. Above every door and threshold was the sign, Watch your head! Seagulls cried above them as they crisscrossed a brilliant blue sky. Water lapped the sides of ships, which creaked and moaned like living beasts stretching after a long run. Hadrian stepped onto the dock alongside Royce, Feels like you're going to fall over, doesn't it? To answer your question from before, no, I don't think we should be sailors. 
I'd be happy never to see a ship again. At least you don't have to worry about land sickness. Still feels like the ground is pitching beneath me. The five of them bought fresh cooked fish from dock fenders and ate on the pier. They listened to shanty tunes spilling out of the taverns and smelled the pungent fishy reek of the harbour. By the time Wyatt returned to the ship, he was red-faced angry. They're going through with the venting. They refuse to listen to anything I said, he shouted, trotting up the quay. What about the invasion? Adrian asked. Didn't you tell them about that? They didn't believe me. Even Livet Glim, the port controller. And we were once mates. I shared a bunk with him for two years, and the bloody bastard refuses to, as he puts it, turn the entire port on its ear because one person thinks there might be an attack. He says they haven't heard anything from any other ships, and they won't do a thing unless the Armada is confirmed by other captains. It'll be too late by then. I tried to tell them that, but they went on about how they had to regulate the pressure on the full moon. I went to every official in the city, but no one would listen. After a while, I think they became suspicious that I was up to something. I stopped when they threatened to lock me up. I'm sorry. Maybe if we all went... Wyatt shook his head. It won't do any good. Can you believe this? After all we've been through, we get here and it won't change a single thing. Unless... He looked directly at Hadrian. Unless what? Poe asked. Hadrian sighed and looked at Royce, who nodded. What am I missing? Poe asked. Drumentor was built by dwarves thousands of years ago, Hadrian explained. Those huge towers are packed with stone gears and hundreds of switches and levers. The Tour de Four Port Authority only knows what a handful of them actually do. They know how to vent the pressure and blow the spouts, and that's about it. We know how to shut it off, Royce said. Shut it off? Poe asked. How do you shut off a volcano? Not the volcano, the system, Adrian went on. There's a master switch that locks the whole gearing system. Once dropped, the fortress doesn't build pressure anymore. The volcano just vents itself. It won't be able to stop the invasion, but it won't explode either. How does that help? If nothing else, it'll prevent the instant destruction of this city. When the black sails appear, people might have time to evacuate, maybe even put up a defence. Once the system is shut down, Royce and I can crawl through the portals to find out what Merrick did. If we can get it fixed in time, we can raise the master switch and barbecue an armada of very surprised goblins. Can we help? Banner asked. Not this time, Hadrian told him. Can you forehandle this ship alone? Wyatt nodded. It will be tough with no topmen, but we'll work something out. Good. Then you get out of here before the fleet comes in. You're a good assistant, Poe. Stick with Wyatt, and you'll be a captain one day. This one we have to do alone.
Legend held that dwarves had existed centuries before man walked the face of the world. Back in an age when they and the elves had fought for supremacy of a land, dwarves had a powerful and honourable nation governed by their own kings, with their own laws and traditions. That had been a golden age of great feats, wondrous achievements, and marvellous heroes. Then the elves won the war. The strength of the dwarves had been shattered forever, and the emergence of men had destroyed what remained. Although dwarves had never been enslaved like the remnants of the elves, men distrusted and shunned the sons of Drome. Fearful of a unified dwarven kingdom, humans had forced the dwarves out of their homeland of Delgos into a shadowy existence of nomadic persecution. Despite the dwarves' skill in crafts, humans scattered them whenever they gathered in groups too large for comfort. For their own survival, dwarves had learned to hide. Those who could adopted human ways and attempted to fit in. Their culture had been obliterated by centuries of careful erasure. Little survived of their former glory, except what stone could tell. Few dwarves, and even fewer humans, possessed the imagination to recall a day when dwarves had ruled half the world, unless, like Royce and Hadrian, they were staring up at Drumendor. The light of the setting sun bathed the granite rock, making it shine like silver. Sheer walls towered hundreds of feet, rising out of the bedrock of the burning mountain's back. The twin towers stood joined by the thin line of what appeared from that distance to be a wafer-thin bridge. The tops of the towers smoldered quietly, leaking plumes of dark smoke out of every vent, creating a thin grey cloud that hovered overhead. Up close, the scope and mammoth size were breathtaking. They had one night and the following day to accomplish the same magic trick they had performed many years earlier. By the time they purchased the necessary supplies, it was dark. They slipped through the city of Tour d'Alfour and hiked up into the countryside, following goat paths into the foothills that eventually led to the base of the great fortress itself. "'Is this where it was?' Royce asked stopping and studying the base of the tower. "'How should I know?' Hadrian replied, as his eyes coursed up the length of the south tower. Up close, it blocked everything else out, a solid wall of black rising against the light of the moon. "'I can never understand why such small people build such gigantic things. "'Maybe they're compensating,' Royce said, dropping several lengths of rope." Damn it, Royce. It's been eight years since we did this. I was in better shape then. I was younger. And if I recall, I vowed I would never do it again. That's why you shouldn't make vows. The moment you do, fate starts conspiring to shove them down your throat. Hadrian sighed, staring upward. That's one tall tower. And if the dwarves were still here maintaining it, it would be impregnable. Lucky for us, they've let it rot. You should be happy, 
The last eight years would only have eroded it further. It should be easier. It's granite, Royce. Granite doesn't erode much in eight years. Royce said nothing, as he continued to lay out coils of rope, checking the knots in the harnesses and slipping on his hand claws. Do you recall that I nearly fell last time? Adrian asked. So, don't step there this time. Do you remember what the nice lady in the jungle village told you? One light will go out. We either climb this or let the place blow. We let the place blow and Merrick wins. Merrick wins, he gets away and you never find Deegan Gaunt. I never thought you cared all that much if I ever found Gaunt. Adrian looked up at the tower again. At least not that much. Honestly, I don't care at all. This whole quest of yours is stupid. So you find Gaunt. What then? You follow him around being his bodyguard for the rest of your life? What if he's like Ballantyne? Wouldn't that be fun? Granted, it'll be exciting, as I'm sure everyone with a sword will want to kill him. But who cares? There's no reward, no point to it. You feel guilt, I can't get that. You ran out on your father and you can't say you're sorry anymore. So for that, you'll spend your life following this guy around being his butler? You're better than that. I think there was a compliment in there somewhere, so... thanks. But if you're not doing this to help me find Gaunt, why are you? Royce paused. From a bag he drew out Wesley's hat. He must have fetched it down before they left the ship. He stuck his neck out for me three times. The last one got him killed. There's no way this fortress is blowing up. Even in the dark, Royce found handholds and spots to place his feet that Hadrian could never have spotted in the full light of day. Like a spider, he scaled the side of the tower until he came to the base of the first niche. There he set his first anchor and dropped a stone to Hadrian. By the time Hadrian reached the foothold of that niche, Royce was already nailing in his next pin and sending down another coil. They continued this way, finding minute edges where several thousand years of erosion revealed the maker's seams in the rock. Centuries-old crevices and cracks allowed Royce to climb what had once been slick, smooth stone. Two hours later, the trees below appeared like tiny bushes, and the cold, wintry winds buffeted them like barn swallows. They were only a third of the way up. "'It's time!' Royce shouted over the howl of the wind. He anchored a pin, tied a rope to it, and climbed back down. Hadrian groaned. I hate this part. Sorry, buddy. Nothing I can do about it. The niches are all over that way. Royce gestured across to where the vertical grooves cut into the rock on the far side of a deep crevasse. Royce tied the rope to his harness and linked himself to Hadrian. Now, just watch me, Royce told him and taking hold of the rope, he sprinted across the stone face. Reaching the edge of the crevasse, he leapt, swinging out like a clock's pendulum. 
he cleared the gap by what looked like only a few inches. On the far side, he clung to the stone, dangling like a bug on a twig. He slowly pulled himself up and drove another pin. Then, after tying off the rope, he waved to Hadrian. If Hadrian missed the jump, he would slip into the crevasse, where he would end up dangling helplessly, assuming the rope held him. The force of the fall could easily pop out the holding pin or even snap the rope. He took a deep breath of cold air, steadied himself, and began to run. On the far side, Royce leaned out for him. He reached the edge and jumped. The wind whistled past his face, blurring his vision as tears streaked across his cheeks. He struck the far side just short of the landing, bashing his head hard enough to see stars. He tasted blood and wondered if he had lost his front teeth even as his fingertips lost their tenuous hold, and he began to fall. Royce tried to grab him, but it was too late. Hadrian fell. He dropped about three inches. Hadrian dangled from the rope Royce had anchored the moment his partner had landed. Hadrian groaned in pain while wiping blood from his face. See? Royce shouted in his ear. That went much better than last time. They continued scaling upward, working with the relative shelter of the vertical three-sided chimneys. They were too high now for Hadrian to see anything except the tiny lights of the port city. Everything else below was darkness. They rested for a time in the semi-sheltered niche and then climbed upward again. Higher and higher, Royce led the way. Hadrian's hands were sore from gripping the rope and burned from the few times he had slipped. His legs, exhausted and weak, quivered dangerously. The wind was brutal. Gusting in an eddy caused by the chimney they followed, it pushed outward like an invisible hand trying to knock them off. The sun came up, and Hadrian was nearing the end of his endurance when they finally reached the bridge. They were slightly more than two-thirds of the way, but thankfully they didn't need to reach the top. What appeared from the ground to be a thin bridge was actually forty feet thick. They scrambled over the edge, hauled up their ropes, ducked into a sheltered archway, and sat in the shadows, catching their breath. I'd like to see Durning scale that, Royce said, looking down. I don't think anyone but you could manage it, Hadrian replied. Nor is there anyone crazy enough to try. Dozens of men guarded the great gates at the base of the tower, but no one was on the bridge. It was thought to be impossible for intruders to enter from the top, and the cold wind kept the workers inside. Royce gave the tall, slender stones a push. Locked? Hadrian asked. Royce nodded. Let's hope they haven't changed the combination. Hadrian chuckled. Took you eighteen hours last time, right after you told me this will only take a minute. Remind me again why I brought you? Royce asked, fanning his hands out across the embossed face of the doors. Ah, here it is. 
Royce placed his fingers carefully and pushed. A hundred tons of solid stone glided inward, as if on a cushion of air, rotating open without a sound. Inside, an enormous cathedral ceiling vaulted hundreds of feet above them. Shafts of morning sunshine entered through distant skylights built into the dome overhead, revealing a complex world of bridges, balconies, archways, and a labyrinth of gears. Some gears lay flat, while others stood upright. Some were as small as a copper coin, and then there were those that were several stories tall and thicker than a house. A few rotated constantly, driven by steam created from the volcanic superheated seawater. The majority of the gears, particularly the big ones, remained motionless, waiting. Aside from the mechanisms, nothing else moved. The only sounds were the regular ratcheting rhythm and the whirl of the great machine. Royce scanned the interior. Nobody home, he said at length. Wasn't last time either. I'm surprised they haven't tightened security up more. Oh, yeah. A single break-in after centuries is something to schedule your guards around. They'll be kicking themselves tomorrow. They found the stairs. Short, shallow steps built for little feet. Royce and Hadrian took them two and three at a time. Ducking under low archways, Hadrian nearly had to crawl through the entrance to the big room. This was the name Hadrian had given it the last time they had visited. The room itself was huge, but the name came from the master gear. It stood on edge, and what they could see was as high as a castle tower, but most of its bulk sunk beneath the floor and through a wall, leaving only a quarter of the gear visible. Its edge was ringed with thick teeth like a castle battlement, only larger. Much larger. It meshed with two other gears, which connected to a dozen more that joined the dwarven puzzle. The lock was at the top, right? Royce asked. Think so, yeah. Gravis was up there when we found him. Okay, I'll handle this. Keep an eye out. Royce leapt up to one of the smaller gears and walked up the teeth like they were a staircase. He jumped from one to the next until he reached the master gear. Harder to climb since the teeth were huge, but for Royce it was no problem. He was soon out of sight, and a few minutes later a loud stone-upon-stone stone sound echoed as a giant post of rock descended from the ceiling, settling in the valley between two teeth, locking the great gear. When Royce returned... He was grinning happily. I'd love to see the look on Merrick's face when this place doesn't blow. Even if the gazelle take the city, he'll be scratching his head for months. There's no way they can know about this master switch. Gravis only knew it because it was his ancestor that designed the place. And we only know because we caught him in the act. Hadrian thought a moment. Do you think Merrick might be nearby, waiting for the fireworks? Royce sighed. Of course not. If it were me, I wouldn't be within a hundred miles of this explosion. I don't even want to be here now. Don't worry. I know him.
The fact that this mountain doesn't explode will drive him nuts. All we have to do is drop the right hints to the wrong people, and we won't have to look for him. He'll find us. Now come on. Let's see if we can find what's blocking the vents, so we can put this back in place and cook some goblins. Chapter 22 Going Home Archibald Ballantyne stared out of the window of the Great Hall. It looked cold. Brown grass, blowing dead leaves, clouds that looked heavy and full of snow, and geese that flew away before a veil of grey, all reminded him the seasons had changed. Wintertide was less than two months away. He kicked the stone of the wall with his boot. It made a muffled thud and sent a pain up his leg, making him wince. Why do I have to think of that? Why do I always have to think of that? Behind him, Saldor, Ethelred, and Biddings debated something, but he wasn't listening. He didn't care anymore. Maybe he should leave. Maybe he should take a small retinue and just go home to Chadwick and the sanctity of his grey tower. The palace would be a wreck by now, and he could busy himself with repairing the damage the servants had caused in his absence. Bruce had likely been dipping into his brandy store, and the tax collectors would be behind in their duties. It would feel nice to be home for the holiday. He could invite a few friends and his sister over for— He stopped and considered kicking the wall again, but it had hurt enough last time. Sleeping in a tent this time of year would be miserable. Besides, what would the regent say? Moreover, what would they do in his absence? They treated him badly enough when he was here. How much worse would they conspire against him if he left? He didn't really want to be home. Ballantyne Castle could be a lonely place, all the more horrid in winter. He used to dream of how all that would change when he married, when he had a beautiful wife and children. He used to fantasize about Alenda Lenachlan. She was a pretty thing. He also often imagined taking the hand of King Armand's daughter, Princess Beatrice. She was certainly appealing. He had even spent many a summer evening watching the milkmaids in the field and contemplating the possibility of snatching one from her lowly existence to be the new Lady Ballantyne. How grateful she would be, how dutiful, how easily controlled. That had been before he had come to Equesta. Before he had met her. Even sleep gave him no solace, as he dreamed about Modena now. He danced with her on their own wedding day. He despised waking up. Archibald didn't even care about the title anymore. He would give up the idea of being emperor if he could have her. He even considered that he would give up being earl. But she was marrying Ethelred. He refused to look at the regent. The fool cared nothing for her. 
How could he be so cold as to force a girl to marry him just for the political benefit? The man was a blackguard. Archie! Archie! Ethelred was calling him. He cringed at the mention of the name he hated and turned from the window with a scowl. Archie, you need to talk to your man Brecton. What's wrong with him now? He's refusing to take my orders. He insists he serves only you. You need to set him straight on the lay of things. We can't have knights whose allegiance is strictly to their lords. They have to recognize the supremacy of the new empire and the chain of command. Seems to me that's what he's doing, observing the chain of command. Yes, yes, but it's more than that. He's becoming obstinate. I'm going to be the emperor in a couple of months, and I can't have my best general requiring that I get your permission to give him an order. I'll speak with him, Archibald said miserably, mostly just so he could stop listening to Ethelred's voice. If the old bastard were not such an accomplished soldier, he would seriously consider challenging him. But Ethelred had fought in dozens of battles, while Archibald had engaged only in practice duels with blunt-tipped swords. Even if he wanted to commit suicide, he certainly would not give Ethelred the satisfaction. "'What about Modena?' Ethelred asked. The mention of her name brought Archibald's attention back to the conversation. "'Will she be ready?' "'Yes, I think so,' Saldo replied. "'Amelia has been doing wonders with her.' "'Amelia?' Ethelred tapped his forehead. "'Isn't she the maid you promoted to Chief Imperial Secretary?' "'Yes,' Saldo said. "'And I've been thinking that, after the wedding, I want to keep her on.' We'll have no use for her after the wedding. I know, but I think I could use her elsewhere. She's proven herself to be both intelligent and resourceful. Do whatever you like with her. I certainly don't. Queens always have needs of secretaries, even if they have husbands, Archibald interrupted. I understand you're going to assume total control of the new empire, but she'll still need an assistant. Ethelred looked at Solda with a puzzled expression. He doesn't know. Now what? Archibald asked. Solda shook his head. I felt the fewer that knew, the better. After the wedding, Ethelred told Archibald, once I'm crowned emperor, I'm afraid Modena will have an unfortunate accident. A fatal accident. It's all been arranged, Nimbus reported. Arista paced the room, and Modena sat alone on the bed. I got the uniform to him, and tonight the farmer will smuggle Hilfred into the gate just before sunset in the haycart. Will they check that? Arista asked pausing in her journey across the room. Not any more. Not since they called off the witch hunt. Things are business as usual again. They know the farmer. He's in and out every third day of the week. Arista nodded and resumed her pacing. The same wagon will cart you all out at dawn, 
You'll go out through the city gates. There will be three horses waiting at the crossroads for you with food, water, blankets, and extra clothing. Thank you, Nimbus. Arista hugged the beanpole of a man, bringing a blush to his cheeks. Are you sure this will work? Modena asked. I don't see why not, Arista said. I'll do just what I did last time. I'll become Soldor, and Hilfred will be a fourth-floor guard. You're sure you took the right uniform? Nimbus nodded. I'll order the guard to open the entrance to the prison. We'll grab Gaunt and leave. I'll instruct the Serret to remain on duty and tell no one. Believing I'm Soldor, no one will know he's gone for hours, maybe even days. I still don't understand. Modena looked puzzled. Amelia said there was a prison in the tower, but all the cells were empty. There is a secret door in the floor, a very cleverly hidden door, sealed with a gemlock. What's a gemlock? A precious stone cut to produce a specific vibration that when held near the door trips the lock open. I used a magical variation on my tower door back home, and the church used a far more sophisticated version to seal the main entrance to Gutara prison. They're using the same thing here, and the key is the emerald in the pommel of the sword the Seret knight wears. So, you'll make your escape tonight? The Empress asked. Arista nodded. The Empress looked down, a sadness creeping into her eyes. What's wrong? Arista asked. Nothing. I'm just going to miss you. Arista's stomach twisted as she looked out the window and watched the sun set. Am I being foolish? Her plan had always been to merely locate Gaunt, not break him out. Now that she knew exactly where he was, she could return home and have Ulrich send Royce and Hadrian to rescue him. Only that had been before. Before she had found Hilfred. Before she had been reunited with Thrace. And before she had known she could impersonate Soldor. It seemed like such an easy thing to do that leaving without Gaunt would be an unnecessary risk. The smoke verified that he still lived, but could she be sure that would be the case several weeks from then? She was alone with Modena. They hadn't said a word to each other for hours. Something was troubling the Empress, something more than usual. Modena was stubborn, and no force could move her once she decided on a course. Apparently the course she had decided on was not to talk. The gate opened, and the haycart entered. Arista watched intently. Nothing seemed amiss. No guards, no shouting, just a thick pile of hay and a slow-walking donkey pulling it. The farmer, an elderly man, parked the cart by the stables, unhitched his donkey, hitched it to a new cart, and led the animal out again. Staring at the cart, she couldn't help herself. The plan had been to wait until just before dawn, but she couldn't leave Hilfred lying there. 
She managed to restrain herself only until she saw the harvest moon begin to rise, and then she stood. It's time, she said. Modina lifted her head. Arista walked to the middle of the room and knelt. Arista, I... Modina began hesitantly. What is it? Nothing. Good luck. Arista got up and crossed the room to hug her tightly. Good luck to you too. The Empress shook her head. You keep all of it. I'm not going to be needing any. Disguised as Regent Solder, Arista travelled down the stairs, wondering what Medina had almost said. The excitement of the night, however, kept her thoughts jumping from one thing to the next. She discovered that she could remain in her disguise for a long time. It broke when she slept, but it would last beyond what she would need that night. This gave her greater confidence. Although she was still concerned about bumping into the real Soldor, the thought of seeing Hilfred again was overwhelming. Her heart leapt at just the thought of travelling home to Melangar with Hilfred once more at her side. It had been a long and tiring road, and she wanted to be home. She wanted to see Ulrich and Julian, and to sleep in her own bed. She vowed she would treat Melissa better, and planned to give her maid a new dress for Wintertide. Arista was occupied with a long list of Wintertide presents for everyone when she stepped outside. The broad face of the harvest moon illuminated the inner ward, allowing her to see as clearly as if it were a cloudy day. The courtyard was empty, and she crept to the wagon. Hilfred, she whispered. There was no response, no movement in the hay. Hilfred. She shook the wagon. It's me, Arista. She waited. Her heart skipped a beat when the hay moved. Princess? It said hesitantly. Yes, it's me. Just follow. She led him into the stables and to the last stall, which was vacant. We need to wait here until it's nearly dawn. Hilfred stared at her dubiously, keeping a distance. How? He began, but faltered. I thought Nimbus explained I would appear like this. He did. Hilfred's eyes travelled up and down her figure, a look on his face as if he had just tasted something awful. The rumours are true, she admitted. At least the ones about me using magic. I've known that. But your hair, your face, your voice... He shook his head. It's perfect. How do I know you're not the real Solder? Arista closed her eyes, and in an instant Solder disappeared, and the Princess of Melangar returned. Hilfred stumbled backward until he hit the rear of the stall, his eyes wide and his mouth open. It is me, she assured him. Arista took a step forward and watched him flinch. It hurt her to see this, more than she would have expected. You need to trust me, she told him. How can I? 
How can I be certain it's really you, when you trade skins so easily? Ask me a question that will satisfy you. Hilford hesitated. Ask me, Hilford. I've been with you daily since I was a very young man. Give me the names of the first three women I fell in love with, and the name of the one I lost because of the scars on my face. She smiled and felt herself blush. Arista, Arista, Arista. And no one. He smiled. She did not wait for him. She knew he would never presume to take such a step on his own. She threw her arms around his neck and kissed him. She could feel the sudden shock and the tightening of his muscles, but he didn't pull away. His body relaxed slowly, and his arms surrounded her. He squeezed so that her cheek pressed against his, her chin resting on his shoulder. Merabor, help me if you really are, Soldor, Hilford whispered in her ear. She laughed softly, and wondered if it was the first time she had done so since Emery died. Chapter 23 The Harvest Moon Royce and Hadrian began investigating the spouts, giant tunnels bored out of the rock through which molten lava would blast on its way to the sea. There were dozens, each one aiming in a different direction, their access to the mountain's core sealed off by gear-controlled portals. They climbed the interior until they reached the opening and the sky. The sun was up, and the sight below forced Hadrian's stomach into his mouth. They were well above the bridge level. The world looked very small and very far away. Tordelfur was a small cluster of petite buildings, crouched in the elbow of a little cove. Beyond it rose mountains that looked like little hills. Directly below, the sea appeared like a puddle with tiny flashes of white. It took Hadrian a moment to realize they were the crests of waves. What he thought might be insects were gulls circling far below. None of the spouts were blocked, none of the portals tampered with. Maybe it's in the other tower, Hadrian asked, after they had climbed out of the last tunnel. Royce shook his head. Even if that one is blocked, the pressure will vent here. Both have to be closed. It's not the spouts or the portals, it's something else, something we've overlooked. Something that can seal all the exits at once to make the mountain boil over. There has to be another master switch, one that locks all the portals closed. How are we going to find that? Do you see how many gears are in here? And it could be any one. We should have brought Magnus. Sure, with him it would be easy to find. In a year or two. Look at this place. Royce gestured at the breadth of the tower, where the sun's light pierced through skylights, spraying the triangled riddle of a million stone gears. Some spun, some whirled, some barely moved, and everywhere were levers. Like arrows peppering a battlefield, stone arms protruded. Just as the gears came in various sizes, 
so did the levers. Some tiny, and others were the size of tree trunks. It's a wonder they ever learned how to vent the core. Exactly, Hadrian said. No one knows what most of this stuff does anymore. The Port Authority leaves it alone for fear they might destroy the world or something, right? So whatever Merrick did, it's a sure bet the folks in charge here don't know anything about it. It's got to be a lever that hasn't been moved in centuries, maybe even thousands of years. It might show signs of recent movement, right? Maybe. So we just need to find it. Royce stared at him. What? We only have a few hours left, and you're talking about finding a displaced grain of sand on a beach. I know, and when you come up with something better, we'll try it. Until then, let's keep looking. Hours passed, and they still found nothing. Adding to the dilemma was the interior of Drumondor itself, which was a maze of corridors, archways, and bridges. Often they could see where they wanted to go, but couldn't determine how to get there. Luck remained on their side, however, as they saw precious few people. They spotted only a handful of workers and even fewer guards. All of them were easily avoided. The sunshine passing through the skylights shone with the brilliance of midday, then diminished as evening arrived, and they still had not achieved their goal. Finally, they headed for the bottom of the tower. Going there was their last resort, as the Drumondor defensive garrison fortified the first three floors. Approximately forty soldiers guarded the base, and they had a reputation for their harsh treatment of intruders. Still, whatever Merrick had done, he had most likely done it to the mechanism that controlled the lava's release. Descending yet another winding staircase, they paused in a sheltered alcove just outside a large chamber. Peering in, they saw it was similar to an interior courtyard, or a theatre, with four gallery balconies ringing it, stacked one upon the other. There! Royce pointed to an opening in the room below, which radiated a yellow glow. It has to be in there! They crept down the stairs to the bottom. Elaborate, square-cut designs of inlaid bronze and quartz lined the tiled floor. It picked up the glow, coming from the open doorway on the far side. The air warmed dramatically as it blew in their faces, heavy with the smell of sulphur. This has to be it, Royce whispered. They looked up at the stacked galleries of arched openings circling the walls above them, and slowly, carefully stepped forward together, crossing the shimmering tile, heading for the glowing doorway. Halt! The command echoed through the chamber the moment they reached the center of the room. Lie face down, arms and legs spread! They hesitated. Twenty archers appeared, moving out from behind the pillars of the galleries with stretched bows aimed down on Royce and Hadrian from three sides. Pikemen entered the hall in an orderly march, boot heels clicking on the tile. They spread out, forming two lines. A dozen more armoured men issued down the side corridor from the second-story gallery and proceeded in two-by-two two formation to the bottom of the stairs, 
fanning out to block any retreat back the way they had come. Now, lie on your bellies, or we'll cut you down where you stand. We're not here to cause trouble. We're here... Hadrian's words were cut short as an arrow hissed through the air and glinted off the stone less than a foot from them. Now! The voice shouted. They lay down. The moment they did, troops from in front and behind entered, pinning them and stripping them of their weapons. You have to listen to us. There's an invasion coming. We've heard all about your phantom armada, Mr. Blackwater, and you can give up that charade. It's real. They'll be here tonight, and if you don't fix the tower, all of Delgos will be taken. Bind them. They brought forth chains, tongs, and a brazier. Smiths arrived and went to work hammering manacles onto their wrists and legs. Listen to me, Hadrian shouted. At least check the pressure release control, see if something is wrong. There was no reply except the smiths' hammers pounding the manacles closed. What's the harm in checking? Hadrian went on. If I'm wrong, what does it matter? If I'm right, and you don't even look, you're sealing the fate of the Delgos Republic. Just humour me. Nothing else, it'll shut me up. Slitting your throat will do that too, the voice said. But I'll send a worker if you two come quietly without resistance. Hadrian wasn't certain what kind of resistance he expected them to give as the smith finished attaching another chain to his legs, but he nodded anyway. The voice gave the order, and the guards pulled them to their feet. Navigating stairs with hobbled legs was difficult. Hadrian nearly fell more than once, but soon they reached the main gate at the bottom of the fortress. The gigantic doors of stone soundlessly swept open. Outside, the late afternoon sun revealed a contingent of port soldiers waiting. The commander of the fortress guard stepped forward and spoke quietly with the port authority captain for some time. You don't think these guys were always waiting out here, do you? Hadrian whispered to Royce. We've been set up, haven't we? It didn't tip you off when they called you by name. Merrick? Who else? That's a bit far-fetched. How could he possibly expect us to be here? We didn't even know we would be here. He can't be that smart. He is. A runner appeared, trotting up from the bottom of the tower, and reported to the commander with a sharp salute. Well? the fortress commander asked. The runner shook his head. There's no problem with the pressure release control. Everything checked out fine. Take them away, the commander ordered. The Tour del Four city prison and workhouse sat back, hidden on a hillside away from the dock, the shops and the trades. It appeared as little more than a large stone box at the end of Avon Boulevard, with few windows and a spiked iron fence. Hadrian and Royce both knew it by reputation. Most offenders typically died within the first week due to execution, suicide, or brutality. The magistrate's role was merely to determine the manner of execution. 
Parole was not an option. Only those known to be serious threats went there. Petty thieves, drunks and malcontents went to the more popular and lenient portside jail. For those in Tour del Four prison, this was the end of the road, literally as well as figuratively. Royce and Hadrian hung by their wrists with their ankles chained to the wall of cell number three, where they had spent the past few hours. The room was smaller than those in Calais. There was no window, stool, nor pot, not even straw. The room was little more than a small stone closet with a single metal door. The only light came from the gap between the door and its frame. You're awfully quiet, Hadrian said to the darkness. I'm trying to figure this out, Royce replied. Figure it out? Hadrian laughed, even though his arms and wrists burned like fire from the metal cutting into his skin. We're hanging, chained to a wall, awaiting execution, Royce. There's not that much to it. Not that. I want to know why we didn't find anything wrong with the spouts. Because there's a million levers and switches in there, and we were looking for just one? I don't think so. When we got to the bridge, what was it you said? You said you didn't think anyone could scale that fortress except me. And I think you're right. I know Merrick couldn't. He's a genius, not an elf. I always outdid him when it came to anything physical. So? So a thought has been nagging me since they brought us here. How could Merrick get into Drumondor to sabotage it? He figured another way in. We spent weeks trying to do that, remember? Maybe he bribed someone on the inside, or maybe he paid someone to break in. Who? Royce thought a minute. This is too important to trust to someone who might be able to do it. He would need someone he knew could do it. But how do you know someone can do something until they've actually... Hadrian stopped himself as the realization hit. Oh, that's not good. Throughout this whole thing, we've been following two letters, both written by Merrick. The first we thought was intercepted and delivered to Alric, but what if it was intentionally sent to him? Everyone knows we work for Melengar. Which led us to the Emerald Storm, Hadrian said. Right, where we got the next letter. The one to be delivered to that crazy Tenkin in the jungle, and it just happened to mention that Drumondor was set to blow. I'm not liking where this is heading, Hadrian muttered. And what if Merrick knew about the Master Gear? That's impossible. Gravis is dead. Crushed, as I recall, under one of those big gears. Yes, he is dead, but Lord Byron isn't. He probably boasted about how he saved Drumondor by hiring two no-account thieves. It still seems too perfect. Hadrian tried to convince himself. In retrospect, sure, 
It sounds like the pieces fall into place. But there are too many things that could have gone wrong along the way. Right. That's why he had someone on board the storm, making sure it all worked. Durning. Did you see the way he took off the moment we hit port? He knew what was coming and wanted to get away. I should have let you kill him. Silence. You're nodding, aren't you? I didn't say a word. Bastard, Hadrian grumbled. You know the worst thing? I've got a pretty long list of bad things right now, and I'm not sure which one I would put on the top, so I'll bite. We did exactly what Merrick couldn't do himself. He used us to disarm Drumendor. So, he never sabotaged anything. That would explain why Gil laughed when I told him Drumendor was going to explode. He knew it wasn't. Merrick promised he would have it intact. Merrick's a bloody genius. I think I mentioned that once or twice. So now what? Hadrian asked. Now, nothing. He's beaten us. He's sitting somewhere with a warm cup of cider, smiling smugly with his feet up on the pile of money he's just been paid. We have to warn them to re-engage the master gear. Go ahead. Hadrian shouted until the little observation door opened, flooding the cell with light. We need to speak to someone. It's important. What is it? We realised the mistake we made. We were tricked. You need to tell the commander at Drumondor that we locked the master gear. We can show him where it is and how to release it. You two never stop, do you? I'm not sure if your really saboteurs are just plain nuts. One thing's for certain. We're going to find out how you got in, and then we're going to kill you. The observation door closed, casting them back into darkness. That worked out really well, Roy said. Feel better now. Bastard. Chapter 24 The Escape Arista stayed in the corner of the stable, wrapped in Hilfred's arms most of the night. He stroked her hair and, from time to time, without any particular reason, kissed her passionately. It felt safe, and lying there Arista realized two things. First, she was certain she could be content remaining in his arms forever. And second, she was not in love with Hilfred. He was a good friend, a piece of home she missed so dearly that she drank him in with a desert-born thirst, but something was missing. She thought it strange that she had come to this conclusion while in his arms, yet she knew it with perfect clarity. She did not love Hilfred, and she had not loved Emery. She wasn't even certain what love was, what it should feel like, or if it existed at all. Noble women rarely knew the men they married before their wedding day. Perhaps they grew to love their husbands in time, or merely grew to believe they did. 
At least she knew Hilfred loved her. He loved enough for both of them. She could feel it radiating off him like warmth from smoldering coals. He deserved happiness after waiting so long, after so much sacrifice, and she would make it up to him. Arista would return to Melangar and marry him. Ulrich would make him the Archduke Reuben Hilfred. She laughed softly at the thought. What? I just remembered your first name is Reuben. Hilfred laughed, then pointed to his face. I look like this, and you're making fun of my name? She took his face in her hands. I wish you wouldn't do that. I think you're beautiful. He kissed her again. Periodically, Hilfred would peek out at the sky and check the position of the moon. Eventually he returned and said, It's time. She nodded, and once more Arista transformed into the morose visage of Regent Saldor. I still can't believe it, Hilfred told her. I know. I'm really starting to get the hang of this. Care to kiss me again? She teased, and laughed at his expression. Now remember, don't do anything. The idea is to just walk in and walk out. No fighting. Understand? Hilfred nodded. They stepped out of the stable. As they did, Arista looked up at Modena's window. Although it was dark, she was certain she saw her figure sitting framed within it. Once again, she recalled Modena's final words, and regretted not asking her to come. Maybe she would have refused, but now it was too late. Arista wished she had at least asked. Nipper came out of the kitchens, yawning and carrying two empty water buckets. He stopped short, surprised to see them. She ignored him, and headed directly to the tower. Just as before, the Surette Knight stood at attention in the centre of the room, his face hidden, his shoulders back, the jewelled sword at his side. I'm going to see Deegan God. Open up. The guard drew his sword. There was a brief moment of terror when Arista's heart pounded so loudly she thought the Surette might hear it. She glanced at Hilfred and saw him flinch, his hand approaching his own weapon. Then the knight bent to one knee and lightly tapped the stone floor with the pommel. The stones immediately slid away, revealing a stair curving into the darkness. Shall I come with you, Your Grace? Arista considered this. She had no idea what was down there. It could be one cell or a maze of corridors. It might just take her a long time to discover where Gaunt was. Just outside, she heard Nipper filling his buckets. The castle was already waking up. Yes, of course. Lead of the way. As you wish, Your Grace. The knight pulled a torch from the wall and descended the steps. It was dark inside. The stair was narrow and oppressive. Ahead she could hear the sounds of faint weeping. The same heavy stones that made up the base of the tower formed the dungeon. 
Here, however, decorations adorned the walls. Nothing recognizable, merely abstract designs carved everywhere. Arista felt she had seen them before, not these exactly, but similar ones. Then she felt it. Like the snap of a twig or the crack of an egg, a tremor passed through her body, a sudden, disconcerting break. She looked down. The old man's hands were gone, and she was seeing her own fingers and sleeves revealed in the flickering torchlight. With his back turned, the knight continued to escort them. As they reached the bottom of the stairs, he began to turn, saying, "'Your Grace, I—' Before he was fully around, Hilfred shoved her aside. He drew his sword just as the knight's eyes widened. As he drove his blade at the man's chest, the black armor turned the tip. It skipped off, penetrating the gap between the chest plate and the right pauldron, piercing the man's shoulder. The knight cried out. Hilfred withdrew his sword. The knight staggered backwards, struggling to draw his own. Hilfred swung at the knight's neck. Blood exploded, spraying both of them. The serette made no further noise as he crumpled and fell. What happened? Hilfred asked, picking up the torch. The walls, she said, touching the chiseled symbols. They have runes on them, like in Gutara prison. I can't do magic in here. Do you think anyone heard that? I'm sure the kid fetching water did, he said. Will he do anything? I don't know. We should close the door, Arista said, picking up the sword with the emerald and looking up the long staircase at the patch of light at the top. What they had covered so casually minutes earlier now appeared so far, so dangerous. I'll do it. You find Gaunt. No, I won't leave your side. There could be more guards. Forget the door. We'll find him together and get out of here. He took her left hand and pulled her along. Her right hand held on to the sword. The hallways were narrow stone corridors without any light except what came from the torch they held. The ceiling arched to a peak not more than a foot above Arista's head, forcing Hilfred to stoop. Wooden doors, so short they looked more like livestock gates, began appearing on either side. Gaunt! Hilfred yelled. Tegan Gaunt! Arista shouted. They ran down the darkened passageways, pounding on doors, calling his name, and peering inside. The hallway ended at a T-intersection. With only one torch, they had no option to split up, even if Hilfred could be convinced. They turned right and pressed on, finding more doors. Tegan Gaunt! Stop! Arista stopped suddenly. What? Shh! Very faintly. Here! They trotted down the next corridor but reached a dead end. This place is a maze, Arista said. They ran back and took another turn. They called again. Here! I'm here! Came the reply, louder now. Running once more, they again met a solid wall. They retraced their steps, found another corridor that appeared to go in the right direction, and followed it as far as the hallway allowed. Tegan! she cried. Over here! called a voice from the last door in the block. When they reached it, 
Arista bent down and held up the torch. In the tiny grated window, she saw a pair of eyes. She grabbed the door handle and pulled. Locked. She tried the gemstone, but nothing happened. Damn it! She cried. The guard must have the key. Oh, how could I be so stupid? I should have searched him before he ran off. Hilfred hammered the wooden door with his sword. The hard oak, nearly as solid as stone, gave up only sliver-sized chips. We'll never get the door open this way. Your sword isn't doing anything. We have to go back for the keys. Hilfred continued to strike the door. We'll be back, Deegan, Arista said, before starting back down the hall, carrying the torch. Arista, Hilfred shouted as he chased after her. They rounded the corridors, turning left, then right, and then... Arista? Soldo said, stunned, as they nearly ran into the regent. Around him were five serret knights, with swords drawn and torches held high. Hilfred pushed Arista back. Run, he told her. Soldo stared at them for a moment, then shook his head. There is nowhere to run to, dear boy. You're both quite trapped. Soldor, his hair loose and wild, wore a white linen nightgown, over which he had pulled a red silk robe that he was still in the midst of tying about his waist. So, it was you, after all. I would not have believed it. You've been very clever, Arista, but you've always been a clever girl, haven't you? Always poking your nose into places you shouldn't. And you, Hilfred, reunited with your princess once more, I see. It's a wonderfully gallant gesture to defend her with your life, but it's also futile. And where is the honour in futility? There's no other exit from this dungeon. These men are Serret knights, highly skilled, brutally trained soldiers who will kill you if you resist. Soldo took the torch from the lead Serret, who now also drew a dagger. You have wasted half your life protecting this foolish girl, whose stupidity and rash choices have dragged you through torment and fire. Put down your sword and back away. Ilfred checked his grip and planted his feet. When I was fifteen, you told me I would die if I tried to save her. That night I ran into an inferno. I didn't listen to you then. What makes you think I will now? Saldor sighed. Don't make them kill you. Hilfred stood his ground. Stop, please, I beg you, Arista shouted. Sorely, I'll do anything you ask. Please just let him go. Persuade him to put down his sword, and I will. Hilfred, not even if you order me to, he said, his voice grave. There is no power in a land capable of making me walk away from you. Not now, not ever again. Hilfred, she whispered as tears fell. He glanced at her. In that moment of inattention, the serret saw an opening and slashed. 
Hilfred dodged. Swords clashed. No! Arista cried. Hilfred swung for the throat again, but the knight ducked. Hilfred's blade struck the wall, kicking up sparks. The knight stabbed him in the side. Hilfred gasped and staggered, but managed to lunge and thrust his sword at the knight's chest. Again, the point of the blade deflected off the black armor, but this time he was not fortunate enough to connect. Arista watched as a second knight lunged, driving his sword through Hilfred's stomach. The sword pierced his body, pushing out the back of his tunic. No! No! she screamed, falling against the wall as her knees threatened to buckle. With blood spilling from his lips, Hilfred struggled to raise his sword again. The foremost knight brought his own blade down, severing Hilfred's arm at the elbow with a burst of warm blood that splashed across Arista's face. Hilfred collapsed to his knees. His body hitched. Ah, uh, Aris, he sputtered. Oh, Hilfred. Arista whispered as her eyes burned. The knights stood over him. One raised his sword. Arista, he cried. The knight's sword came down. Arista collapsed as if the blade pierced them both. She slumped to the floor. She couldn't speak. She couldn't breathe. Her eyes locked on the dead body of Hilfred as a warm wetness pooling across the stone floor crept between her fingers. Hilfred! She mouthed the word. She had no breath left to speak it. Saldor sighed. Get him out of here. What about her? She went through so much trouble to get in. So, let's find her a nice, permanent room. Chapter 25 Invasion What do you think is going to happen? Hadrian asked Royce as they hung in the dark. The fleet will come in, and there will be no pressure to fire the spouts. The gazelle will land without opposition and slaughter everyone. Eventually, they'll reach here, break in, and butcher us. No, Hadrian said, shaking his head. See, that's where you're wrong. The gazelle will eat us alive, and they'll take their time savoring every moment. Trust me. They hung in silence. What time do you think it is? Hadrian asked. Close to sunset. It was pretty late when they brought us in. Silence. They could hear the random movements of guards on the other side of the door, muffled conversation, the slide of a chair, occasional laughter. Why does this always happen? Royce asked. Why are we always hanging on a wall, waiting to die by slow vivisection? I just want to point out that this was your idea. Again. I've been waiting for that. But I believe I told you not to come. Hadrian shifted in his chains and sighed. 
I don't suppose there's much chance of a beautiful princess coming in here and saving us again. That card's been dealt. I wish I had met Gaunt, Adrian said at length. It would have been nice to actually meet the man, you know. My whole life was fated to protect this guy, and I never even saw him. They were quiet for a time, and then Royce made a hmm sound. What? Huh? Oh, nothing. You're thinking something. What is it? Just interesting that you think Arista is beautiful. Don't you? She's okay. You're blinded by Gwen. Hadrian heard Royce sigh. There was a silence, and then he said, "She already named our children, Elias. If we had a boy, or was it Sterling? I forget. And Mercedes, if a girl. She even took up knitting and made me a scarf. For what it's worth, I'm sorry I dragged you into this. She wanted me to go. Remember." She said, "I had to protect you. I had to save your life." Hadrian looked over at him. Good job. Chairs moved in the outer office. Footsteps, a banging door, agitated voices. Hadrian caught snippets of the conversation. Black sails. A dark cloud on the ocean. No, someone else. A chair turned over and hit the floor. More hurried footsteps. Silence. Sounds like the fleet is in. Adrian waited, watching the door to their cell. They left us for dead, didn't they? We told them this would happen. We came all this way to try and save them. You'd think they'd have the decency to let us out when they saw we were right. Probably think we're behind it. We're lucky they didn't just kill us. Not sure that's lucky. A nice, quick decapitation is kind of appealing right now. How long do you think before the Baron find us? Royce asked. You in a hurry? Yeah, actually. If I have to be eaten, I would have sort of like to get it over with. Adrian heard the sound of breaking glass. Oh well, that didn't take long, did it? Royce muttered miserably. Footsteps shuffled in the outer room. There was a pause, and then the steps started again, coming closer. There were sounds of a struggle and a muffled cry. Hadrian braced himself and watched the door as it opened. What stood in the doorway shocked him. "You boys ready to go?" Durning asked. "What are you doing here?" They both said in unison. Would you prefer me to leave? Durning smiled, noticing the riveted manacles. He grimaced. Thorough buggers, aren't they? Hang on, I saw some tools out here. Royce and Hadrian looked at each other, bewildered. Okay, he's not a beautiful princess, but it works for me. There were sounds of slamming and an aha. Then Durning returned with a hammer and chisel. The Gazelle fleet arrived and Drumondor isn't working, but it didn't blow up either. So I guess we have you to thank for that. Durning told them 
as he went to work on the manacle pins. Don't mention it, and I'm not just saying that. I really mean don't mention it. Hadrian said with a wince. Now half the folks, smart half, are running. The others are going to try to fight. That means we don't have much time to get out of here. I have horses and provisions waiting just outside town. We'll take the mountain road north. I'll ride with you as far as Maranon, and then I'll be going my own way. But I still don't get why you're here," Royce said as Durning finished with one of the metal bracelets. "Don't you work for Merrick?" "Merrick Marius," Durning laughed. "That's funny. Grady and I were convinced you two worked for Marius." Durning finished cracking open the manacles on Royce, then turned to Hadrian. "We work for Cornelius Delure. You might know him. Big fat guy, father of Cosmo." He pretty much runs this country, or owns it, depending on your viewpoint. Imagine my surprise yesterday when I checked in and found out you worked for Melangar. Delure got a big kick out of that. The old fat man has his sixth sense of humour sometimes. I'm confused. Why were you on the storm? When the diamond found a message from Merrick, Cosmos thought it was important enough to relay to his daddy. Cornelius sent us to check out what was going on. Grady and I started as sailors, and are still well known on the Sharon. We were so sure Royce killed Drew, which is why we thought you two were mixed up with Merrick. We thought it had something to do with that horn comment that Drew made. Bernie killed him, Royce said simply. Yeah, we figured that out, and of course, that horn thing had nothing to do with Merrick. That was all Thranix Group. When we heard you had been arrested, it wasn't too hard to find you. He finished freeing Hadrian, who rubbed his wrists. Come on, most of your gear is out here. He pulled Alverstone out of his belt and handed it to Royce. Took this off one of the guards. I think he thought it was pretty. Outside their cell, the tiny jail office was empty except for two guards. One looked dead, but the other might have just been unconscious. They found their possessions in a series of boxes set aside in a room filled with all manner of impounded items. Outside, dawn rose, and people were running with bundles in their arms. Mothers held crying children to their breasts. Men struggled to push overfilled carts uphill. Down in the harbor, they could see a forest of dark masts. Drummondor stood a mute witness to the sacking of the city. Durning led them up refugee-choked streets. Fights broke out, roads were blocked, and finally Durning resorted to the roofs. They scaled balconies and leapt alleys, trotting across the clay-tiled housetops until they cleared the congestion. They dropped back to the street and soon reached the city's eastern gate. Hundreds of people were rushing by with carts and donkeys, women and children mostly, traveling with boys and old men. Durning stopped just outside the gates, looking worried. He whistled, and a bird call answered in response. He led them off the road and up an embankment. "Sorry, Jacob," said a spindly youth emerging with four horses. 
I figured it was best to wait out of sight. If anyone saw me with these, I wouldn't keep them for long. From the crest of the hill, they could see the bay far below. Smoke rose thickly from the buildings closest to the water. We weren't able to stop it, Durning said, looking at the refugees fleeing the city. But between you defusing the explosion and my reporting to Cornelius so he could raise the alarm, it looks like we saved a lot of lives. They mounted up, and Hadrian took one last look at Tour Delfour as the flames, fanned by the morning sea breeze, swept through the streets below. Chapter 26 Payment Merrick entered the great hall of the Imperial Palace. Servants were hanging wintertide decorations, which should have given the room a festive feel, but to Merrick it was still just a dreary chamber with too much stone and too little sunlight. He had never cared for Equesta, and regretted that it would be the capital of the new empire, an empire whose security he had ensured. He would have preferred Colnora. At least it had glass street lamps. Ah, Merrick, Ethelred greeted him. The regents, Earl Ballantyne, and the Chancellor were all gathered around the great table. Oh, should I call you Lord Marius? You should indeed, Merrick replied. You bring good news, then? The best, your lordship. Delgos has fallen. Excellent! Ethelred applauded. Merrick reached the table and pulled off his gloves, one finger at a time. The gazelle invaded Tour Delfour five days ago, meeting only a weak resistance. They took Drumondor and burned much of the port city. And the Nationalist Army? Ethelred asked sitting down comfortably in his chair, with a smile stretching across his broad face. As expected, the army packed up and went south the moment they heard. Most have family in Delgos. You can retake Ratibor at will. You won't even need the army. A few hundred men will do. Brecton can turn his attention north to Melangar, and begin plans for the spring invasion of Trent. Excellent! Excellent! Ethelred cheered. Saldor and the Chancellor joined in his applause, granting each other smiles of relief and pleasure. What happens when the gazelle finish with Delgos and decide to march north? The Earl of Chadwick asked. Seated at the far end of the table, he didn't appear to share his companion's gaiety. I'm told there's quite a lot of them, and here they're fearsome fighters. If they can destroy Delgos, what assurance do we have they won't attack us? I'm certain the Nationalists will halt their ambitions in the short term, my lord, Merrick replied. But even if not, we face no threat from the Baron Gazelle. They're a superstitious lot and expect some sort of world-ending catastrophe to beset them shortly. They want Drumondor as a refuge, not as a base for lodging attacks. This will buy the time you need to take Melangar, 
Trent, and possibly even Western Calais. By then, the new empire will be supreme, and the nationalists a memory. The remaining residents of Delgos, those once independent merchant barons, will beg for imperial intervention against the gazelle and eagerly submit to your absolute rule. The empire of old will be reforged. The earls scowled and sat back down. You are indeed a marvel, and deserving of your new title and station, Lord Marius. Because you already have Gaunt, and Ezra Harden is dead, I believe that finishes my employment obligations. For now, Etheridge told him, I won't let a man of your talents get away that easily. Now that I've found you, I want you in my court. I'll make it worth your loyalty. Actually, I already spoke with his grace about the position of Magistrate of Colnora. Magistrate, eh? Want your own city, do you? I like the idea. Think you can keep the diamond under your thumb? I suppose you could. Certainly. Why not? Consider it done, Lord Magistrate. But I insist you do not take your post until after wintertide. I want you here for the festivities. Ethelred is getting married and crowned emperor, Solder explained. The patriarch will be coming to perform the ceremony himself, and if that's not enough, we will be burning a famous witch. I wouldn't miss it. Excellent, Ethelred grinned. I trust accommodations and the city are to your liking. If not, tell the Chamberlain and he'll find a more suitable estate. The house is perfect. You're too kind, my lord. I still don't see why you don't simply stay in the palace. It's easier for me to do business if I'm not seen here too frequently. And now, if you'll forgive me, I must— You aren't leaving? Etheridge asked, disappointed. You just got here. With news like this, we have to celebrate. Don't do me to merrymaking with the likes of an old cleric and a melancholy earl. I'll call for wines and beef. We'll get some entertainment, music, dancers, and women if you like. How do you like your women, Marius? Thin or plump, light or dark, saucy or docile? I assure you, the Lord Chamberlain can fill any order. Alas, my lord, I have some remaining business to which I must attend. Ethelred frowned. Very well, but you must show up for wintertide. I insist. Of course, my lord. Merrick left, while the imperial rulers exchanged congratulatory accolades. Outside, a new carriage waited complete with four white horses and a uniformed driver. On the seat rested the package from the city constable. Merrick had offered brandy in trade, and the man had leapt at the opportunity. A bottle of fine liquor in return for the worthless remnants of the defunct witch-hunt was the sort of good fortune that the sheriff was unaccustomed to receiving. Unwrapping the package... Merrick ran his fingers over the shimmering material of the robe. 
The carriage travelled up the hill and turned on Heath Street, one of the more affluent neighbourhoods in the city. The homes, though not terribly large, were tasteful and elegant. A servant waited dutifully to remove his cloak and boots, while another stood with a warm cup of cider. Merrick no longer drank wine, ale, or spirits, and was amused to see his accommodation taken into account. He sat in the drawing-room, surrounded by burgundy furnishings and dark wood panelling, sipping his drink and listening to the pop of the fireplace. A knock sounded at the door. He nearly rose to answer when he spotted one of his new servants trotting to the foyer. "'Where is she, Merrick?' he heard an angry voice shout. A moment later the valet led two men into the drawing-room. "'Please have a seat, both of you.' Merrick reclined in his soft chair, warming his hands with his cup. "'Would either of you care for a drink before we conduct business?' My servants can bring you whatever you like, but I must say, the cider is especially good. I said, where is she? Relax, Mr. Demonthor. Your daughter is fine, and I'll bring her down shortly. You fulfilled your end of the bargain brilliantly, and I always honour my commitments. I merely wish to go over a few details. Only a formality, I assure you. First, let me congratulate you, Wyatt. May I call you, Wyatt? You've done an excellent job. Poe's report gave you extremely high marks. He tells me you were instrumental in getting Royce and Hadrian on board, and even after the unexpected sinking of the Emerald Storm, your quick thinking saved the ship's orders and the mission. I'm especially impressed by how you... One over Royce's trust. No small feat, I might add. You must be a very convincing fellow, as demonstrated by how you persuaded the Port Authority that Royce and Hadrian were in Tour del Four to destroy Drumondor. I'm convinced it's only by your skill and intelligence that the operation was such a wonderful success. Merrick took a sip from his cider and sat back with a grin. I have just one question. Do you know where Royce and Hadrian are now? Dead. By the gazelle or the Tour del Four officials. Whoever got them first. Hmm. I doubt that. Royce is not easy to kill. He has gotten out of much more difficult situations before. I would say he leads a charmed life, but I know all too well what kind of life he's lived. Still, I wouldn't even trust death to bind him long. I want my daughter. Now, Wyatt said quietly through clenched teeth. Of course, of course. Mr. Poe, would you be so kind as to run up and bring her down? Third door on the left. Merrick handed him a key. Seriously, Wyatt, you're a very capable man. I could use you. Do you think I liked doing this? How many hundreds of people are dead because of me? 
Don't think of it that way. Think of it as a job, an assignment, which you performed with panache. I don't see talents such as yours often, and I could find other uses for your skills. Join with me, and you'll be well compensated. I'm working on another project now, for an even more lucrative employer, and I'm in a position to make a great many good things happen for you. You and your daughter can live like landed gentry. How would you like your own estate? You kidnapped my daughter. The only business I'm interested in doing with you is arranging your death. Don't be so dramatic. Ah, oh, see? Here she is now, safe and sound. Poe escorted a little girl down the steps. She was around ten years old. Her light brown hair was tied in a bow, and she wore an elegantly tailored blue dress with fine leather shoes. Daddy! she shouted. Wyatt rushed over, throwing his arms around her. Did they hurt you, honey? No, I'm okay. They bought me this pretty dress and got me these shoes, and we played games. That's good, honey. Turning to Merrick, Wyatt asked, What about Eldon? He's fine. Still in Colnora. Waiting for you, I presume. Wyatt, you really need to consider my offer, if for no other reason than your own safety. Wyatt spun on him. I did your job. You sat there and told me I did it brilliantly. Why are you still threatening us? Merrick looked at the girl. Poe, take Ali in the kitchen. I think there are some cookies she might like. Wyatt held her to him. Don't worry. She'll be right back. Do you like cookies? Poe asked her. The little girl grinned, bobbing her head. She looked up at her father. Wyatt nodded. It's okay. Go ahead. Hurry back, honey. Poe and Ali left the room hand in hand. I'm not threatening you. As I already said, I'm very pleased with your skills. I'm merely trying to protect you. Consider for a moment. What if Royce is not dead? He'll put two and two together if he hasn't already. You should be afraid of what he'll do to you and your daughter. Royce will probably kill Ali first and make you watch. He's not like that. Merrick released a small chuckle. Oh, sir, you have no idea what Royce is like. I'll grant you that his association with Hadrian Blackwater has tempered him greatly. Twelve years with that idealistic dreamer have made him practically human, but I know him. I know what lurks beneath. I've seen things that make even my hardened heart shudder. Get his anger up, and you'll unleash a demon.' 
that no one can control. Believe me, he's like that, and so much more. Nothing is beyond him. Ali returned with a handful of sugar cookies. Taking her other hand, Wyatt headed for the door. He paused at the threshold and looked back. Merrick, if what you say about Royce is true, then shouldn't you be the one who's afraid? Wyatt walked out, closing the door behind him. Merrick sipped his cider again, but it had gone cold. The End This has been a sci-fi audio production of Rise of Empire by Michael J. Sullivan, narrated by Tim Jared Reynolds and directed by Erica Jensen. If you've enjoyed this book and this performance, Recorded Books recommends The Conclusion of Michael J. Sullivan's Ra'ira Revelations, Heir of Navron, also narrated by Tim Jared Reynolds. The New Empire intends to mark its victory over the Nationalists with a bloody celebration. On the high holiday of Wintertide, the Witch of Melangar will be burned and the heir of Navran executed. On that same day, the Empress faces a forced marriage with a fatal accident soon to follow. The new empire is confident in the totality of its triumph, but there's just one problem. Royce and Hadrian have finally found the heir of Navran and have their own holiday plans. Recorded Books offers a wide selection of bestsellers, mysteries, classics, histories, and more, so visit us at recordedbooks.com to learn about our latest releases and special offers. And thank you for being a Recorded Books reader. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.